So, Father in heaven, we come to you this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, praying for your blessing as we begin a brand new study looking at the book of Jonah. So it's a great blessing to be able to take the time out to do this each and every Sunday. And we come to you humbly as students of scripture, wanting to learn, wanting to know something about thy word. And we seek thy blessing now in the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. So the book of Jonah is dated to around 862 BC, based on James Usher's dating, based on Schofield's. And most of your King James Bibles, if you have any reference Bibles, will follow Usher and Schofield. And I have no reason to doubt the dates of 862 BC. One Jewish scholar would suggest that it's possible that Jonah was the boy that was resurrected back in 1 Kings 17, 8 to 24 concerning one of Elijah's early miracles. Can't be verified, but it's an interesting statement. And if that's true, that Elijah would resurrect him from 1 Kings 17, 8 to 24. He has a double blessing because he's also possibly one of the prophets connected to Elisha from 2 Kings 2 verse 3. Fascinating. And uh, like I say, this can't be verified. But based on Jewish tradition, they do suggest that Jonah was resurrected. So an interesting character to look at. Over the next, I'm going to suggest six to eight weeks. But we will see. Jonah chapter 1. Look at verse 1, please. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amati, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Very reminiscent to Sodom and Gomorrah. We will go down. We will inspect for ourselves the wickedness that was taking place way back in the book of Genesis. And here it says it's a great city, not great in the sense of spectacular or tremendous, but great in the sense of grave. World War I is referred to as the Great War, not because it was wonderful, but because it was grave. Word of the Lord, 1-1, one, one, came unto Jonah, very similar to John the Baptist. The word of the Lord came unto John the Baptist. And of course, John the Baptist is very much an Old Testament saint, as would be Jonah. The son of Amiti, or Amittai, saying, Arise, move, go to Nineveh. Today, Nineveh is in Iraq, near Mosul. And Nineveh can be traced right back to Nimrod. Genesis chapter 10. Arise, get moving. Go to Nineveh, that great city. Why? And cry against it, for their wickedness, their wickedness is come up before me. So the eyes of the Lord are, are everywhere. He sees and hears everything. You may go for a period of time when nothing touches you, but eventually your sin will find you out. One more time. Now the word of the Lord, 1-1, one, one, came unto Jonah. God is speaking to Jonah, the son of Amiti or Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city and cry against it preach against it warn them for their wickedness is come up before me keep your hand there and go to song of solomon the word jonah means dove dove and also amiti or mitai his father means truthful so jonah once again gets a double blessing not only is he linked directly to elijah and also elisha but because he is called dove or jonah means dove he's also linked to the holy ghost which we'll look at this morning. But on top of that, he's obviously linked to Jesus Christ. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, look at verse 15. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair, thou hast 
dove's eyes. So Solomon's wife is speaking about him. And of course in type, this is the church speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. Go back to Jonah. So Jonah, like I say, refers to, or in Hebrew, his name means dove. And his father means truthful. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The more I read the scripture, the more I realize how much I don't know. For example, if I was to turn to the left, the Lord would turn to the right. If I was to turn to the right, he would turn to the left. If I was to go forward, he would go backwards. If I was to go backwards, he would go forward. In other words, he's always two or three steps ahead of me. That's why Romans 8.28 always comes into being. Because whatever you do, if you are saved, and Jonah was certainly saved, Almighty God is two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten steps ahead of you. This is fascinating. This goes back to middle knowledge. This goes back to the sovereignty of the Lord, free will of man. And yes, they all fit together. How they fit together, I don't know. Now the word of the Lord, one more time, came unto Jonah, the son of Amitti, or Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. So if you were a Jew, back in the time of Jonah, when it comes to distance, from the northeast of Israel to Nineveh was some 500 miles. And if you were a Jew back in the time of Jonah, your arch enemy would be the Assyrians. If you were to ask an Orthodox Jew today to fly to Iran and preach to the Mullahs or the people in general about Jehovah's love, they wouldn't want to do it. They would kick against it. If you were to ask perhaps former Catholics to go to the Vatican and preach to the Pope and his cardinals and his bishops to repent, most would perhaps kick against it. There's also a sense of bigotry. In fact, in my Schofield Reference Bible, it says that Jonah was a bigoted Jew. Interesting. Mm. Most people think of uh, white people as bigots. They think of white people as the baddies, if you will, and everybody else as the goodies. But of course, Jonah has two natures. We all have two natures. And again, if Jonah is linked to Elisha and also linked to Elijah, and if his father is indirectly linked to the Lord Jesus Christ, and if Jonah is linked directly to Jesus Christ and also the Holy Ghost, then this guy is very complex. And we will spend, like I say, six to eight weeks profiling, attempting to get under the surface of the man Jonah, which again refers to him being a dove. And of course, you go back to the book of Genesis, Noah's Ark, two birds are released. One was a raven, a blackbird, one was a dove. Doves are very pure birds, very fussy what they eat and where they will Land after flying for a period of time, of course. Jonah chapter 1, look at verse 3, if you will. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it, to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Keep your hand there, and go to Psalm 139. I love the attention to detail in this particular book. He pays the fare. He doesn't get a free ride. He doesn't uh, ride the trains or the buses for free. He pays his way. But he's trying to get away from the Lord. And if you speak to our Calvinist friends, they believe in what's called irresistible grace. People like John MacArthur, John Piper, uh, the late R.C. Sproul, and uh, so many Calvinists, uh, Charles Spurgeon, even uh, Ray Comfort is a semi-Calvinist. And they believe in the sovereignty of the Lord. And of course that word sovereignty doesn't appear in the Bible. But of course God is sovereign. Never misunderstand me when I speak against Calvinism. 
God is sovereign, but at the same time, man has free will. Middle knowledge and free will, they go together. How that works, I do not know. I don't claim to have all of the answers. Psalm 139, Psalm 139, uh, look at verse 7, if you will. Whither shall I flee from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? David speaking. If I send up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be lights about me. Wherever you are, Lord, you are there, wherever I am. You are there, before Abraham was, I am. Go and tell Pharaoh that I am. I have no beginning, I have no end. I am just living, I am eternal, the eternal one. Go back to Jonah one three. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish, so much for irresistible grace. Go back to verse 2. Go to Nineveh, cry against it, their wickedness has come up before me. Not likely, Lord. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But of course you can't get away from the presence of the Lord. Heaven or hell, he is there. On the earth today he is present with those of us which are saved, where two or three gather. I am there in the midst of such people. You can't escape, almighty God. Went down to... Joppa, and he found his ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof. I love that bit. So he paid the fare thereof. and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Tarshish could be southern Spain. We're not overly sure exactly whereabouts this place is. It's only found several times back in the Old Testament. But basically he's going in the opposite direction to the Lord. He's going far west from memory. He has no intention of going to Nineveh, Assyria, those pagans. And you know what they worshipped? They worshipped a fish. And one of the gods they worshipped was Dagon. And that's why the Lord would use a fish. Talk about irony. But we'll discuss that in a few weeks' time. One more time. Three. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He's trying to get away from the Lord. Many times we want to get away from the Lord. He tells us to do this. He tells us to do that. And we say, not likely, Lord. I will do what I want to do. And incidentally, Jonah is the only prophet in the entire Bible that would defy Almighty God. And on top of that, will be sent exclusively to the Gentiles. Went down to Joppa today in Israel near Tel Aviv from memory. It is called Jaffa, like Jaffa Cakes. Very nice, incidentally. But Jaffa, from memory, south of Tel Aviv. We were there some years ago. So Joppa is now Jaffa. And incidentally, this is a history book that I'm holding in my hands this morning. We don't just follow a faith system, per se. We are reading about historical places. Mosul, Iraq. Was it five or six years ago, ISIS arrived in Mosul? And around that time, the Iraqi government collapsed. Iraqi troops failed to repel their Islamic brothers because they were Muslims at the end of the day. And when ISIS arrived in Mosul, modern-day Iraq, they desecrated the remains or the tombstone of Jonah. Jonah is also a prophet in Islam and uh, Judaism. So the Jews and the Muslims both recognize Jonah as a prophet. And of course, Christians certainly do. Paid the fare, three to go thereof. Flee from the presence of the Lord, or so he thought. And yet Psalm 139, 7-12 says, Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever you do, Almighty God is present. You can't get away from him. And he's desperate to run from the Lord. 1-4. Four. 
But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was likely to be broken. Spirit of the Lord, Holy Ghost, Numa. The Holy Ghost is referred to as a wind. So once again, Jonah is linked indirectly to the Holy Ghost, and here the Holy Ghost is being used by probably the Father to send a storm on this particular sea. If you think of Jesus Christ walking on the sea, you see once again that Father, Son and Spirit working in harmony. Also Leviathan gets a looking, and we'll discuss him in a few weeks' time. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken, about to be snapped in half. And it's interesting when you think about Jonah, and you try to profile him, you try to work out what was going through his mind. Lord, I love you. Lord, I know you. Lord, I know I am one of the chosen race. We have the Ten Commandments. We have the Ark of the Covenants. We have the Tabernacle. And around this time, we have the Temple. We are thy chosen people. And we are here to represent you, a dear Lord. And yet, when his commission came to him, he had no interest in doing what he was told to do. But a great wind has been sent from the Lord in type, the Holy Ghost. A mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship... Not just a boat, but the ship was like to be broken, snapped in half. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea, to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. He's sleeping like a baby. Incredible. His conscience didn't bother him whatsoever. Picturing the two natures of the believer. You can be a saved man or a saved woman, steeped in sin, out of fellowship with the Lord. And yet enjoy seven or eight hours of sleep every night. Your conscience isn't bothered whatsoever. Picturing again the complexity of God's people. Then the mariners. That's a term we still use today. Marines. Royal Marines. US Marines. Then the mariners were afraid naturally. And cried every man unto his God. There's no atheists. When a plane is going down. When a ship is about to sink. If you go back to 19... 17 was it when uh, one of the famous ships was sinking Titanic yeah I think I'm slightly out by a couple of years actually 1912 yeah 1912 pre-world war yeah that was also during the war and when Titanic was going down there was a street preacher a Scot whose name escapes me and he was preaching literally right up until the last moments and the waves were coming up going down coming up Going down, he was shouting the gospel, repent, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And you know what? People actually listened, repented, got saved, and were rescued. And those people arrived in New York a few days, a few weeks later, and said, as we were drowning, this Scotsman was preaching. A John Knox character. He didn't survive, of course, no, he would drown. Then the mariners were afraid, naturally, and cried every man unto his God, capital G, no, lowercase g. They're praying to their pagan gods and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea. Wares like cargo or hardware. They're trying to empty the ship. They're trying to lighten the cargo, the weight. The ship is going down, basically. These are professional mariners and mariners. They know their trade inside out. Fishermen, can I suggest the apostles were all mariners, fishermen, knowing their trade inside out. I'm sure when these guys woke up in the morning... They had no thought, had no idea that they'd be risking or they'd be about to die as a Jew boarded their boat. You never know what's around the corner, do you? We're living in very uncertain times at the moment. Just seven days ago, things were looking pretty positive. 
in the UK, and here we are seven days later, not looking so positive. Mm-hmm. Maybe 14 days ago, it was looking pretty positive <clears throat> in the US. Now, not looking so positive. Mm-hmm. 21 days ago, things were looking pretty positive in Spain, Italy, France. Now, not looking so positive. So you never know what's around the corner, do you? Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea, to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the side of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. Incredible. On one occasion, the Lord Jesus Christ boarded a boat on the Sea of Galilee, the Lake Tiberias. The apostles were on board, and as they are travelling from A to B, and I've been to Capernaum, and I've been to Galilee, and I've seen the lake in question, a storm hits that lake, and on that occasion it was probably good old Leviathan trying to sink the ship. And the apostles, professional mariners, like these guys are, one, three, four, five and six, are trying to take control of the boats. And as they are trying to take control of the boat, their boats were like their homes. They knew every inch, every centimetre of their boats. They start to panic. And it says how Jesus Christ was sleeping on a pillow. Not a care in the world. Incredible. One, six. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. O sleeper, sleepy head, wake up, you sleeper, call upon thy God. Capital G. If so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. That word perish is Old English and it means simply to be lost eternally. Endless misery. A few nights ago, I was watching a documentary, a true story of an incident that took place in Minnesota from memory about 15, 16 years ago. A criminal broke into a home. It was late at night in the dead of winter. And he said to the occupants of the home, it was a man and a wife. And he said to the man, "Uh, give me the keys to your car. We're going for a drive. And the guy started to panic. What do you want? Uh, How can I help you sort of a thing? And of course, he just shot dead a police officer, maybe five or six miles away, and he frog-marched the man out of his home, late at night, minus 20, it was freezing. The guy was basically dressed for bed, and he got into the car, and he said, drive. And the guy was driving, gun stuck in the back of his head, they drove several miles, the car was sliding all over the place, and they came to a particular area, and the criminal said to the victim, pull over here, get out of the car, and he thought, this is it, I'm going to die. And he got out of the car and he said, open the boot. The Americans called it the trunk. And he shoved the guy into the boots, into the trunk, slammed it shut. And he drove for another 45 minutes, freezing cold, pitch black. The guy had no idea if he was coming or going. He was praying like he'd never prayed in his life, making promises to the Lord, vowing to the Lord. Uh, like you see in verse 16 uh, from chapter 1. And after driving for 45 minutes, like I say, the car eventually stopped. Heavy snow, it's the middle of winter, like I say, and in parts of the east coast of America, it gets really cold. Minus 20, minus 25, that's pretty common, I'm told, in parts of Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis, Colorado, those types of areas. And he could hear the driver get out of the car, walk to the side of the car through the heavy snow. His heart is beating very quickly. He thinks, that's it, I'm going to die. There's a few moments of silence, and all of a sudden, somebody says, drop your gun, drop your gun. And he thinks, who's speaking to the man? What's going on? Is it a police officer? And it's a female police officer. Drop your gun. She would shout out to him three times, drop your gun. 
and after shouting out three times to drop your gun, bang. A bullet is fired, the assailant, the criminal, has been shot dead, but of course he doesn't know this. And he's in the boot of the car, the trunk of the car, he thinks, is this it? Who has shot who? Who has been killed? And after a few moments he decides to bang on the car, get me out of here. He's terrified, he's probably wet himself, he's been in the boot trunk for almost an hour. Minus 20 degrees outside, shouting and screaming, let me out of here, get me out of here. And the boot trunk opens, three police officers, and the guy's overcome with emotion. Praying, and he was really praying at that point in time, but I thought, imagine nobody had opened the boots, the trunk. Imagine dying and going to hell forever. And you are pitch black forever, praying, vowing to the Lord, verse 16, making a deal or two with the Lord. And he says, too little, too late. I mean, can you imagine that? Do you ever think about hell? Christ would preach about hell on average three times a year on average so if you are a street preacher or if you are an evangelist if you are a bible teacher if you exposit the scripture if you are any good if you are worth your weight in gold you should preach about hell at least three times a year take the time to lay out what hell is all about when we get into a crisis when a catastrophe hits our country or your country or any country you will never hear a preacher ever address the people of such a country and start to lay out the reasons for why countries are going through what they are going through it never happens because if they were to lay out the reasons for punishment people queuing for essentials people desperate for this or desperate for that if you were to really lay out why god is angry with the wicked every day and why he hates all workers of iniquity and what hell is all about and who goes to hell people would be just shocked they'd be stunned if you go back to the late 1930s ian paisley's father was a preacher in and around Dublin, Southern Ireland. And he was quite a street preacher, Paisley Senior. And it has been well reported over the years that as he was preaching back in the late 1930s, around the Dublin area and Southern Ireland, and I've been to Southern Ireland, a very beautiful country, his preaching was so tremendous, so powerful, that grown men were literally crying in ditches. People were pulling over, getting on their knees, crying, begging the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. And many got saved based on that Calvinist preacher and don't get me wrong I do critique Calvinism as a system but I don't say that all Calvinists are lost I'm not that foolish some of the greatest preachers that Britain's ever produced like Martin Lloyd-Jones were Calvinist but the system the structure that they held to was false shipmaster came to him one six and said unto him what meanest thou O sleeper what are you doing get up the ship is about to break in half we can't survive this. We are professional mariners or mariners. We know what we are doing. This is our trade. On one occasion, Christ would say to Simon Peter, put your net into the sea and scoop up all of the fish. And he would say, but Lord, we've been doing this all night. Have caught nothing. And here Christ, a carpenter by trade, is telling mariners how to make their living. Not many people would be very happy to have somebody tell them how to do their trade or how to do what they have been trained to do. If I wasn't medically uh, qualified i wouldn't go into an emergency room and say to the doctors and nurses stop you doing everybody gather around let's do it this way i wouldn't be so foolish to do that and if i was to i'd be quickly kicked out and muzzled shipmaster captain came to him jonah and said unto him what meanest thou o sleeper sleepyhead get up how dare you sleep we are in peril we are going to perish if we're not careful call upon thy god call upon thy god if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. So I'm interested in the language that was being spoken. And I sat down last night and looked at languages 
around this time. And I'm no linguist, so I don't offer myself as an expert, but I'm just wondering if perhaps a dialect is being shared. I find it very unlikely that the Mariners 1-6 would be able to speak Hebrew. I doubt that very much. And I doubt they could speak Aramaic. Now, when Moses and Aaron spoke to Pharaoh, they would speak, or they spoke using Egyptian. They use Egyptian, the language of the land, the language of the era, Egyptian. When Christ spoke to Pilate, he spoke in Greek. When uh, Paul spoke to some of the kings and leaders and VIPs, Gentiles, in the book of Acts, he spoke in Greek. When the captain came to arrest Paul, he spoke in Greek. So Greek was the language for the apostles and also the Lord Jesus Christ and Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron, and all that crowd would use the language of Egyptian, the Egyptian language. But I'm just wondering what language Jonah is using to communicate with these mariners. Could be a dialect, like I say, it could be Persian. Uh, I'm always fascinated about the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts chapter 8. On one occasion he was travelling to Jerusalem. The guy's a Gentile, he's a eunuch. He's serving a pagan queen and he's reading Isaiah. I don't believe he was reading it in Hebrew. I mean, it's possible, but a eunuch? Would he be educated enough to learn Hebrew? I don't think so. Uh, he may be able to get by base, uh, on basic understanding, a basic understanding of the Hebrew or Greek. I know a little bit of Greek, but that's about all. So what was he reading? Well, people say he was reading the Septuagint, but the Septuagint was written after Christ, not before Christ. It's a mystery. And I've got all my reference Bibles, and I read all of them when I went through Acts of the Apostles five or six years ago. Not one of them had an answer for me. What was you reading? What language was you reading? Was it Hebrew? Unlikely. Was it the Septuagint? Did it exist pre-Christ? I don't believe it did. So the jury is out as to what language the Ethiopian eunuch was uh, reading, what text he had in front of him. But he had Isaiah 53. He was reading it. He was understanding it. So, so he had access to something. And here you got a Jew speaking to Gentiles. It could be, like I said, a dialect. It could be a Persian dialect. Uh, of course, the Jews would have communications with the Gentiles and vice versa. So they would have to converse somehow. But we're not told, so that's not speculate. But the last part of verse 6, that we perish not. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, on him, should not perish. There's that word again, perish. Go to hell forever. Suffer everlasting torments. I mean, that guy in the boots, that guy in the trunk, he could have died. He could have suffocated. He could have frozen to death. Hypothermia. He was praying and he really was praying. And the Lord spared him that night. But think about somebody who dies without Christ. Think about somebody who goes to hell forever. It speaks about weeping and wailing. And I will discuss that more in a few Sundays time. And also from the Old Testament. It says there is talking in hell. People are talking in hell. Not just Luke 16, 19 to 31. Which we'll look at in a few weeks time. Even back in the Old Testament. People are talking in hell, first death. Think about it sometime. Call upon thy God, get us out of this situation, this catastrophe. If so be that God will think upon us, show us mercy, that we perish not. Now he's not referring to everlasting hell. He's referring to the loss of their ship, the loss of their livelihood, the loss of their cargo, the loss of their lives, perhaps. You can perish in a spiritual sense. Your ministry can perish you can perish in a physical sense. Many people perished in a physical sense during World War II in the concentration camps in Europe and Japan. You can be saved and perish. Eric Little perished physically during World War II, but he was saved. And John Knox temporarily perished when he was a slave. 
before getting his freedom and went to Scotland and took on Mary, Queen of Scots. You can perish physically. Your country can perish economically. But here, this is in reference to physical perishing, not eternal punishment, eternal shame. Daniel 12 says, everlasting shame for some and everlasting righteousness, joy to those that are saved. Verse 7. And they said, every one to his fellow, come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. Keep your hand there and go to Luke chapter 1. We're not overly sure what lots entailed in scripture. Some think it's to do with throwing the dice. Uh, some think it's to do with stones. Uh, you think of John 8 when Christ found the lady caught in the act of adultery and he was playing around with the sand as they were gathering around him. And it's quite possible he was either writing their names in the sand, let he that is without sin first cast the stone, or he could have gone back to the Old Testament and probably put uh, Leviticus 18, for memory, in the sand, which lists every sexual sin imaginable. Luke 1, 8, And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God, in the order of his course, John the Baptist's father, order of his course, when it came to be his turn, According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. They cast lots, and it fell to Zechariah, father of John the Baptist. Around this time, you've got 18,000 priests in and around Jerusalem. 18,000. Most priests would never be fortunate to offer incense to the Lord. And if you were fortunate to do it once, you never did it again. But here it speaks about his lot, nine was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Give you one more and we're closed. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. So back in Jonah, pagans are casting lots. It could be stones, like I say. It could be throwing dice. It could be flicking a coin, like who's going to win or lose the toss. And it's not, it wasn't a sin, incidentally. It wasn't a sin to cast lots. But you've got the pagans doing it. Back in Jonah's day, you've got the Jews doing it during the time of Zechariah and it would fall to him to offer incense to the Lord. And one more, and we will close Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Pick it up in verse uh, 24. And they prayed, apostles, and said, Lord, thou Lord, which knowest the, the, the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take parts of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he may go to his own place like hell, perish, Eternally lost, damnation forever. And they gave forth their lots, and the lots fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So they cast lots, and this is the last time that the term lots or lots appears in the New Testament. And as they were casting lots, it could be dice, like I say, it could be stones, it could be a coin of some kind, I'm not everybody really sure, but as they were casting lots, it came to be Matthias, verse 26. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So again, it's not a sin. It wasn't a sin to cast lots. But it's a bit of a mystery, like the Urim and the Thummim, how it would work, what it would consist of, the way that this would uh, materialize. After Acts chapter 1, nobody ever casts lots again. Acts 6, they will pray. And after praying, men are discovered, chosen, anointed to be servants during the early church. So we will close it there. We've got many more weeks to go through the book of Jonah. And it'll get quite deep 
I will tell you that it'll get very deep when we hit the section concerning the deep. But for now, we'll close it there and return next week, Lord, uh, Lord winning, from Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, look at verse 2 again, please. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Nahum speaks about their wickedness, and he says it would concern evil plots against God, exploitation of the helpless, cruelty in war, idolatry, prostitution, and witchcraft. So therefore, Almighty God has the right to deal with mankind, whether Jew or Gentile, anywhere he should so wish to do so. Arise, go to Nineveh, like I said last Sunday, modern-day Iraq, that great city, on the one hand, very ostentatious, and we will look at the dimensions in the coming weeks, but not just great in the sense of its splendor, but also great in the sense of its wickedness, like Good Friday, for example, not good because it was good, but good because it was grave. And cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Look at verse 6 again. So the shipmaster came to him, and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be that God will think upon us, that we perish not. So you would have thought that Jonah, who loved Jehovah, verse 9, would be praying, would be intervening, would be interceding on behalf of his Gentile mariners from verse 5 but no he has a real hatred now david would say that he would count the lord's enemies as his own enemies but of course you've got to take the entire scripture to rightly understand what it is all about so jonah is sleeping like a baby doesn't have a care in the world refuses to pray to jehovah at this point his gentile uh, friends shall we say his gentile mariners from verse 5 are beside themselves Cannot believe that such a person would be so indifferent. Look at verse 8. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? They ask him three or four questions. And again, tell us, we pray thee, who are you? For what cause? For whose cause? For what reason? For whose cause this evil is upon us? Concerning their ship about to sink. Skilled fishermen, seasoned fishermen. Mariners, like I say, this is the first time one of their people that would board their ship, one of their customers, has almost caused their ship to sink. What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? He asks four questions. Well, they ask four questions. And like John the Baptist from the Gospel of John, He's asked a battery of questions. One of the questions he'd be asked would be, uh, what is your authority? What gives you the right to say and do what you are doing? Never answer such a question. What is thine occupation? No answer. And whence comest thou? No answer. What is thy country? Partly answers that. And what people art thou? They want to categorize him. Understandably so, of course. And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land, Keep your hand there and go to Second Corinthians. Now, it could be that these mariners were Philistines because Joppa at this time was under their jurisdiction. And if it was there, uh, or if they were Philistines, then they are probably communicating, conversing with Jonah, either using a primitive form of Greek, which is possible, but probably unlikely, or using a Canaanite slash Hebrew dialect, which is more plausible. If you think of uh, David, and uh, Goliath 
Saul and the Philistines. They were able to communicate using a dialect of some sort. The Philistine language is long, uh, long gone, of course. It's now kaput. It is no longer a used language, although some aspects of it are still used in parts of the world. So I'm going to suggest that Jonah, a Jew, obviously, is conversing with the mariners using probably a Canaanite dialect, possibly. If you think of Abraham, you think a lot. You think of uh, Joseph. You think of the, uh, the, uh, the chosen race, Moses and co., all able to enjoy conversations and able to communicate. So again, I'm going to suggest that they are using a Hebrew slash Canaanite dialect. But to go beyond that is problematic. Second Corinthians 10, look at verse 17. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Go back to the book of Jonah. I am an Hebrew, that's true. And I fear the Lord, I'm sure that he did. The God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Why would he say that? Well, the Philistines believed in a plurality of gods, but their main god, of course, was Dagon. And Dagon was half fish, half man. So because he was the fish god, here, verse 9, he says that Jehovah made the sea. On the other hand, if the mariners from verse 5 weren't Philistines, if they were another group of people, and that's possible, then they may have worshipped Baal. And of course, Baal was connected to the land. So what he's saying, in essence, is that I worship the one true God, unlike you pagans. Also, during the ancient world, it was believed by many people that different gods were responsible for different parts of the world. That was a common belief, and it's been said by some commentaries, which I've been reading over the last few days, that one of the reasons why Jonah went far west was to escape Jehovah's omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience. Of course, he knew that Jehovah was everywhere at the same time, was all-powerful. But if, he, if you find yourself in a spin, if you find yourself in a moment of crisis, what do you do? You run for the hills, or you sometimes deny uh, reality. One more time, one nine. And he said unto them, mariners, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Unlike Baal, unlike Dagon, unlike any particular god that was worshipped in the ancient world. 10. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So again, he's able to communicate with them. And I got an email uh, concerning the Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah 53, and one brother suggested that it may have been a form of Latin. I don't know about that. It's possible. It's also possible that the eunuch had learned Hebrew. That is possible. I mean, it's not necessarily probable, but it's possible. Was it Latin? Maybe. Uh, you're looking at around 35, 36 AD. I don't know if the Old Testament had been translated into Latin. Latin was also a governmental language. That's why Pilate would use it. These are things to further examine when time allows. But I like verse 10. Then were the men exceedingly afraid. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And said unto him, Why hast thou done this? What are you doing, sleepyhead? Verse 6. What are you playing at? You came on our ship. You boarded our boats. We allowed you on. We took you into our care. We have a duty of care. That's a term you hear a lot in the UK at the moment. And over many years. Health and safety. We have a duty of care. What is going on? Why is this taking place? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord. Because he had told them. I wonder what he said to them. They must have thought, what are you playing at? You are a Jew. We know about you. Rahab knew about the Jews. Pilate knew about Jesus. When it says he was the son of God, he was terrified. Son of God? 
Who are you? Where are you from? What is truth? It would have been very interesting to be a fly on the wall when this conversation was taking place. Remember, there's a storm, a tremendous tempestuous storm taking place. This isn't just a bit of a wind, a bit of a breeze around the Mediterranean. This is a severe storm. They're panicking. And when men panic, they do one of two things. They either fall apart or they fall in. One eleven. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. What can we do? Now these are pagans, these are Gentiles. They are used to sacrificing. They are used to cutting themselves. And if you see people today that cut themselves, whip themselves, walk around the streets naked, they call those people nudists. And there are laws in this country, you believe, to protect such nudists. People that cut themselves, people that don't wear clothing in public, people that hang around the tombs, people that like to be close to the dead. You're dealing with demon-possessed people. So part of their question goes back to their culture. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea rules and was tempestuous. What can we do, Jonah? You've told us what is taking place. We've never seen this in all of our life. We've been fishermen all of our lives. This is the first time one of our customers has caused a commotion, a storm. And already they are thinking about a human sacrifice of some kind. Incredible. Twelve. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be come unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon me. Take me up. And if the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all men unto him. Jonah is a type of Jesus. Every prophet in the Old Testament is a type of Jesus. Every king in the Old Testament is a type of Jesus. The good and the bad are all types of Jesus. All of the greats in the Old Testament had two natures. Old man, new man. Just last night I was reading Romans 7 again. That's a must read for every Christian. If you are newly saved or a seasoned Christian, you should study Romans 7. Really examine it. And it will answer your question as to why you are paralyzed. One moment you are walking with the Lord, doing great things. The next minute you are backsliding out of fellowship with the Lord. What you want to do, you don't do. And what you don't do, you end up doing. It's a paradox, of course. So Jonah, as despicable as he was, as backslidden as he was, God would almost have to kill him to get him to do his will. And yet in spite of all that, he's beloved, he is saved, and he's one of us. He is a saint in heaven today. Take me up, picture of the cross, and cast me forth into the sea. Picture of Christ going to the lower parts of the earth for three days and three nights. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. He knows what is going on. He's read stories from scripture. He knows about the great exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea. He knows about Joshua also crossing the sea with the, uh, with the Levites. He knows all about miracles way back in the Old Testament. He knows all about Jehovah's ability to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do. There's no doubt in his mind that the Lord is behind this. This goes back to permissive will, directive will. If you are a parent, it's your directive will as to which school your child goes to. Your child has no say in that. But your permissive will allows your child to perhaps go on excursions. Your permissive will allows your child to sometimes arrive early or arrive late. Your permissive will allows your children to stay up late or go to friends' houses. That's your permissive will. But your directive will is, this is your school, that's we're going to go to, end of. So for the Lord, it was his directive will for Jonah to preach to the Ninevites, not his permissive will. There was no way that this was not going to happen. 
this was going to happen. God speaks about being glorified time after time. Christ came to glorify Almighty God. Christ causes a personification of the Trinity. So Jonah is a fascinating character to study. And if you've been saved for any length of time, or if you are a new Christian, I guarantee that sooner or later you will see strands of yourself in Jonah. Just give it time and it will come. I guarantee it to you. 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not. For the sea roads are most tempestuous against them. More pressure. The pressure keeps building. We can't work out what is going on. The apostles were seasoned fishermen all their lives. They knew the Sea of Galilee, also referred to as the Sea of Tiberias. Back to front, they knew it like their own homes, like their own families. They were very familiar with the Lake of Galilee. And two or three occasions, Christ conquers the lake. One occasion, he falls asleep in a boat. And they say, get up, we're about to sink. And he gets up, rebukes the sea. And they are saying to themselves, who is this guy? Who is this man? Even the seas obey him. Even the sea is in submission to him. Another occasion, they're on one of their boats in the middle of the lake. It's late at night. And all of a sudden, he comes out of nowhere, walking on the sea, terrified. Is it a spirit? What are we to make of this? And they start to panic again. Is it a spirit? And he says, don't be afraid. It is I. Boards the boat and straight away it arrives at land. It is birched. One more time he is speaking to Simon Peter. And he says to Simon, throw out the net. And when you bring it back, there'll be a large catch of fish. So Christ is identified with a sea. And of course, Leviathan, picture of Satan, is also identified with a sea. The men rowed hard to bring it to the land. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Most of English literature, if you don't know, comes from the Bible. They say the straight and narrow. Uh, they say get your house in order. They say sort your stuff out. All from the King James Bible. The word beer is found back in Numbers. So most of our English language comes from the King James Bible. This is still the most sold book on the face of the earth. And yet it is the most neglected book on the face of the earth. One more time. Nevertheless... The men rode hard to bring it to the land. They don't want to throw Jonah into the sea. They want to spare Jonah. On the one hand, these are Gentiles, perhaps Philistines, worshipping Dagon, the fish god. Canaanite roots, wickedness, and also the Ninevites, like I say, would be responsible for idolatry, prostitution, and witchcraft. And yet, to be fair to them, the last thing on their minds is to throw Jonah overboard. And he wants to die. He hates the Ninevites in a way that is really difficult to comprehend. I guess, like we said last week, if you were to think of an Orthodox Jew being told to go to Iran, that may go some way in explaining the hatred. But even then, not all Orthodox Jews would feel that way. And of course, not all Old Testament prophets were like Jonah. Jeremiah would also pray indirectly to the nations and had no problem doing so. But they could not. Why? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. That word tempestuous... If you think back over recent years, uh, couples, famous Hollywood couples, regularly their personal lives are published in the press. And people say uh, such and such and such and such are now separated. Such and such and such and such are fighting for divorce. And you go back to the 40s and the 50s, people like Sinatra, Ava Gardner, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, just a couple of names that come to my mind. Tempestuous relationships, always fighting, always arguing. It was said that Ava Gardner could cuss, curse, like no woman. And she would give uh, Sinatra's mother a run for her money. So tempestuous, like a storm. It's like a fight. It's violent. It is tremendous. It is something which you cannot 
avoid. If you go down the streets, you will see people many times drinking, shouting and swearing. Or you walk past people's homes, you may see couples fighting and arguing. It's violence, it's horrendous, and it's even worse when children are present, of course. One fourteen. wherefore they cried unto the Lord. They cried unto the Lord. Pagans, savages, barbarians, pagans, Philistines perhaps, Israel's arch enemy, and yet in the mind of Jonah, no, it's the Ninevites. Capital of the ancient world, capital of Assyria. This is incredible. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord, which is what Jonah should have done from verse 6. But he wouldn't. He was stubborn. He was defiant, totally defiant. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord. This is like a group prayer. A bit like the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a corporate prayer. And incidentally, that should be called the disciples' prayer. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord, Yah, Jehovah, Yahweh. Textra grammaton, the four letters, or the four parts of the Lord's name, which nobody can pronounce because nobody has ever heard it. Yah. They're calling him Yah, Jah, Jehovah, Yahweh. Not just Adonai, or the Blessed One, which is what the Jews, the Pharisees, would call him time after time. You've got pagans. Do you realize this? You've got pagans referring to the one true God in his own language. So again, there's a Hebrew connection here. There's a dialect. And maybe in the ancient world, the Philistines knew Hebrew. That's possible, I suppose. Maybe the, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch knew a bit of Hebrew. That's possible, I suppose. But here, they're calling upon the Eternal One. One more time. Wherefore? They cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. They call him Jehovah twice, Yah, the texture grammaton, like I say, and they use the term innocent blood, which is found 21 times in the Bible. Keep your hand there and go to Matthew Chapter 27. It's always interesting what pagans know. We do a lot of street work. People come up to us and they say, uh, how about those people who uh, live in Timbuktu? Yeah. How about those people that have never heard about Jesus? How about those people that don't have a Bible? How about this person or that person? Well, how about you, Jack? Yeah. Never mind that guy down the street or that woman around the corner. It says over in Romans chapter 2 that people are going to be judged for what they know, not what they do not know. You've got a conscience, haven't you? I'm sure you have. The first time you looked at pornography, did you watch it with your friends and family present? I'm sure you did not. The first time you had a cigarette, did you have a cigarette? When friends and family were present, or when you sipped that bit of alcohol, did you do so in a classroom with your teacher's presence? I'm sure you did not. Matthew 27, Matthew 27. It says over in Genesis, uh, concerning one leader who almost took Sarah to be his wife. And the Lord said to him, if you touch her, you are a dead man. And the next day he said to uh, Abraham and also Isaac, they're both guilty on separate occasions. He said, why have you done this to us? A bit like Jonah. Why have you done this? I almost took your wife to be my wife. And it says, this is a great wickedness. These are pagans, savages. And yet some of these people know more about right and wrong, good and evil, than Christian people today. Matthew 27, Matthew 27. Look at verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude. Another expression. I wash my hands of you. Get out of my sight. I am washing my hands of you. I am renouncing you. I am disowning you. 
Pilate wants to get rid of Christ, took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Go back to Jonah. So it is interesting that here Pilate, from Matthew 27, a pagan, his wife was Caesar's daughter, we believe, and through tradition would go on to kill himself, that is Pilate, not Caesar. His life was broken, we are told, when Christ died. He was never able to come back from that. His wife, Claudia, was able to see that Christ wasn't just a prophet, wasn't just a type of Jonah. In fact, it would say later on how he was greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than the temple, greater than a Sabbath. And she would say to her husband, don't get tied up with this rabbi, this young teacher. He is different. He is unusual. And of course, Pilate wouldn't listen to her and he would crucify an innocent man. Innocent blood, Jonah 1.14. They're not saying he's sinless, whereas Christ was. But they are saying that we aren't responsible for the death of somebody who is simply running from you, Lord. And thou, O Lord. Three times they call in his name. Lord, 14, first part, O Lord, middle parts of verse 14, O Lord, final parts of verse 14. O Lord, O Jehovah, O Yahweh, Yah, Jah, O Lord, hast thou done as it pleased thee? So just try and picture this. You're way back in, what, 862 BC, the ancient world. People are very religious. It's quite unusual, actually, to find people around the world who aren't religious per se. Of course, today's religion is based around sports, you understand, entertainment, Pop stars, music producers, movie stars, they're all types of gods. And if you take uh, those people out of the picture, the entire world falls apart. There was an expression some years ago which said, give me bread and circus. What that meant was simply this, to keep people happy, to keep people calm, give them bread and circus. Go back to South Africa, 1980s, apartheid is coming to an end. And during that long period of apartheid, the South African government's F.W. de Klerk, for memory, was struggling to get on top of the continual uprisings. A lot of black people were rioting. Not all, of course. Don't think all black people were anti the government. I can speak about this for many hours. I won't. But very briefly, during that period in South Africa's history, late 1980s, the blacks were rising up in numbers, rioting, looting. Always a good excuse, isn't it, to take what you want. Mm -hmm. And the South African government's, at the time, South Africa was a beacon in that part of the world, a very wealthy country, a very prosperous country, a very safe country. And the government had a crisis meeting, and they said, what can we do, Prime Minister? He said, well, what we can do is we can pump television into the ghettos. Television, he said, but they haven't even got electricity. No problem, they said, Prime Minister. We can give them electricity and televisions. We can give every hut, every shack, every shed, call it what you will, electricity, televisions, and they'll all be at home watching television. You know what? It worked. It wasn't long ago that in this country, on average, around 18 million people would watch soaps two, three times a week. Television is still a great escape. The internet has now replaced it. And of course, the radio is a good fallback. It's very rare, incidentally, to find anybody who doesn't watch the television, doesn't surf the net, or doesn't listen to the radio. One more time, verse 14. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord. This is a prayer, prayer of desperation. And said, we beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish, for this man's life. Don't let us die with him in a physical sense, not concerning everlasting hell. And lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So this is tremendous. Gentiles, pagans, savages, like I say, are crying out to the eternal God. Unlike Jonah, unlike many of his compatriots, 
friends back home. He has, he has been referred to as a nationalist. A bit like Simon the Zealot, one of the Lord's apostles, a real nationalist, an ultra-nationalist. And he loved his country, nothing wrong with that. And he loved his God, and certainly nothing wrong with that. But when his God says to him, go, preach to the Ninevites, he had no right to say no. And yet again, he has free will. He has free will. And it's always good to remind our Calvinist friends that man has free will. I know Martin Luther wrote an entire book against free will. In fact, a while ago I heard a sermon from uh, John MacArthur who said that man doesn't have free will. Mm. He does, John. He does. God had to almost kill Jonah to do his will. But here I'm all intrigued with the atmosphere or the attitude of the mariners praying to the Lord. And if they could and would pray to the Lord, why don't you pray to the Lord? If you aren't a Christian, if you aren't saved, why don't you pray to the Lord? He's everywhere. He sees and hears everything. There's no excuse not to go to heaven when you die. There is no excuse not to be saved. Whoever you are, wherever you are, there's no reason for you to perish. No reason. It's like this. You speak to an Armenian and he says, well, I'm going to do what I have to do to get saved and stay saved. That won't work. We speak to a Calvinist. And he says, well, I'm waiting to be elected to be saved. That won't work. The Armenian will go to hell. And so too with a Calvinist. You've got to trust Christ. You've got to reach out and receive him. He won't do that for you. He's given you grace. He's already drawn you unto him. Verse 12. Take me up. Son of man, be lifted up. Cast me into the sea. He's already died for your sins. He would taste death for every man. He would claim victory over the serpents, Leviathan. So it's really shocking in many ways, but not surprising that people continue to hide behind their inability or reluctance to be saved. One fifteen. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. Didn't want to do it. Wasn't something they wanted to do. I'm sure when they woke up that morning, they never thought somebody would board their boat would almost cause the death of many people, would refuse to call out to his God that he said he loves, from verse 9. And yet now they've got no option but to throw him into the sea. You've got Gentiles sacrificing Jonah. In type, similitude, Gentiles, Pilate and Herod, sacrificing Jesus. So they took up Jonah, they raised up Christ, cast him forth into the sea, nailed him to the cross, and the sea ceased from her raging. God's anger was fulfilled. It is finished. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. That word exceedingly first appeared back in verse 10 and now it's found again in verse 16. This is wonderful. It is possible these guys got saved also. Although some commentaries suggest this was a one-off event, we don't know. But nonetheless, the Lord heard their prayers. He spared them. They probably arrived safe and sound to land and were able to offer a sacrifice, verse 16. And on top of that, make vows. Incredible. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Over in Isaiah it says how my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. This account of a fish, a great fish, is mocked, ridiculed, scoffed by just about everybody. Most Christians no longer want to hold to this as being a literal account of a literal miracle. And the Lord will use an event like this, a story like this. An historical event like this to really test people's faith. This goes back to the foolishness of the Lord. Preaching is foolishness to people. I'm sure there are people listening in around the world today who are thinking this is foolish. A guy's on his feet preaching from an old Bible about a story written almost 900 years before Christ. Little evidence to substantiate Jonah's existence. But of course, who would uphold his existence? Jesus Christ, of course. Now the Lord, again, Yah, Jehovah. Same word that the mariners have been using to communicate with the eternal God. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish 
to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish. Three days and three nights. Go to Matthew chapter 12. So on its own, if you had just this one account, you might say it's not true. You might say it's a fairy tale. You may ridicule it, and I say most people do. But you've got a problem, because if you go to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has quite a bit to say about Jonah, which again means dove. Dove. And of course, Christ has dove's eyes. Song of Solomon 1.15. One more time, all these prophets, all these kings, all types of Christ. Good or bad, right or wrong, they are all types of Christ. Matthew 12.38. Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. They've seen many signs. They must have had signs coming out to their ears. But the Jew is entitled to see a sign. The Jews' nation began with signs and wonders back in Exodus. Master, not rabbi. Master, not Lord. Never once would call him Lord, like Judas Iscariot. We would see a sign from thee, like another sign. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Ah, they say Jonas. That character, way back in the Old Testament, Jonas, Jonah, Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the hearts of the earth. Whale. I got a comment left on my Twitter channel a few weeks ago. Keep your hand there and go to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, almost ridiculing that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. And this person said, a whale is not a fish, a fish is not a whale. Well, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 has the following to say from verse 21 and God created great whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after his kind and God saw that it was good so whales are found here with every living creature verse 21 like fishes large and small and the term whale from memory appears only once in the Old Testament here and only once in the New Testament Matthew chapter 12. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, signs and wonders. Adultery not physical, but spiritual. And there shall no sign be given to it. And yet they've seen many, many, but no more. But the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days... And three nights in a whale's belly, not just a fish, a whale, a whale. Jesus tells you what sort of fish it was. Whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And we will unpack this a lot more in the coming weeks. 41. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. So the men of Nineveh, verse 41, shall rise in judgment, great white throne, with this generation, those that he's speaking to, and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Imagine a Jew hearing this for the first time. You mean to tell me those pagans that would worship gods, sacrifice their own children, conspire evil plots against God, would exploit the helpless, were cruel in war, guilty of idolatry, prostitution, and witchcraft? You mean to tell me they're going to condemn us well yeah he would say that pharisees wouldn't go into the kingdom but harlots would tax collectors would because such people would repent but the pharisees had no interest in repenting 42 the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it 
For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. So you can't miss it, can you? Sheba, Gentile, Ninevites, Gentile, Solomon, Jew, Jesus, Jew. She wasn't invited, but she made it all the way to Solomon at her own expense, I might add. That went down well with the Lord. The Jews were invited, but wouldn't enter, wouldn't receive him. It says how he, how he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Uh, to as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. So 41 again, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it. Why? Because they repented. They repented. They believed. They repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Meaning Jesus, of course. The queen of the south, Sheba, shall rise up in the judgment with this generation, great white throne, and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. So one more time. She traveled with a caravan to see Solomon. She fell over herself when she met him type of christ during the thousand year reign of course but she wasn't invited she took the initiative picture of a gentile today taking initiative to believe on the lord jesus christ the jews on the other hand a bit like jonah wouldn't do what they were told to do wouldn't receive christ and therefore when the great white throne comes along they're going to be destroyed damned and the gentiles ninevites and sheba are going to be rewarded so before we get to jonah chapter 2 I want to spend a few moments, if I may, adding a bit more meat to the bone when it comes to Jonah and give you some facts and figures. D.K. Stewart wrote a book called Hosea-Jonah. came out in 1987 and he said, The body's ability to live on small amounts of oxygen, though normally unconsciously, in cold water is something medically well established. So, if you want to take the view that Jonah survived the fish or survived three days and three nights in the heart of the fish the heart of the earth in the gut of the whale and I'll discuss that more probably next Sunday then you have somebody to go to DK Stewart scientifically possible like I say to survive inside of a fish for three days and three nights the world's greatest writer authority on whales fishes is Charles Bell Emerson and he also reaffirmed what D.K. Stewart said. So, one more time, it is possible to be swallowed by a huge fish, a whale. Categorize it as you wish to do so. And if you were to be swallowed by a huge fish, whale, you could survive. Also, whales resurface for air, giving their victims much needed relief. So keep that in mind, because it's worth just uh, being aware of such facts. After the talking snake, Genesis chapter 3. Jonah and the whale is mocked, scuffed, and ridiculed. Jonah chapter 1. Go back to verse 3 again, if you will, please. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I went down to Joppa, and he found his ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it, to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Distance from Joppa to Tarshish is 2,500 miles. 2,500 miles, that's quite a distance. I may be wrong when I say this, and I'll be corrected after the service if I am, but from memory, Tarshish isn't only southern Spain, but I think it's Malaga, and it's near Gibraltar. Even today, controversial waters. So for Jonah to board a boat, go 2,500 miles from the presence of the Lord, really does underline his anguish and disgust toward the Assyrians. A bit like Jesus, he would be anguished, 
and disgusted towards our sin. It says how he went to the cross despising the shame. So Jonah, type of Jesus. You can't miss it, of course. Whereas Jonah did no miracles, Jesus did. Jonah showed no compassion, Jesus did. But nevertheless, Jonah hated the idea of going to sinful people, whereas Jesus Christ embraced the idea of going to sinful people. Verse 8 again from chapter 1. Then said they unto him, this will be the mariners from verse 5, professional fishermen, like the apostles, they knew the waters inside out, and he's been on the boat probably for a few moments, and already they've hit choppy waters. Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? Keep your hand there, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's my belief that Jonah wasn't only a backslider, wasn't only a radical when it came to being a Jew and a hater of the Gentiles, but it's my belief he was, in a sense, undercover. Because if you think of John chapter 4, when Jesus Christ met the woman at the well, she knew straight away that he was a Jew, based on how he was dressed. Jews, like today, religious Jews, like today, dress a particular way. You can spot a Jew today, if he's orthodox, you can spot a papist, you can spot a vicar, you can spot religious people by the way they dress. So for the gentleman to ask him four questions from Jonah 1.8 would suggest that not only had he tried to run from the Lord, a distance, like I say, of 2,500 miles, from Joppa, a Philistine port, to Tarshish, modern-day Spain, but on top of that, he is dressed like everybody else. He wants to blend in. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. Paul was a learned man, incidentally. He knew at least three languages. His knowledge has never been matched. He remains a one-off. But here, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. The Greeks loved wisdom. And of course, wisdom means lover of knowledge. And ancient Greeks have always rejoiced in their knowledge of wisdom. But of course their wisdom comes from man. Whereas Paul's came from God. Declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you. Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. When I came to you I had no interest in anything else apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. Go back to Jonah chapter 1. So it's interesting that the mariners... Could have been Philistines, we discussed that last week, in which case they worshipped Dagon, the fish god, half fish, <coughs> half men, or they may have been pagans in general, and if they were pagans in general, they worshipped Baal. But for the first time in their lives, they are really hitting choppy waters. They probably thought, what have we done wrong? We worship Dagon every day, we are very religious, we give tithes, we do this, we do that, going back to the Pharisee in the Gospel of Luke, I pray twice a week. I do this and I do that, very self-righteous, I don't commit sin. And another guy comes in, a tax collector was it, and he wouldn't even look up to heaven. Beats his chest, and it says he went home justified. So four questions are put to him. What is your occupation? Doesn't answer that. Whence comest thou? They couldn't place him. His clothing was just like theirs. He was able to blend in. He's a backslider. What is thy country? And of what people art thou? They're trying to categorize him. I remember years ago being told a story about one of our parish priests and he would say this, he would say, when I first meet somebody, the first thing I want to know is what do you do for a living? Nobody ever asked him that question, incidentally. 
But he always asked such a question. He wanted to categorise the people in question. And once he knew what such a person did for a living, he had no interest after that. So, of course, if you were an accountant, he was all over you like a rash. If you were a solicitor or a lawyer, if you were a barrister, if you were an architect, if you were a surveyor, he wanted to know all about you because you could help the church, you see. You can make the church a lot of money. But nonetheless, these men are wanting to work out who this man, Jonah, is, meaning dove. And again, Jonah means dove's eyes. My love has dove's eyes. In type, picturing Jesus Christ, his eyes were pure eyes. I guess dove's eyes would mean he doesn't behold the evil, but he's only focused on the good, of course. Fascinating. 16 again. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. Keep your hand there, and go to Genesis chapter 22. It's possible that these mariners got saved. Once their ship arrived at ports, and I would imagine they went back to Joppa, got off their boat, got on their knees, and prayed to Jehovah, like when the Apostle Paul was travelling, was it to Malta? And when he got there, he got on his knees and gave the Lord thanks. Genesis 22, Genesis 22, look at verse 18. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Always the will of the Lord for mankind to be saved. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants all men everywhere to repent. And in thy seed shall all nations, all the nations, not just the Jews, all the nations of the earth be blessed, be blessed, be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So it's somewhat unusual for Jonah to be so rebellious, a real bone of contention for the Jews to witness to the Gentiles. But that was always their remits, of course. Go to Jeremiah chapter 18. If you are a Christian, you should preach as and when you can. And if you can't preach, you should share the gospel as and when you can. Uh, leave tracks on your travels. Patrick gave himself a goal maybe 20 years ago. Jeremiah 18, please. Jeremiah 18. To leave out at least 10 tracks a day. And rain or shine, he's out. And I mean rain or shine. Uh, winter, uh, spring, summer, autumn. Makes no difference to him. He's out and about. And the Lord will bless him abundantly for that. Jeremiah 18. I saw a street preacher a while ago reading from a tablet on the street. And I thought I like the idea of that. <laughs> I've got an old Bible. Sometimes my pages are stuck together. Uh, Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18. Look at verse 7. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced. Turn from their evil. I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. So it's a reoccurring theme. He would say to Abraham. If I, if I find ten righteous in Sodom. I will spare the entire city. But he couldn't find ten. He couldn't find nine. He couldn't find eight. He couldn't find seven. He couldn't find six. He couldn't find five. He couldn't find four. He just about managed to find three. And out of the three. One being locked had to be dragged out. And his two daughters went with him. Jonah chapter 1. Look at 17 again please. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. D.K. Stewart says that's correct. 
Charles Bell Emerson says that's correct. Both scholars say a man can survive inside of a fish. So don't scoff it. If you think of Genesis, the serpent seduces Eve, speaks to Eve. She listens to him. And as a result, she falls. Her husband listens to her. And as a result, he falls. But here's a thought. Some of you Darwinists. Is it possible that before man evolved from the animal world, is it possible that animal could speak? Is it possible that animals were able to speak like humans can? I listened to a sermon a while ago, an Orthodox Jew of all people, and I was going to listen to it again just to refresh what he said, but it was very interesting. And what he basically said was this, that for you Darwinists out there, you laugh at Satan as a snake speaking to Eve. That's something which you like to rip and have a good laugh about. And after that, it's going to be Jonah in the fish and people like to ridicule that, like I say. But is it possible? Is it plausible? Is it probable that animals, before they fell, could walk and also speak? If you are a Darwinist, of course. I'm not a Darwinist, I'm a creationist. But he had a good point there. And as he was making that point, his audience went very quiet. Just a food for thought. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish. Three days and three nights. Go to Job chapter 12. Job chapter 12. I want to, if I may, for this morning, look at some very important verses which all point directly and indirectly to the sovereignty of the Lord. Types and shadows, similitudes, as we refer to such. David is a type of Jesus. He would say they pierced my hands and my feet. And of course, you know that uh, David was never crucified. He's speaking for Jesus. He's speaking on behalf of Jesus. Joseph had brothers that hated him and they sold him out. It's a picture of the Jews who crucified Christ the first time. By the end of Genesis, he's been reconciled to his brothers. They come weeping on his shoulder. He forgives them. That's a picture of Jesus at the second advent being received by the believing remnants. There's so many types and shadows in scripture. Uh, Job chapter 12. Job chapter 12. But when it comes to the fish, when it comes to the whale, I want to look at that this morning. Job chapter 12. Uh, I've got a lot of verses marked up here. Job chapter 12. Look at verse 6. The tabernacles of robbers prosper, and they that provoke God are secure, into whose hand God bringeth abundantly. But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee. Interesting. Going back to my hypothesis. Going back to our Darwinist friends that believe that beasts were able to speak, were able to communicate. And of course, you know, during the thousand year reign, that's just what is going to occur. But ask now the beasts and they shall teach thee and the fowls of the air and they shall tell thee. Fowls, incidentally, are types of devils. Matthew chapter 13. So when you consult a clairvoyance, if you do the Ouija board, that means ya ya, incidentally. Yah, yah, what would Satan say? Yea, hath God said? Or if you go to a medium or witch, you are consulting a familiar spirit. Tarot cards. cards. But fowls of the air in type are devils, but also here in reference to literal birds. And they shall tell thee. Look at verse 8. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee. And the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. Fascinating. Go to Zephaniah chapter 1. So the Philistines, like I say, worship Dagon, the fish god. And Jehovah, to really ridicule them, would send a fish to rescue Jonah. And it's quite possible that the mariners saw the fish. 
coming up out of the sea like Jaws. Had a breakdown, couldn't believe that their god had surfaced, a bit like Leviathan. And he probably thought, is the fish coming for us? No, he's coming for Jonah. And I think they probably saw it. Zephaniah chapter 1, Zephaniah chapter 1. Look at verse 8. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice, that I will punish the princes and the king's children, and all such as are clothed with strong apparel. Keep your hand there and go to Revelation chapter 19. I will pull all these verses together and uh, aim to make this relevant to our study, which, like I say, is probably going to run another seven or eight weeks. Looking at Jonah, there's no such thing as a simple Bible study. If you read the Bible regularly, if you take the time to make notes, your knowledge will never cease. It says how the increase of his government shall never cease. It will always be growing. It will never run out. And that's found over in uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 9. <laughs> Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Look at verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven. Fowls again. Going back to what he just looked at from Job. Birds flying in the midst, middle of heaven. Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Found in Zephaniah 1.8. Context, second advent. Look at 18. That you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond. Both small and great. Go back to Zephaniah. Zephaniah 1. Look at verse 9. In the same day also will I punish all those that leap on a threshold. Which fill their masters houses with violence and deceit. That's what the Ninevites did. They were violent, deceitful, wicked, deplorable. Going back to man at his best state is vanity. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why callest thou me good? None is good but one, that is God. Look at verse 10. And it shall come to pass in that day, second advent, saith the Lord, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate, fish gate, and an howling from the second, and a great crashing from the hills. So Dagon is going to make a return. Today you think of the Church of Rome, you think of bishops, cardinals, popes wearing mitres, and of course those mitres are... Symbols of Dagon the fish god. It's like a full circle. Go back to Luke chapter 11. There are at least two references from the synoptic gospels concerning Jonah. For memory he's not found in Hebrews 11. Which doesn't mean he wasn't saved. It just means he's not found in Hebrews 11. But in Luke 11. Look at 29 again. And when the people were gathered thick together. Christ never had problems drawing a crowd. One moment the crowd were congratulating him. The next moment they were condemning him. When the people were gathered thick together. He began to say this is an evil generation. Now read this carefully. They seek a sign. And there shall no sign be given it. But the sign of Jonas the prophet. Jonah was a Jew. Going to the Ninevites. Gentile. But keep reading. 30. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites. So shall also the son of man be to this generation. He's saying, you people, you may be Jews, but you're no different to the Ninevites. Keep your hand there and go to Acts chapter 4. Talk about scripture with scripture and talk about what goes around, comes around. You reap what you sow. For the Old Testament, Jonah was forced to preach to the Ninevites. Like I say, that for him was 
a picture of anguish and disgust. Christ will go to the cross, despising of the shame. But it's fascinating that in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, in verse 23, we read the following. And being let go, they went to their own company concerning the apostles who had just been beaten, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. Chief priests and elders. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Like Jonah, I worship the Lord God who made the sea and the earth. And here, same sort of a thing. Thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David hast said, why did the heathen rage? How about that? The heathen rage concerning the Jews. As far as God is concerned, the Jews are like the heathen. The Jews are like the Ninevites. How about that? And the people imagine vain things. 26. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That also has a future application. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, a couple of Gentiles, with the Gentiles, their minions, and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So Jesus, and go back to Luke chapter 11, is basically saying that what Jonah did to the Ninevites, which incidentally resulted in mass conversions, I am doing to you, which is not going to result in mass conversions, at least not until after the day of Pentecost, of course. When the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but, 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 the sign of Jonas, Jonah the prophet, which again is ridiculed, going back to the talking snake, and he's going to use it nonetheless to see who believes him. And those that believe him will be saved, those that don't will be damned. For as Jonas was given unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation like heathen, the Jews are pictured here as being heathen, reprobate, unclean, unworthy, hearts are filthy, so on and so forth. The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation <coughs> and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. What would Paul say? I didn't come with wisdom. But here she's coming to see the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, her greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Because they're pagans. She came to Solomon. Got a blessing. Jonah went to the Ninevites. They got a blessing. Jesus goes to the Jews. They don't get a blessing. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold a greater. Then Jonas is here. Go to Daniel. Chapter 9. Judgments. There are at least two in scripture. Great white throne. Uh, for the lost for the most parts. And also you've got the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, if you ever speak to a holiness Christian. Always ask the question, if Christians don't sin, if Christians cannot sin, and they believe that people don't sin after they are saved, why have a judgment seat? What's the purpose of having a judgment seat if Christians don't sin? Christians do sin, they shouldn't, but they do. But this judgment found over in uh, Luke chapter 11 is picturing the great white throne judgment. Incidentally, during the judgments of the great white throne judgments, those that get saved during the tribulation and those that get saved during the thousand year reign 
are going to be uh, resurrected to get rewards. So there will be some people present that are saved. And that's why it says your name isn't written. Contrast that to whose names are written. Or if you go into like a fire. But there will be people whose names are written. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse 9. I beheld to the thrones were cast down. And the Ancient of Days did sit. They sat and watched him. They sat at the cross parting his garments. They observed him. They got the deck chairs out as it were. They mocked him as he hung on the cross. If he be the son of God let him come down from the cross so on and so forth. Is he calling for Elijah? Let's see if Elijah comes for him. Again, you reap what you sow. They sat and watched him die on the cross. Pilate sat and judged him. Herod sat and judged him. I beheld, to the thrones were cast down, brought down, placed down, and the Ancient of Days did sit. Sit. It's now his time and his turn to sit and ask you some questions. Whose garment was white as snow, like dove's eyes, purity, and the hair of his head like pure wool. In the UK, high court judges, when they meet to hear a case, wear a wig. They still do it. Scotland, I think, still does it. Wales, Northern Ireland, still do it. They do it in England. In fact, I think, even in Commonwealth countries, yeah. they still do it. Yes. I think I remember watching on the news, Zimbabwe, some years ago, during the bad old days. A lot of kangaroo courts at that time. A lot of white farmers were being punished and murdered. And the community said nothing in their defence. Had it been the other way around, there'd be riots in the streets. And some of those black judges in Zimbabwe were wearing white wigs. Picturing their authority. They get it from the Bible. But they don't know the Bible. And yet they get it from the Bible anyway. <clears throat> I beheld to the thrones were cast down. And the Ancient of Days did sit. Whose garments was white as snow. And the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame. Hellfire. And his wheels as burning fire. Wheels, think of Ezekiel, you think of Zechariah, wheels within wheels, the spirits inside of the wheels, and yet wheels are inorganic material. Who can understand that particular verse? 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A great tempest wrought. The sea was rocky. Jonah was cast into the sea. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Ancient of days. Thousand, thousands ministered unto him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, ready to go, and the books were opened. So, all those verses needed to be read just to reaffirm that the Lord is going to deal with sin. Go to Luke uh, chapter 13. There was no reason for Jonah to be so spiteful, so contentious. Yes, it was a bone of contention, like I say, for Jews to even think about Gentiles being saved and yet i gave you genesis 22 i gave you jeremiah 18 this isn't just new testament this is old testament luke 13 luke 13 look at verse 28 jesus christ speaking there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see abraham and isaac and jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of god new earth and you yourselves unsaved jews thrust out and they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Incidentally, east, west, north, south pictures the tabernacle. But we will say this as Gentiles north, east, south, west. That's what I was always taught at school. Never eat shredded wheat. But the Jew, based on the tabernacle, 
which is a picture of the universe. He goes east. He goes west. He goes north. He goes south. So you see time after time that it was always the will of the Lord, pre-Christ, post-Christ, to save as many people as he can. Go to Matthew uh, chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Look at verse 4. A wicked an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. Keep your hand there and go to Luke chapter 2. The Jews are entitled to a sign. Their nation would begin with signs and wonders. Look at verse 34. And Simeon blessed them, and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall, and rising again, of men in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against, spoken against, they would reject the sign. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So the sign was given, go back to Matthew 16, they would reject it, because that's what was prophesied that they would do. Isaiah 6, go to the Jews, Isaiah, preach to the Jews. They have eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear. But go anyway, preach to them. 16.17 And Jesus answered, and said unto him, Blessed art thou Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah. Jonah. Jonah. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my father which is in heaven. Simon's father is Jonah. Not the Jonah, of course. But it could be that Simon's parents, or Simon's grandparents, decided to name their son after Jonah. The prophet. Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, concerning his deity, of course. Go to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, John uh, chapter 1. The more you read the Bible, the more you realise what you don't really understand. It's like a circle, isn't it? John 1, uh, 42, and he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Go to John 21. John 21. So obviously, uh, Simon's father isn't the Jonah, who lived almost 900 years BC. But it does appear, and I'm going to suggest this, that Simon's parents thought very highly of Jonah. And Simon Peter was a hothead. On one occasion got a sword out, almost killed a man. And I'm sure had Jonah been able to kill the Ninevites, he would have done. So the spirit of Jonah is found in, this, in, in, uh, in Simon. Simon Peter. Elijah, his spirit is found in John the Baptist. John 21. John 21. Look at verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas. Why would he call him that? Just call him Peter, call him Cephas. No, Simon, son of Jonas. My sign to the Jews will be rejected. Your sign to the Jews will be rejected. Lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. 15. Feed my sheep. Verse 16. One more time. 17. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, 
Lovest thou me? Peter was grieved, because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Fascinating. So he looks at Simon, and he zooms in on uh, his full title. And there's one more from John 21. Uh, John 21. Look at verse, verse 4. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have you any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the nets on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishers. Fishers. Fishermen, I'll make you fishers of men. Going back to the mariners, professional fishermen, taking Jonah, or so they thought, to Tarshish, modern day Spain. And the Jews would go to their own people, and then to the ends of the world. 8. And the other disciples came in the little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, a great whale, great fishes, an hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Supernatural, the fish were all preserved. Jonah was preserved in the hearts of the whale three days and three nights. Twelve, Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. Come and dine, and none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh, and taketh bread, and giveth them, and fish likewise. Never mind Dagon, never mind the fish gate, never mind the Pope with his mitre, worshipping Dagon, a carryover from the Philistine generation. Here Christ is a type of Jonah, but a much greater type, of course. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples. After that, he was risen from the dead. I'll give you one more, and we will close. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. I've got so many notes here, and no time to read everything. Uh, John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Look at verse 52. They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look. For out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Wrong. Jonah was from Galilee. Gath. Hepha. 2 Kings 14.25. Hosea may also have been from Galilee. The Jews didn't know their Bibles. The Jews didn't believe the scripture. Going back to John 5. You speak about Moses. He wrote about me. But how would you believe on me if you don't believe on Moses? So they didn't know where Jonah was from. And he was from uh, Galilee. Also, Hosea was from Galilee, but Jesus Christ wasn't from Galilee, of course. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, but Galilee, Capernaum, would be his headquarters. So the Jews, so-called experts in their law, didn't know what the scriptures taught. And just a couple of days ago, I got a comment left on my Instagram channel. Some papists were uh, spamming the channel, posting numerous comments, making a nuisance of themselves. And they said, uh, well, the Bible's got lots of errors. You can't trust the Bible. Your King James is full of errors, so on and so forth. And I thought, but doesn't your Vulgate have errors? Didn't Jerome, one of your fathers, say that the Vulgate had errors? I believe he did. And you'll never hear a papist criticise the Mass. 
Never once will they say, well, the Mass doesn't fit with Scripture. They don't care about the Scripture. My point being, they don't know the Scriptures. Or the Spirit that is connected with the Scripture, they don't know Jesus Christ, they are lost. They are ignorant, as the Jews here. Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Wrong. Wrong about Jonah, wrong about Jesus, wrong about Hosea. And the Church of Rome are also wrong about Jesus, the Scripture, and how to be saved. And next week we will return to Jonah and continue working through Jonah. But next week, Lord willing, Jonah chapter 2. So, Father in heaven, we seek your blessing this morning for Resurrection Sunday. We give you thanks for your blessings and grace. We pray for your guidance as we continue to work through the book of Jonah. It's very fortuitous, Lord, that we are looking at the resurrection passage from Jonah chapter 2 on a Resurrection Sunday. We come to you, Lord, as students of Scripture, not able to do anything without thy mercy and grace. And we pray you will fill us with the Holy Ghost and be with us this morning and throughout the rest of the book of Jonah. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen and amen. amen. Jonah chapter 1, very briefly. Jonah chapter 1. Look at verse 15 again, please. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. Keep your hand there and go to Genesis chapter 1. Sea is always spoken in the feminine. They say she was a wonderful ship. She got us from here to there. They say the sea can be fierce, ferocious. The sea is always spoken of in the feminine. And you may wonder why. Well, Genesis chapter 1, Scripture with Scripture tells you, verse 20. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. So the sea brings forth the living creatures, fishes, whales, marine life, breed, and give birth in the sea. Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature, that hath life and god created great whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind 24 and god said let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind and so it was so one more time the reason why sea or marine life or mariners today speak of the sea in the feminine because from the sea comes life Jonah chapter 2, please. Jonah chapter 2. Look at verse 1. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cry by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. Most of your new Bibles will change the word hell to Sheol or the pit or the grave. And the moment they do that, you... Uh, uh, you are unable to find the cross-reference to what is going on. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God. He has a relationship with the Lord his God. <clears throat> Jonah was a saved man. Yes, he was a backslider. And he'd have to be dragged, literally, to Nineveh to preach the gospel to them. The Lord would almost kill him. But he was. He was. He was a saved man. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. Going back to verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jesus Christ tells you it was a whale. And I gave you some quotes last week from leading experts concerning the reality that a person can survive inside of a fish and come out and recall of the story. So you have two options. The first option would be that Jonah survived it. Unconscious, no doubt, but was able to survive it. I don't go for that. I go for the other option that he died. Why would Christ point to Jonah and say, well, I'm going to be like him. Although Jonah survived the fish, 
I won't survive death. I will die. I will physically die. No, Jonah must have died for Jesus to say he was a type of Jonah or Jonah was a type of Jesus. One more time. Two, one. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. He's conscious. He's able to speak to the Lord. He has a relationship with the Lord, his God, saved man. And said, verse 2, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. This is Jesus speaking. Three days and three nights he goes into the hearts of the earth. We are coming to the end of Easter weekend. Today is Resurrection Sunday. We believe he was literally dead for three days and three nights. And very early, around probably 5.30 a.m. on the first day of the week, being Sunday like today, Christ comes up out of the tomb. He rises from the dead. The stone is rolled away to allow the apostles in, not to allow the Lord Jesus Christ out. I cry by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me. He heard me. Out of the belly of hell, and I mean hell, cried I, and thou heardest my voice. Keep your hand there and go to Isaiah chapter 29. I've just finished reading Isaiah last night, and I will begin Jeremiah tonight. My goal has always been to read the scriptures each and every day. There's really no excuse not to do so. We all find time to surf the nets. We all find time to read the papers online or watch a video or two online or watch television or surf the net. I mean, come on, don't be so pious. You may not have a television, but I'm sure you have the internet. I'm sure you have a laptop, an iPhone or a tablet and you surf the net and you enjoy some of your old shows. Of course you do. Don't be so pious. Isaiah 29, Isaiah 29. So there's no excuse not to read the Bible. And the more we read the scriptures, the more we grow and understand more about our blessed Saviour, who, again, like I say, rose from the dead 2,000 years ago today. Isaiah 29, Isaiah 29. Uh, look at verse 4. And thou shalt be brought down, and shalt speak out of the ground. And thy speech shall be low out of the dust. And thy voice shall be as of one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground. And thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. There's a picture of somebody who has died and gone into the ground. And he's able to speak. He's able to talk. He's able to relay what he is feeling one more time. And thou shalt be brought down and shalt speak out of the ground. And thy speech shall be low out of the dust. And thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit. Like a clairvoyant. Mm. Visit a witch. I've got your late uncle here. I have your late aunt here. I have your late mother here. Your late father here. It was Paul McCartney. When he married his second wife, decided to visit a clairvoyant. And Paul McCartney, who I'm told sister is a saved Jew, went to a clairvoyant with his second wife, whose name escapes me. Heather. Heather, Heather Mills. And they visited a witch, and the witch said to Paul and Heather, I've got Linda here. That was his first wife. And she says, it's okay. If you want to marry Heather, she gives you her blessing. Five or six years later, the couple got divorced. Speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit, that hath a familiar spirit, out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. So the dead die, they go into the ground, and they speak. If you don't believe me, go to Luke chapter 16. Many people say, well, that's the Old Testament. We are living under the New Testament. We're living under grace, absolutely. And I always say that, so I won't uh, change my mind when it comes to that. But in Luke chapter 16... Scripture with scripture, we have another account. Now again, you've got two options. Jonah either survived and came out at the other end, which is held by most apostates and liberals, or the other view is what we hold at this ministry, that he died, like Jesus died. And the fish is a picture of the earth. And after three days and three nights in the hearts 
of the fish. And after three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, Jesus comes up out of the tomb and Jonah is spewed out of the fish's mouth onto dry land. Picturing Christ the second advent when he comes back and spits the mountain. Luke 16, Luke 16, look at verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. This isn't a parable, incidentally. This is a literal account of two people that probably died around the same time. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. Not Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, a different Lazarus. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died. And was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Hell under your feet. The Jews call it Sheol. We call it hell. But it's the same place. It's under your feet. Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell. And I mean hell. Not Hades. Your new Bibles change this to Hades. It makes no sense to you. Put it this way. The next time you get into an argument with somebody, tell them to go to Hades. Mm. Or say, what the Hades are you talking about? They have no idea what you're speaking about. You change that to hell, they know exactly what you're talking about. You hear somebody say, get out of here, go to hell and back, or I've been to hell and back. They know exactly what you're talking about. There's power in a negative word such as that. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off. He can see him. He can speak, going back to Isaiah 29 and in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments and seeth abraham afar off they're in the same place but keep reading and lazarus in his bosom abraham's bosom the apostle john would lean on the breast of the lord jesus christ picturing intimacy picturing sanctuary 24 and he cried and said father abraham have mercy on me and send lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and call my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. He's giving orders. He died as he lived. Giving orders. Weeping and wailing. Gnashing of teeth. That was one of the Lord's most infamous statements. Concerning the unsaved dead. But Abraham said. Son remember that thou in thy lifetime. Receivest thy good things. And likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted. And thou art tormented. Incidentally this is the first death. Not the second death. The second death, it gets even worse. And beside all this, between us and you, there was a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us. That would come from thence. Out goes purgatory. You can't pray your way out of purgatory. Once you die, if you die without the Lord, you are forever without the Lord. Then he said, I pray thee, Father Abraham, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. We have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. We don't need prophets today, apostles today. An apostle is somebody who was sent. An apostle is somebody who saw the Lord Jesus Christ. An apostle is somebody who was commissioned personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. And a prophet was somebody who was commissioned to tell the future. The apostle John is the final prophet. There are no prophets today. There are no apostles today. But what he's saying in context is they got the Old Testament. So that's not enough for them. Nothing will be enough for them. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, nay, Father Abraham. No, Father Abraham. He's arguing. No, Father Abraham. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Jesus comes up out of the tomb. Made no difference as far as Pilate was concerned or 
Caiaphas or Annas, it made no difference as far as Josephus was concerned. 2,000 years on, most Jews still don't believe on him. Makes a difference. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded. Though one rose from the dead. Go back to Jonah. Jonah 2.1 Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. He's dead, he's able to speak. Isaiah 29, Luke 16. First death, not second death. And said, I cry by reason of mine affliction. Jesus Christ is speaking. But Jonah is speaking. But Jesus Christ is speaking. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? David is speaking. But Jesus Christ is speaking. The book of Romans, Paul wrote it. The book of Romans, the Holy Ghost wrote it. It's impossible to comprehend, but it's a fact. I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I. Hell, and I mean hell, two parts to hell. Luke 16, the righteous are in one compartment, if you will. The unrighteous in another. The saved cannot cross to the unsaved, and the unsaved cannot cross to the saved. You die without Christ, you burn forever. That's all there is to it. And thou heardest my voice, my voice. So in type, Jonah is dead in the belly of the fish. Jesus is dead in the heart of the earth. Jesus dies on the cross. His spirit goes back to the Father. His body remains in the tomb for three days and three nights. Probably Wednesday till early Sunday morning. Three days and three nights. That's a long time, three days and three nights. I mean, three hours would be long enough to go to hell for most people. Three minutes would be long enough to go to hell for most people. He spends three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah is in the heart of the fish, a whale, a type of Leviathan, for three days and three nights. Leviathan is a type of Satan. The Apostle Paul says Satan can destroy your flesh. First Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, you've got a save men who's having sex with his mother could be biological she could be a stepmother but it's still incest and he says to the church in corinth put him out of the church that satan can destroy the flesh not the soul the flesh that he would repent the guy repents second corinthians tells you that imagine being in a church today and you got a guy in your church who's having sex with his mother and it's common knowledge maybe she too is a member of the church Half the church don't care, the other half do. And eventually the guy repents. Could you imagine him returning to the church with his tail between his legs? Imagine that. Comes back, sits in the pews. Most people would have a difficult time receiving him back. But the point is, Satan can whip a Christian. Leviathan was sent to swallow up Jonah. And the Lord turns something negative into something positive. The whipping of Satan can bring a Christian back into fellowship with the Lord. You understand what I'm saying, I hope. Types and shadows, similitudes. Go back to verse 1. I'm not quite through yet. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out to the fish's belly. He's died, but he's conscious. Luke 16, Isaiah 29. That's what I hold to. That's what I believe. Or turn it around. You say he has survived the fish and he's able to speak to the Lord. If he survives the fish, then Christ's analogy doesn't really work, does it? Because if Christ didn't die, we are still in our sins and our faith is, is irrelevant. And we will perish because Christ hasn't died hasn't been buried and hasn't been raised up from the dead. So Jonah dies, Jesus dies, but they both are resurrected. And said, I cry by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. He's still whining, going back to chapter one. I can't bear to, uh, to preach to the Ninevites, Lord. Uncircumcised, unclean, unworthy, filthy reprobates. They have sex with animals. They do this, they do that. They are wicked, they are disgusting. They are the lowest of the low. And the Lord says, get down there and preach to them. Some of Christ's best friends were prostitutes, tax collectors, immoral people, the sorts of people that most Christians today wouldn't want to spend five minutes with. 
I cry by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me. He heard him because he was saved. And in type the father heard the son because he was his only begotten son. Out of the belly of hell cried I. And thou heardest my voice. But thou hast cast me into the deep. In the midst of the sea. And the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Go to Psalm 42 please. When we finish the book of uh, Jonah. Lord willing we will go to the Psalms. I am looking forward to that very much. It's going to be the study of a lifetime. I think most people don't actually teach the Psalms doctrinally. Most people, most preachers, most teachers will read the Psalms, record the Psalms. But I don't think, I may be wrong, but I don't think anybody has ever gone through the Psalms, all 150, verse by verse. Maybe one preacher, actually, that comes to my mind, but I've never heard what he said or how he approached the Psalms. So my future project will be unique, and please pray for me. Psalm 42, Psalm 42. Look at verse 6. O oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan, and from the Hermonites, from the hill Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. It's like a storm. It's treacherous. It's rocky. If you go back to the late 1990s, a Russian submarine was around the Mediterranean area. It was called the Kursk. And it was a very sad story. This Russian submarine full of Russian sailors, mostly conscripts, getting paid, I think, $100 a day, something pretty poor uh, for what they were doing, incredibly dangerous work. And this Kursk, the Kursk, Russian Kursk with nuclear weapons on board, got into trouble. And basically, it started to sink. A mayday call went out. The Kremlin picked up the mayday call. Mayday, mayday. We are going down. Putin, at the time, was on holiday uh, in Kotsky, is it? Uh, what's that Russian resort? They have the Olympic Games. Kotsky or Kotsky, I forget the exact name of it. Refused to fly back to Moscow. And the Royal Navy said, we can be there. We can be there in two days. The Americans got involved. The Norwegians got involved. The Brits got there. Three days later, the Russians dragged their feet and they got their equipment out and they tried to get those Russian sailors out. They'd all drowned, all died. Putin sacrificed them. Why? Because it was embarrassing for him. It was embarrassing, it was embarrassing for him to turn to the West for help and those poor sailors died. But my point is this. They knew the waters. They were experts. And yet when a wave came, when they had oxygen problems, the boat, the ship, started to sink, and they drowned. Oh my God, verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. It's Jonah, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jonah. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan, and from the Hermonites, from the hill Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves, all thy waves, and thy billows, being in the sea, of course, are gone over me. Jonah, in the fish, three days and three nights, that uh, fish is going up, going down. Uh, most mammals most marine life can stay underwater for a long period of time your average submarine can spend months under the sea i got an email maybe last year from an american sailor and he said to me i download your messages and i listen to them under the sea deep under the sea i am in an american submarine those boats can go under the water for a long period of time but here deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts all thy waves and thy billows have gone over me yet the lord Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. Fish, open your mouth, spew him out. Lazarus, come forth, he came forth. 
The Holy Ghost would resurrect the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father would resurrect the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ would resurrect the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand what I'm saying? Yet the Lord, triune Lord, will command his loving kindness in the daytime and in the nights. And in the night his song shall be with me and my prayer unto the God of my life. Go back to Jonah. So Psalm 42 pictures Jonah in type. But of course Jesus is the greater than Jonah. Solomon is a king, but Jesus is king of kings, lord of lords. The temple was the highlight for the Jews, but Christ is lord of the temple. The Sabbath was given to the Jews as a sign, but Christ is greater than the Sabbath. Jonah 2.3 again. For thou hast cast me into the deep, not just in the sea itself, but into hell itself. In the midst of the seas, middle of the seas, all, all the floods compassed me about, surrounded me. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Keep your hand there and go to Luke chapter 8. I was hoping to do this in one reading, but I think we'll have to come back next Sunday and read again and really get into this piece of scripture. I was looking at a reference Bible a few nights ago and they were saying that Jonah was a trained poet. Basically that he was writing poetry. I don't believe that at all. I believe he literally died and he's explaining where he has gone. In type, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, most of your apostates, like I say, don't take these miracles literally. I'm told most seminaries will destroy people's faith in the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they do that, they relegate Jesus into the same league as other prophets, so-called. And when they do that, they've got nothing at all. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Look at verse 30. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? One of the maniacs, who wasn't wearing clothes, cutting himself, being a nuisance, hanging around, tombs, a picture of devil possession. What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. Legion means 6,000. 6,000 unclean spirits. One more time. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils, devils, not demons, devils were entered into him. This goes into devil possession, which we haven't got time to look at this morning. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. The deep. Go to Second Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11. If you think you are apostolic, if you think you are part of an apostolic ministry, if you think you have the gifts of the Holy Ghost, if you think you are smarter than, than, uh, than anybody else, more authentic than anybody else, then I'm going to show you something from Second Corinthians uh, chapter 11 and you tell me this sounds like you you tell me this sounds like your ministry you tell me if this is what you have experienced being apostolic second corinthians chapter 11 second corinthians chapter 11 look at verse 24 paul speaking of the jews five times received i 40 stripes save one that means that over paul's lifetime he was whipped 195 times 195 times. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In the deep. What did he see? Where did he go? He's not just swimming in the sea. He's gone somewhere. Book of Acts says he was left for dead. And after coming to himself, he walked out of the town and went back into the town. Where did he go? What did he see? A night and a day. Not just a few hours. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in pearls of waters, in pearls of robbers, in pearls by mine own countrymen, in pearls by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. That word peril 
devastating peril. I'm in great peril, about to perish. In perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often in hunger and in thirst. In weariness and painfulness, in watchings often in hunger and thirst. In fastings often, in cold and nakedness. So one more time, 24. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, three times I was beaten with rods. Once was I stoned, thrice, three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day, I've been in the deep, the deep, in the sea. But what does that mean? Does it mean he saw hell? It speaks about him knowing far more than we ever would know. He had greater wisdom than anybody I can think of. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Go back to Jonah chapter 2. For thou hast cast me into the deep. So obviously it's partly in reference to the sea. A fish lives in the sea, Genesis chapter 1. A whale lives in the sea. Sharks live in the sea. Such marine life breed in the sea, give birth in the sea. They bring forth their kind in the sea. Again, that's why it's referred to as she. She, not he, but she. In the midst of the seas, and the floods compass me about. All thy billows, and thy waves passed over me. Go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. So he goes into the ground. The Lord Jesus Christ, Jonah, goes into the ground via the whale, of course. And for three days and three nights, the Lord Jesus Christ is in hell. And I mean hell. Not Hades, which is a transliteration. Not Sheol, which is the Hebrew equivalent. But I mean hell. The rich man is in hell. Lazarus is in hell. Abraham is in hell. A conversation or two is taking place. Isaiah 29 also picks up on people speaking in hell. That's the first death, not the second. The second death is far more horrendous. Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, look at verse 5. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. James 2.10 says, if you don't keep part of the law, you've broken all of the law. You are basically banged to rights. You can't keep the law. The law won't save you. It will condemn you. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Out goes transubstantiation. Catholics like to consecrate the Mass every Sunday, every day of the week. They believe they can bring him down from heaven, put him on the altar, offer him to participants. That is a heresy, that is a blasphemy, that is foolishness. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. The priest can't do it, you can't do it. Or who shall descend into the deep, the deep, the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, and in thy heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. It's always in your heart. It's always in your mouth. Salvation is imminent. If you would appropriate the atonement. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart, that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, imputation, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Confess him publicly, like Nicodemus would eventually do. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. It's grace, it's a gift, 
is a God not of man. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich, and all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So one more time from verse 6. Who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. Nobody, of course. Who shall ascend into heavens? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Nobody, of course. He goes up once. He dies once. He will return once. To rule and reign for 1,000 years. He would taste death once for the sins of the world. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Hell is a terrible place. And that's why your new Bibles change it to Hades or Sheol or the pit. Uh, but hell is an awful place. If you go back to 1975, 76, 77, one of the greatest opera singers died. And she really was a great opera singer. She had a lot of uh, skill, charisma, a lot of female opera singers today look up to this particular woman. And for a long period of time, she was in a class of her own. A bit like Pavarotti, I suppose, or Sinatra, or some of the top stars today. And for many years, she had the world at her feet. So I'm speaking about Maria Callas, of course. She would have an abortion by Onassis. And towards the end of her life, she became a recluse. And that wasn't bad enough. She started to lose her voice. And that wasn't bad enough. After being dead for two or three weeks, her body was found. And that wasn't bad enough. The dogs had been eating her body to survive. Maria Callas, multimillionaire, played all over the world. And yet when she came to the end of her life, she died alone in her apartment in France. I think it may have been from memory. Paris. Yeah. Paris. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and nobody found her for two or three weeks. A couple of little poodles, I think. Chewing on her body, and Maria Callis died and went to hell forever. Was it worth it, Maria? Was it worth it? Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 1. In the beginning, time. In the beginning, in the beginning, being time, God created the heaven and the earth. Father, Son, and Spirits. In the beginning, time, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. There's that word again, deep. Face of the deep, the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be lights, and there was light. So you got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all working together concerning creation. The Father, Son, and Spirit all work together concerning resurrection. And the earth was without form and void. Not quite ready yet. He's molding it. He's a carpenter, you see. He's taking his time to create his universe. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. You go into the sea, it's pitch black, right? Those Russian sailors must have been terrified. Average age, 19, 20. Banging on the sub, praying, crying, cursing in Russian. Calls are going from the sub to Putin's beautiful resorts in uh, Hochi, Kochi. Sochi. Sochi, thank you, Sochi, where they held the Olympic Games some years ago, the Winter Olympic Games. He wouldn't move. He's a communist, you see. KGB leader, now so-called emperor of the world. The British said we can get a ship to the Kursk. The Americans said we can get a sub, a ship to the Kursk. The Norwegians and other countries said we can get a ship to the Kursk. And I think from memory, Britain got there first. Mm. Opened up the port, portal hole, port hole, that's what they call it. The portal hole, and you got a load of corpses. Young men, all dead, crying, weeping before they drowned. Awful way to die. And off to hell they go forever. But they're in the deep. They're in the deep. And I think, I think that sub is still on the seabed today. I think they left it there. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. The darkness couldn't comprehend the light. And the Spirit of God, Holy Ghost, moved upon the face of the waters. 
A bit like Leviathan, a bit like the fish. And God said, let there be light, type of Christ. And there was light. Go back to Jonah, please. And Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out to the fish's belly, positive. And said, I cry by reason of mine affliction. He has no affliction. He's still wallowing in his self-pity. I cry by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. But in type it's Jesus. And he heard me. Thou art my beloved son, hear ye him. Out of the belly of hell cried I. And thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas. And the floods compassed me about, and all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Third heaven. So again, it's in, in type. You've got two things going on. Jonah and Jesus. Jesus and Jonah. When Jonah wrote this, he had no idea that in type, he is prophesying, predicting the Lord's death. And on top of that, what would take place when Christ died. It's also interesting that had Jonah been an unsaved man, which some may suggest he was, would these verses come out of the mouth of an unsaved man? I don't think so. The rich man in hell was barking orders at Abraham. There was no humility there. If Jonah wasn't saved, he wouldn't be praying like this. These are the words of a saved man. Somebody was saved. Then I said, I'm cast out of thy sight temporarily. The father couldn't look upon the son. Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Around this time, Solomon's temple was up and running. You've got Elisha doing his miracles. Jonah could have been a contemporary of Elisha. So you got the temple in place, but the greater temple, third heaven, of course, I will look again toward thy holy temple. He's seeing the resurrection, of course. Christ is seeing his resurrection, his ascension. And he's also seeing the third temple, Revelation 11, which will never be destroyed. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. Bit of poetry there, perhaps. But of course, Jonah was in the heart of the fish, the belly of the fish, for three days and three nights. Fish eat, they swallow. It's not unusual for a fish to swallow weeds. So again, what you're reading, yes, it could be part, partly poetry, but it's also partly prophetical. It's literal. There's no need to spiritualize it. The waters compassed me about, surrounded me, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about, I'm boxed in. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption. O Lord, my God. I'll give you one more. Go to Isaiah uh, 61. Jesus said that how the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. The gates of hell would not prevail, would never overcome the church, the true church, of course. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Holy Ghost is upon me, being the Messiah. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings, good news. Unto the meek, he hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, first advent, to proclaim liberty to the captives, captives, first advent, captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. A bit like Abraham, he was saved, but he couldn't go to heaven upon death because Christ hadn't paid for the sins of the world. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, first advent, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God, second advent, a comma. Breaks down two dispensations, two advents, one comma. To comfort all that mourn, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Christ speaking, he's being anointed. And Isaiah is speaking, but Messiah is speaking. You see, all the prophets speak about Messiah and don't even realise it. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings, good news, 
unto the meek, those of the humble, waiting for him to come. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, like a physician, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Freedom, liberty, that's a good word. And the opening of the prison to them that are bound. First, death, not second death. There's nobody coming to rescue those who are suffering the second death. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all that mourn. Go back to Jonah. So the bars that he speaks about. Picturing hell. Abraham was there. The rich man was there. All the righteous dead were there. The unsaved were there. You can't come to us. We can't come to you. Isaiah says voices are speaking out to the ground. First death not second death. And the second death will just blow you away. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Look at verse 16 again if you will please. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And offered a sacrifice unto the Lord. And made vows. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. Let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay. So sometimes you can harmonize the Old Testament with the New. Not always very easy, but it can be done. Look at verse 17 again from Jonah chapter 1. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So, after the service last Sunday, we had a discussion, our little group, about whether or not Jonah was resuscitated or resurrected. If he was resuscitated, that has problems attached to it. If he was resurrected, that fits more in line with the narrative concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2, chapter 2, look at verse 6 again, please. Let's see if we can build on what actually happened to Jonah, which again means dove's eyes. Eyes that look at you, pure eyes that cannot behold evil. Eyes that stare at you, eyes that look straight through you, and yet innocent eyes. 2.6 I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Hell is forever, many roads in, not one out. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Corruption, his body was corrupting. Keep your hand there. And go to Acts chapter 2. Some years ago, I was at home, still living at home. And it was mid-morning. And I'd been working late the night before. And a knock at the door. A very loud knock at the door. Acts chapter 2, please. Acts chapter 2. And I went downstairs. Thought, who is this waking me up? It's mid-morning, like I say. And there was a lady at the front door saying, oh, I'm ever so sorry, she said. But I think I've just run over your cat. Oh, yeah. And I said, uh, what? My cat? And at the time we had a cat or two. And uh, I ran out to the house. A bit uh, groggy. Went to my car. And she said to me, I'm ever so sorry. But uh, your cat ran in front of my car. And I hit it. And it has crawled under your car. And I think it is dead. And I thought, oh no, this is shocking. <laughs> and I got on my knees. Looked under the car. And I said to her, that's not my cat. Well, that's not our cat. And she said to me, well, whose cat is it? And I said to her, well, it's the lady over the roads. And uh, she said, I'm ever so sorry, it was an accident, etc, etc, etc. And I thought, okay, leave it with me. And uh, she went off, almost in tears, really. And uh, later that day, I went over the road and I said to the lady in question, knocked on the door, of course, I said to her, I've got some bad news for you. I think somebody has uh, run over your cat. And of course, she thought it was me. And it wasn't, of course. And I said to her, just come over the road and just tell me if this is your cat. I'm pretty sure that it is. And she burst into tears. That's my cat. What's happened? Looking at me with dove's eyes, <laughs> staring at me. And I said to her, well, blah, blah, blah. And I recalled the story to her. And she said to me, oh, that's terrible. My lovely cat 
please can you get it out from under your car? So I drove the car a few feet forward and uh, within five seconds of doing that, the cat was rock hard, rigor mortis. And I had to scoop it up. I think somebody had to help me at the time. Put it into a box, which she had uh, offered. In fact, somebody gave me a shovel, I think, to scoop the cat up. Pretty, uh, pretty sad, really. And we buried many cats over the years, but this was the first that somebody else had killed, which crawled under my car. But the point is this, the cat was dead. Rigor mortis, corruption had set in. And by the time she got home from work, the cat had been dead for several hours. So two six, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains, Jonah was speaking. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Like I say, hell lasts forever, and so does heaven, incidentally. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Acts chapter 2, like I said, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, look at verse 25. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. The Lord Jesus Christ is God the Father's right hand man. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So he goes into the tomb, the Lord Jesus Christ, three days and three nights, and we will discuss that this morning. I will suggest Wednesday afternoon, and he comes up early Sunday morning. I'm going to suggest 3 p.m. Wednesday afternoon, he dies. And around 5.30 a.m. Sunday morning, he comes up out of the tomb. No corruption, no rigor mortis, no decay, unlike that cat. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. As is Muhammad, as is Confucius, as are all of the popes, as are all of the kings and queens of England, going right back to the 2nd, 3rd century. And I've said this many times over the years, if you could find a fragment of the Lord Jesus Christ's body, our faith is all over. 30. Therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, and one day he will, for 1,000 years, going into eternity. We call that premillennialism, of course. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So Christ was spotless. He comes up out of the tomb. Mary sees him, doesn't recognize him at first. The uh, two apostles on the road to Emmaus don't recognize him at first. There's a picture of judgment there. It says over in one of the Gospels how they didn't believe that he'd, raised, he'd been raised from the dead. So because they weren't believing, he gives them a sense of uh, judgment. He judges them. He leaves them in suspense. There's also a picture there of his glorified body. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. The apostles saw it, and Paul says over 500 saw him at once. If you have nothing else to go by, you go by written testimonies, where two or three people write down what they saw, and there's no evidence to overthrow it, to undermine it, or to question it. It is legally credible. It stands up in any court anywhere in the world. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear, the church is up and running. The Holy Ghost has come down. The Son of God has gone up. For David has not ascended into the heavens. At that time he wasn't. He was in the ground. For David is not ascended into the heavens. Of course, Elijah would go up into heaven. Enoch would go up into heaven. They are the only exceptions, of course. For David, at this time, is not ascended into the heavens. Now, as Peter is saying this, Paul hasn't yet been saved. Paul will tell you later from Ephesians chapter 4 that Christ will go into hell to rescue the dead. 
but as Peter was speaking, he doesn't know that. We call this progressive revelation. God doesn't tell everyone everything all at once. He takes his time. I've been a Christian almost 20 years. I'm still reading through the Old Testament every day. In fact, as of right now, I'm reading Joshua. I'm reading Jeremiah. I'm reading Jonah, obviously. And I'm reading Revelation. And I'm also reading the book of Acts. I'm trying to scratch the surface. I'm trying to educate myself. I'm still growing. And I hope you are as well. For David is not ascended into the heavens. But he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. Father speaking to the Son, but David is speaking. So David is a type of Christ. Jonah is a type of Christ. Jonah goes into the fish three days and three nights. Wednesday to Sunday. Jesus Christ goes into the heart of the earth. Wednesday to Sunday. Three days and three nights. You can't miss the parallels. Was he resuscitated? Was he resurrected? Well, I think these verses tell us. 35. Until I make thy foes, your enemies, thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Go back to the book of Jonah. So, Acts chapter 2, written by Dr. Luke, around 30 AD or thereabouts, is outlining that all of the righteous, when they died, couldn't go to heaven because Christ hadn't yet died for their sins, hadn't paid for their sins, but they're still saved. Enoch, like I say, would be an exception. So too would Elijah. But here David is not ascended into the heavens, unlike Christ, of course, who would. But he saith himself in type, in prophecy, The Lord hath said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. The Father says to the Son, Sit on my right hand. Go back to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah 2, 6. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. He's in the fish. He's dead. He's speaking. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. So after the service last week, one of our brothers sent me a text. And he said to me, uh, How do you think it went with Jonah? How long was he dead? Or how did it work when he went to the fish? And I thought, well, maybe he was alive for six hours in the fish. Christ would be on the cross for six hours. And maybe after six hours of being in the fish, he died. Last night, I was thinking about Jesus and Jonah, trying to work out what exactly took place. And I had some ideas last night, late, late last night. And I thought this morning I would count the words. Because these verses from Jonah chapter 2... In fact, there are eight verses where Jonah is speaking. Either he's speaking in an unconscious state, hence the resuscitation hypothesis, or he's speaking in a sense of being dead, like the rich man in hell, Abraham speaking to him, the conversation from Luke chapter 16. So this morning I sat down and I wanted to just look at the verses from Jonah chapter 2 and also from the four Gospels. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he would speak 47 words. Or 47 words will come out of his mouth. If you add the four, which are from uh, Aramaic, Eloelo, Eloelo, or Eli, Elo, uh, Sabbath Chabatini, I always mispronounce that, but it's Aramaic. It means, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At most, you've got 51 words. But in English, you've got 47 words that he would speak from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, and then you've got someone like Jonah. And I counted his words this morning, 183 words. So they don't match, they don't quite match, but it's still interesting. Because I got thinking about the words that the Lord spoke while he hung on the cross. And uh, words like finished, paradise, spirit, me, son, slash mother, thirst, do. Interesting. And if you break those verses down or those words down, finished, paradise, paradise is finished, spirit, me, whatever he says do unto him. 
Son, mother, New Jerusalem is the mother of the church. Thirst, you never thirst if you believe on me, do, go. Interesting, isn't it? Now, of course, you can't get doctrine from this, so don't quote me, but these are interesting words that were spoken from our Saviour as he was hanging on a cross. And like I say, you've got uh, one, two, three, four words, Elo, Elo, or Eli, Elo, Lama Sabatini, which again, I know I don't quite pronounce right. I do struggle with some of these Aramaic expressions. I remember some years ago speaking to a Muslim in town, and he said to me, uh, in fact, he started to quote that uh, it's easy for the Muslims, they speak Arabic, and Arabic is quite near to Aramaic, and he was quite proud of himself for quoting it verbatim. And I remember that story with uh, D.L. Moody after one of his engagements, and somebody ran up to him and said to him, I counted uh, 35 grammatical errors in your speech. And he stuck his tongue out, and he said to the guy, this tongue is used for the glory of God. What is your tongue being used for? A lot of truth in that. So, recap. Jesus Christ would utter 47 words from the cross. Finished, paradise, spirit, me, son, slash, mother, thirst, do. Jonah would speak 183 words while he is in the fish, in the heart of the earth. Interesting, but don't read too much into it. Jonah 2, look at verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. Incidentally, the last word that Jonah would speak would be Lord. Lord. From verse 9. And the last word that Jesus would speak would be Spirit. Worship God in spirit and in truth. My soul, when my soul, my soul, when my soul fainted within me, I remember the Lord. I remember the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's open this up a bit more, if we may. So, in fact, go to Matthew 12 first, and then go to Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Uh, Matthew 12 first. So, again, Jonah is a type of Jesus. David, from Acts chapter 2, is a type of Messiah. And from uh, Matthew 12, uh, look at verse 40 again. For as Jonas, Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. He tells you what the animal was, what the creature was. So shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the hearts of the earth. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. It's interesting that for three days and three nights, Jonah is in the fish. And I, I can only count 183 words. I'm sure he said more than 183 words while he was in the fish, uh, waiting to be uh, resurrected. But he goes into the fish. I am going to suggest probably mid-afternoon, Wednesday, paralleling Jesus Christ going, uh, dying on the cross, midday on Wednesday. He comes up very early Sunday morning, three days and three nights. And I'm going to suggest that Jonah comes up very early Sunday morning. These uh, types and shadows, similar choose, don't have to be spotless or completely identical. We discussed this after the service last week, but they have to be pretty near. Pretty near. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse uh, 7, but unto every one of us is given grace, according to the measure of the gift of Christ, grace for salvation, grace to make it through each and every day, when people kick against grace, kick them out, get rid of them, if people don't understand grace, they have no business teaching or preaching, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men, Similar to uh, Romans 8, who can bring Christ down from heaven, who can bring him up from the dead or from the deep, the abyss, going back to Satan having an affinity with the deep, with the depth. And here, 
Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, ascension, he led captivity captive, which Peter didn't know in Acts chapter 2, Paul knew about it here, around 64 AD, and gave gifts unto men. We all have gifts. If you are a Bible-believing brother, especially, you have a gift. It could be to preach. It could be to evangelize. It could be to exposit the scripture. It could be to walk the streets holding up a banner. If you are a sister, maybe you can wash the feet of the saints. First Timothy chapter 5. Maybe you can open up your home, allow people into, uh, into your home, like Lydia would do in the book of Acts. Maybe you can cook a meal or two. We all have gifts, you understand. Now that he ascended, what is it but that also, but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He went down. He went down. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lowest, lower parts, deepest parts, lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above heavens, far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now some of these are past tense, obviously, like apostle. There are no apostles today. Matthias would be the last apostle perhaps Barnabas, but that's about all. They were eyewitnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. The word apostle means sent, somebody who was sent, somebody who saw. So there were no apostles today, prophets like Agabus and uh, perhaps Philip to some extent and perhaps Stephen to a lesser extent. Prophets were sent to reaffirm, to boost up the apostles' credibility and also to give more revelations to the early church. But now we've got the word of God. I remember years ago getting an email from a friend in the ministry uh, trying to offer me some advice. A revelation had been given to this particular person. I won't go into, the, the, I won't go into great detail over it. It was quite uh, vivid at the time, a bit spooky as well. And I thought, so I'll appreciate what you've just told me, but I'm still trying to work out what has been written in the Word of God. Some years ago, we went to Speaker's Corner and a group of Muslims came over to us, waiting to pounce on us. And they said, uh, you wait until such and such comes along. He's a real expert when it comes to the Bible. And I really wish, I said to this uh, so-called expert, I'm so glad to meet you, my friend. Can you explain to me who Melchizedek was? Is he a type of the sun or the spirits? I can't work it out. And uh, could you help me out with the book of Hebrews? Who wrote Hebrews? Was it Paul? Was it somebody else? Did he write all of it? Some of it? Uh, and also, how's it going to work with the two witnesses and the 144,000? Yes, I'm being facetious. But the point I'm trying to make is this book needs to be studied and read. So when somebody says God spoke to you, or somebody says they had a vision or a prophecy. Don't be so quick to accept what they say. Wherefore he saith, verse 8, When he ascended up on high, ascension, he led, he led on his own, captivity captive, Abraham, David, Isaac, Jacob, so on and so forth, and gave gifts unto men for the early church. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He goes down. He goes right down into hell itself. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, three heavens, that he might fill all things. He's everywhere at the same time. He's omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. And he gave some, past tense, apostles and some prophets and some evangelists. We got those today. And some pastors. We got those today. And teachers. We got those today. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That is still timeless, of course. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Unity in the sense of 
being of the same mind, we are already one in Christ, John 17. The resurrection has made us one in Christ. But unity to bring us together, to stamp out schisms. But of course those schisms can only be stamped out if you have a final authority and a perfect atonement. Though we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. That's the whole point of scripture incidentally, for doctrine. That's why this book was written, for doctrine. If your doctrine is straight, you are straight. If your doctrine is not straight, you are not straight. You are a mess. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about to there be wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, and don't they just, they mop you up pretty quickly. I got an email a while ago, and somebody said to me this, they said, uh, a friend of mine is a Catholic, and she keeps witnessing to me, quote unquote, witnessing, what a joke that is. She keeps trying to share Catholicism with me, and I've been a Christian 45 years, and we're going back and forth, she said, blah, blah, blah. And I got back to this woman, I said to her, do you, do you notice one thing about your friend? And she said, well, what is that? And I said, she's trying to recruit you, not regenerate you. These people don't get people saved. They recruit, like the LGBT. They recruit. They can't reproduce, they recruit. And these cults, false religions, they want to recruit you. When was the last time a Catholic came up to you in the street and gave you a tract? Never. When was the last time a Catholic went into a pub or a club or a pride event and gave out tracts? Never. But they'll get into your hair, they'll tie you up, they'll knock on your door, they'll come around to your home if they know you and start to give you their nonsense, their depraved doctrines. And that's what 14 is all about. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working, in the measure of every part, making an increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. That's the whole point of this. Love, and I mean biblical love, not carnal love. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. So like I say, you have two views. Either Jonah was uh, resuscitated, and he was three days and three nights in the heart of the fish, the whale, and he's able to come through it. And, I, and uh, while he's in the fish for three days and three nights, so... And I'm going to suggest Wednesday to Sunday, he is speaking to the Lord. He's subconscious, or he's uh, unconscious, but he's speaking to the Lord. How does that work? I don't know. He's dreaming. Uh, some people think he was a trained poet, or he's dead. He's dead, and I think the jury would lean towards the latter, not the former. Colossians chapter 2, please. Colossians chapter 2, uh, look at verse 13. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision... Of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. No other faith can promise you that, incidentally, no other faith. The Church of Rome can't promise you that. Islam can't promise you that. Judaism cannot promise you that. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, like do's and don'ts, which was contrary to us, against us, and took it out of the way, and nailed it to his cross, not the stake, cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, unclean spirits, Demons, devils, going back to what we discussed last week. Tarot cards, the Ouija board, ya-ya, French for yes-yes, ya-ya, Ouija, ya-ya. You go and visit a clairvoyance or you do the cards, the tea leaves. Uh, you move the object around the table, all that nonsense. And no, don't do it. I'll tell you something. There are probably two or three things that I will never tolerate. I mean ever tolerate. If I'm watching something, or if I see something and it goes into the occult, I'll turn it off. I remember watching Sherlock Holmes, 1939, Hound of the Baskervilles, one of their best out of all of uh, the Sherlock Holmes series. And you would think 1939, it's pretty innocent, right? This is pre-World War II, 
And there's a scene in that Hound of the Baskervilles movie. It's a classic, absolute classic. And in the scene, they are doing a seance. And every time I watch that, and I've only watched it a few times in recent years, but every time I watch it, I always skip that scene. I can't stand it. I don't like to mess around with the occults. I'm not squeamish. There are some things that don't bother me. I'm pretty thick-skinned. But when it comes to the occults, I'm not interested. This is a serious subject. You can swear in front of me. You can do this and that in front of me. I can take it. I'm not too bothered about it. But when you get into the occult, or you start to mock Satan, Mm. or they start to reenact clairvoyance or seances or what have you, you're dancing with the devil. I'm not interested in it. 15, again. And having spoiled principalities and powers, unclean spirits. Daniel speaks about kingdoms having uh, princes assigned to them. He made us show them openly, triumphing over them in it. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Let no man therefore judge your meat or in drink or in reward of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So there are two reasons why he goes into the earth. First of all, to save his people, to take his people home. And that's what we're all looking forward to this ministry. The pre-tribulational rapture, the Lord Jesus, uh, the pre-tribulational rapture by the Lord Jesus Christ for the church of God, of course. We are waiting for the rapture. But here, having spoiled principalities and powers, made us show them openly. Nothing was done in a corner. Triumphing over them in it. Rejoicing, like rubbing their noses in it. Let no man therefore judge your meat or in drink or in reward of an holy day or of the new moon of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. A thousand year reign. They're going to come back. But the body is of Christ. Go to First Peter chapter 3. So his body is in a tomb. His spirit goes back to his father. And again, one of the words or one of the last words would be spirits. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirits. First Timothy, uh, make that first Peter, excuse me. First Peter chapter 3. And his spirit goes back to be with the father. His body is in a tomb for three days and three nights, but his soul, which is a bodily shape, goes into the lower parts of the earth and he takes a thief with him. What would he say today? Thou shalt be with me in paradise. And he was. And he goes into the heart of the earth with a thief next to him. And that guy simply believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ alone, no works involved. To show that is how everybody will be saved throughout the entire history of the church age. First Peter chapter 3, please. First uh, Peter chapter 3, look at verse... 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Underline that if you have a Bible today. For Christ also hath once, once, once suffered for sins. If churches around the world could get this, if the JWs could get this, the Mormons and the Catholics, what a different world we'd have. What a different world we would see. Most churches think that Christ's atonement isn't enough for them. Wasn't enough for them. They think you've got to do something to help save yourself. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Holy Ghost made him alive. And again, one of the last words he would say would be spirits. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. There's our word again, prison. Because it was a prison. Many rose into hell, not one rode out. Or put it this way, imagine locking yourself in a room. Or imagine being locked in a room. Maybe when you were a young child, you misbehaved. And your parent or parents put you under the stairs. It does happen. Maybe you were there for... 30 minutes, an hour, an hour or two. I've heard some awful stories of child abuse. You're locked in that room, pitch black, you want to get out, it's terrifying. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits, principalities and powers in prison, and I mean prison, where some time were disobedience, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, 
was saved by water. Eight souls out of what? Two million? It's nothing. The light figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not, not, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Water won't wash away your sins, only the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the answer of a good conscience toward God, you are showing people that you are saved and you are showing people you are saved by being baptised. That's what James 2 is all about. James 2 speaks about your faith being seen amongst others, whereas Romans 4 speaks about God seeing your faith. You'd be surprised how many people don't understand the difference between Romans 4 and James chapter 2. And they teach that people are saved by their works. Would you believe it? During the tribulation, and they get James 2 all mangled up. And I'll discuss that during a future message. But the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection, wonderful word, resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Go back to the book of Jonah. So, Jonah, a wonderful type of Jesus. If Jesus hadn't pointed to uh, Jonah as uh, a type of him, most people wouldn't be thinking that there's any uh, similarity between the two. But of course, you've got to understand a few things when it comes to the Lord. Uh, when it would say how my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts and your thoughts. It's imperative we get that, people. Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. Look at verse uh, 7 again. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. Probably via incense. Incense in the Old Testament is a pitch of prayer, of course. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Keep your hand there and go to uh, Jeremiah. Like I say, I'm reading four or five books at the moment. Jeremiah is very similar to Jonah. Uh, Jeremiah was a Jew. Jonah was a Jew. To be fair to Jonah, he was probably jealous that perhaps the Ninevites, being Gentiles, would turn to Jehovah and would be saved and perhaps become a people of God as well as the Jews. That's one of the reasons why the Jews rejected Jesus. The thought of Gentiles... Those savages, speaking in a funny language, would worship Jehovah. The eternal Jewish God was too much for them. They couldn't bear the idea of it. So they crucified uh, Jesus. And of course Jonah gets on board of the boat, heading to modern day Spain. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah chapter 12. Puts his own life at risk and all those on board. What a character. Jeremiah 12. Look at verse 1 please. Righteous art thou, O Lord, absolutely, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? What a wonderful question. Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Why do the rich get richer, Lord, and the poor get poorer? Why is that, Lord? Why are people making more and more money, and people getting more and more poor? That's the question of the ages. Thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root, they grow, yea, they bring forth fruit, Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. Matthew 5 says how he blesses the just and the unjust. The sun goes up, it goes down. That's a type of a blessing from Almighty God, but it won't save them, of course. But thou, O Lord, verse 3, knowest me. Yes, Jeremiah, he knows you. And, Je and uh, Jonah was known as well by the Lord. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. Pour them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. He wants to kill hostile Jews. You've got a saved Jew speaking to Jehovah about unsaved Jews. He wants their blood. Like the Jews wanted Jesus' blood. Incredible, isn't it? Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore 
doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Why are they happy? Why are they enjoying a good meal? Why are they enjoying holidays and homes and mansions all over the world and got private jets? Why are they doing so well? That's what he's asking. But in the context, Jews around 600 BC, thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root. They grow, yea, they bring forth fruit, a picture of the Lord's permissive will. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. You're near to them, Lord, they would call upon you, but they won't, of course. But thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. He's called the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Jeremiah pictures Jesus. Jonah pictures Jesus. You understand, of course. But thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. Pour them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. Makes your blood turn cold. Go back to Jonah chapter 2. You were told to pray for your enemies. You were told to deny yourself. You were told to pick up your cross. You see the two different dispensations here. Two very different dispensations. Jonah 2. Jonah 2. Go back to verse 2. And said. Jonah said. I cry by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I. And thou heardest my voice. Go to Isaiah please. So last week we discussed the first death, which is pretty grim. And the first death, which is still relevant for today. Uh, there's weeping and wailing. There's a picture of thirst. The rich man in hell was thirsty. What would Christ say? I thirst. And uh, there's a conversation taking place between the rich man and uh, Abraham. And that's pretty rough, like I say, the first death. And that will continue to be the case up until the end of the thousand year reign. But if you go to Isaiah... 66 Isaiah 66 uh, we get a glimpse of the second death now of course the second death didn't touch Jonah because Jonah was saved and if you are born again the second death will not cannot touch you but read verse let's see now 66 uh, look at verse 23 and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another there's your moons returning thousand year reign Colossians chapter 2 and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, one Sabbath to another. This would be in reference to the Jews on the new earth. We are in New Jerusalem, of course. We don't do we don't do the Sabbath. The Sabbath isn't for us. Christ will be our Sabbath rest forever. But here, the redeemed Jews, like Jonah, what a character he was, and uh, Jeremiah, and uh, Hosea, and Ezekiel, and all the prophets and patriarchs, all going to be on the new earth, of course. And it's come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh. Come to worship before me, saith the Lord. That's positive. But look at verse 24. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Do you realise during the thousand year reign, you're going to see people burning in hell? Do you realise that? Uh, go to chapter 14. Isaiah 14. Why? You will see such people, I don't know. But that's what you will see. Isaiah 14, look at verse 9. Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. Charlemagne, Napoleon, Hitler. It was said when Hitler went to France, 1940. He spent an hour and a half looking at a painting of Napoleon in a part of France, in Paris. Hour and a half. He was obsessed with this painting of Napoleon. He was fixated with it. Of course, Napoleon is a type of the Antichrist. Charlemagne 
type of the Antichrist, Hitler, type of the Antichrist. And here, verse 9, such are going to be put on display for the arrival of the Antichrist, but more specifically, Satan himself. All they shall speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? What are you doing here, Satan? Art thou become like unto us? Are you now in a pitiful state like we are? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, Sheol, hell, and the noise of thy voils. The worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. This will last forever, incidentally. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Absolutely. For thousands of years he's been destroying nations. Just study China sometime, North Korea, study Russia, study uh, Zimbabwe, study uh, South Africa, study any country you think uh, that you think of really carefully, and you can see what the devil has been able to do. Weaken the nations, for thou hast said in thine heart, verse 13, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll be like the most high. This guy's got some gall. He's got some uh, nerve. Five I ams. I will be like the most high. It's almost mirroring the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the good shepherd. Before Abraham was, I am. For thou hast said in thine hearts, I will, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. In the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee, and consider thee, saying, Is this the man? Is this the man? Is this the man that made the earth to tremble? That did shake kingdoms? Didn't he just? If you lived in Soviet Russia, your life was a misery. You had an awful time for decades. Shake the kingdoms that made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed the cities thereof. That opened not the house of his prisoners. Prisoners. The word returns again. Prison. It's judgment. It's horrific. Go to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And I'll pull all these verses together. Mark chapter 9. So during a thousand year reign, like I say, the redeemed on the new earth, probably the saved Jews, but perhaps the church as well, are going to be shown hell. And we'll see people burning in hell. And it's going to be pretty horrific, I can assure you. And they are experiencing the second death, not the first death. Mark 9, uh, pick it up in verse 43. Jesus speaking. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, and I mean hell, into the fire, and I mean fire, that never shall be quenched. Somebody once worked out that Christ preached on hell around three times a year. Beginning, middle, and end of a typical year. Three times a year. So if you don't hear a sermon on hell from your pastor or preacher at least three times a year, he's not following the Lord Jesus Christ. Where their worm dieth not and a fire is not quenched. Jump down to verse 47. In fact, 46, please. Where their worm dieth not and a fire is not quenched. 48. Where their worm dieth not and a fire is not quenched. Three times he repeats this. Three times. Not once, not twice. Three times. Like the new birth. Three times you're told to be born again. And three times, from verses 42 right the way down to verse 50, which I've got time to read all of this morning, three times he speaks about the worm never dying. Go back to Jonah chapter 2, and how there'll be an awful sense of suffering, which is down to people's sins against the Lord. That's what hell is all about, to punish the sinful. 2012, a lady got into her truck, went to meet what she hoped would be 
a new love. She was very excited, very uh, nervous, and she drove to meet her new lover somewhere in Texas. Turns out that she was meeting a spurned lover, an old flame who wasn't happy that she'd broken off the relationship, and he was able to trick her. He basically pretended to be somebody else online, and she fell for it, and she got into her truck, like I say, drove to meet this gentleman five or six miles from her property in Texas, and her heart must have sunk when she realised it was an ex-lover, ex-boyfriend. And he got out of his truck and he put a gun on her, forced her into his truck. He drove 75 miles to a wooded area, very rural area. And this area, very rural, like I say, uh, had wild hogs. And of course, hogs will eat anything. And he strangled her and he threw her body uh, into an area where these hogs roam. Uh, wild animals, like I say, because he hoped that the hogs would the body up well thankfully they didn't and the police were able to find the body and she hadn't been too badly damaged and she was uh, given a proper uh, burial and he spoke to uh, people he gave an interview or two to the press about what he had done no remorse no nothing this mother had two children and he murdered her buried her in the middle of nowhere thought the hogs would destroy evidence and uh, like I say he was put before the courts he got life without parole Hell's a place for someone like that. Hell's a place for someone like that. You say, but how about that nice old woman that I know? Well, go back to the 1960s. There was a lady living in West Germany, and she befriended a young boy, we'll say 16 to perhaps 18. They got very close, this couple. She was mid-30s. He was late teens, far too young for her. She corrupted him. They had a pretty passionate relationship. We would call that child abuse today. And after a period of time, these two split, uh, split. He was moved to Frankfurt with his parents, got on with his life. He tried to write to her, and for a while, letters went back and forth. But eventually, the relationship, quote-unquote, broke down. And uh, 20 years later, that's, let's see, now, 1980s, he sees her picture flash up on the television screen. Such and such has been arrested. What for, he, he thought? What for? What, what has she done to be arrested? Turns out she was a concentration camp guard in Belsen during World War Two, And of course, when he knew her, she was late 30s, early 40s, had mellowed, had mellowed, you see. And he thought she was a wonderful woman, and she probably was to him. She was very kind to him. He cut his knee uh, on his bike. He fell off his bike, cut his knee, and she washed his knee. And uh, like I say, a relationship developed from there. She basically uh, moulded him. She uh, groomed him. That's the word we use today, groomed him. And he fell for her pretty hard. And like I say, he moved to Frankfurt, I think. And after 20 years, he saw her uh, on the television, such and such. War criminal. And over a period of time, she gave evidence. Or she was on, she was prosecuted, I should say. And over a period of time, people were giving evidence against her. Awful woman, they said. She was very sadistic. She made us do this. She made us do that. She took great happiness and delight in seeing us women being treated like animals. They were Jews for the most part. And at the end of her court hearing, she was found guilty, of course. She was able to have a few minutes with this uh, a man from a uh, middle-aged man from uh, West Germany. She was probably in her 60s and he was in his 30s uh, or thereabouts. And she had a quick conversation with him before she went uh, off to prison. And she said, basically, I have no regrets. You know, I'm a German. We loved Hitler. He was our God. And we did what we did for him because we believed in him and we believed in Germany. Deceived. Deceived. And off to hell, she would go forever. And people like her... Jonah chapter 2, Jonah chapter 2, look at verse 8 please. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Tough verse to exegete, a bit of poetry there. 
But if you think of Jeremiah 12, which we just looked at, you get an idea where he's going with that line of thinking. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that, that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Jews. So the last thing he would say before God would resurrect him would be Lord. The last thing that Christ would say before he would die on the cross would be Spirit, finished, paradise, me, do thirst, son, mother. Take all the verses, read them carefully, work out the words. And you see that Jesus is so in line with the spirit of Jonah. Jonah's spirit is so in line with the spirit of Jesus. You've got Elijah's spirit very much in line with John the Baptist's. And John the Baptist would say that I'm not Elijah, but he was Elijah. Not a reincarnation, of course, but his spirit was similar to Elijah's. But I will sacrifice, verse 9, unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that, that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. It is finished, it is done. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I thirst. Seven sentences would be uttered from the mouth of the Saviour as he hung on the cross. And here, if you count all of Jonah's words, all eight verses, from verses 2 to 8, you've got 183 words. Three times to what Jesus would say, and yet... In some ways, in a way that I don't quite understand, they parallel each other. Verse 10, and we'll close. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So he sends a fish, 17. This fish arrives from nowhere, like Jaws, if you will. The uh, pagans on board their boat probably thought the fish was coming for them, when in reality it was coming for Jonah. Swallows up Jonah. He goes into the heart, the belly of the whale, for three days and three nights. And I will suggest he was dead. He was resurrected, not resuscitated. Corruption has been mentioned from verse 6. Contrast that to Acts chapter 2, where there's no corruption concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he was different, because he was glorified. And he was also different, and they couldn't recognize him due to unbelief, for the most part. We now live by faith, not by sight. And here, verse 10, Jonah comes up. I'm going to suggest early Sunday morning, mirroring the Lord Jesus Christ. He dies, I'm going to suggest, around 3 p.m., on a Wednesday, I'm going to suggest Christ died around 3 p.m. on a Wednesday. Christ comes up around 5.30 a.m. Sunday morning. That gives you three days and three nights. Jonah goes into the fish. I'm going to suggest 3 p.m. on a Wednesday. And very early Sunday morning, he comes up out of the fish. And he starts to preach. Chapter 2, Christ comes up out of the tomb. After three days, he preaches. He preaches to the apostles. He appears to over 500 people at once. And by the time Jonah is finished, he's going to preach to 120,000 people. But we will build on that when we get to uh, chapter 2. But I hope you've been able to follow along with some of the parallels, some of the similarities. What hell is really all about. Why Satan will go to hell eventually. He's had his day, basically. It's like this. A conversation took place some years ago between Satan and God. Like the book of Job, for example. And Satan said to God, I've got people down on the earth that love me very much. They love me. Love me very much. They sacrifice their children for me. They murder children in the wombs of mothers. They will put their children into the river Ganges, drown such children. They will walk on coals of fire for me. They will sacrifice their children for me. They will abuse children for me. They love me. They love me. How about you, God? Who loves you that much? And he said, well, look at Sir Abraham. And uh, the devil says, oh, yes, I know Abraham. And he said, uh, well, come over sometime. And uh, he starts to take his son Isaac, puts him on a altar, about to kill him. And the Lord says, that's it, hold off. And the devil said, okay, you've won that one. And he said, uh, how about Job? Have you worked out, have you uh, given Job any attention? And he says, yes, I think Job will probably curse you to your face. He'll probably cuss you out. 
swear at you, and he said to the devil, work him over, but you can't kill him. And Satan is able to work Job over, doesn't buckle once. But he was self-righteous, that was his problem. Finally, he says, how about my, my man Paul? The Apostle Paul, wonderful man, speaks five or six languages, a very clever guy. And he says to uh, the devil, work him over, put a, a uh, thorn in his side, see how he goes. And the devil says, okay, and he works Paul over, doesn't waver at all. But he says how wretched he was and who could deliver him from the body of this death. My point is this, that Satan has people that love him and they are dying for him and they are killing themselves for him. You go to South America, they whip themselves every Easter, they cut themselves every Easter, walking their hands and their feet every Easter. They are doing it for Satan. He's their father. You go to the Far East, you've got Muslims cutting up their daughters. They call that a female genital mutilation, FGM. You've got boys being raped by men all over the world. We don't hear much about that, do we? We all know about the girls that are being kidnapped and raped by men. But how about the boys? How about the boys? Go back to four or five years ago. Boko Haram. That Islamic terror group in Nigeria. They kidnapped 200 girls. uh, Mostly Catholic girls. But how about the boys? How about the boys? They kidnapped a similar figure. Perpetual sex slaves. Nobody cared about the boys, only the girls. But my point is this. Satan has got people that love him and are sacrificing to him. They are dying for him. They are killing their children for him. And God said, how about me? Who loves me? Who's going to go for me? Who's going to march for me? Who's going to give themselves to me through surrendering their flesh, going back to give your body to the Lord Jesus Christ? Romans chapter 12. There's a battle going on 24-7. Satan's church, the Lord's church. Satan's people, God's people. And Jonah chapter 2 goes into hell, not to suffer, not to burn, not to be punished, you understand. But he goes into hell. He probably sees Abraham. A conversation may have taken place, we don't know. He's waiting with David and all of the uh, Old Testament greats for the Lord to rescue him. Jonah will die twice. Moses will die twice. Lazarus will die twice. All the people that were resurrected by Jesus Christ will die twice, more than once, to picture the fact that they have to die to be judged, obviously. But I'm going to suggest this, that Jonah died, was resurrected, a perfect parallel to the lord jesus christ died was resurrected and we'll keep building on this in the coming days and weeks so we're looking at jonah a nationalist israelite who wanted the assyrians to be harmed not helped and god used him in spite of his follies and failures so there's hope for all of us when it comes to serving almighty god before we get to uh, jonah chapter three just a couple of verses to reread and uh, continue to dig deeper into a tiny four-chapter book. Jonah 1, 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. Positive. Chapter 2, chapter 2, look at verse 9. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. Positive. I will pay that, that I have vowed. Positive. Salvation is of the Lord. So eventually, Jonah got there. It would take three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, in the belly of the great fish. Chapter 1, verse 17. But eventually he got there. Uh, 2.8 again. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Or as you go through life and become backslidden, a disappointment to the Lord like Jonah was, you stop forgiving people and you attain grudges, so on and so forth. 2.10 again, and the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Go to Psalm 148, please. Psalm 148, when it comes to the sea, 
There's much we do not know. If you think of Jacques Cousteau, for example, France's most famous diver, experts concerning uh, marine life and uh, made many documentaries throughout his colourful life. And on one occasion he was swimming around Havana, Cuba, Florida, the infamous Bermuda Triangle. And this guy spent years, and I mean years, diving. Psalm 148, please. Psalm 148. And he heard screaming. He heard shouting. Put the fear of God into him. And I mean literally. Told his son what he had heard. And you go online and type Jack Cousteau. Screams from hell. A website called Snoops comes up. And tells you it's not true. It plays it down. No surprise there. Archaeology is against the Bible. Academia is against the Bible. Historians are against the Bible. History is against the Bible. When it comes to Christianity, this faith that we call the one true faith is attacked like no other faith. And yet the two verses that really sum up Christianity would be love the Lord thy God, which is positive, and love your neighbour as yourself, which is also positive. And yet for some bizarre reason, and of course we know why, it is kicked against. They don't want people to find Christ and be saved. Psalm 148, Psalm 148, look at verse 7, if you will. Praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons, and all deeps, dragons. Satan is called a dragon, book of Revelation. Leviathan is a good picture of the devil. Praise the Lord from the earth, positive, ye dragons, and all deeps. There's our word again, deep. I went down to the deep. Praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons, and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and vapours, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Picture the Holy Ghost there. Fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars. Beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl. Go back to the book of Jonah. Jonah 2, look at verse 3 again. For thou hast cast me into the deep, not just the sea. And yes, that's where he went. But he goes right down. And Psalm 148 offers a bit more light to it. In the midst of the seas and the floods compass me about. All thy billows, undercurrents, waters in general, and thy waves passed over me. 2.10 again. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So he has been resurrected, not resuscitated. He's gone down. He's gone into hell itself. Found over in uh, uh, verse 2. In fact, it says in verse 2 again, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me, because he was saved, of course. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. Go to Ezekiel chapter 31. I'm still reading through Ezekiel. And I've got a lot of notes in my mind from Ezekiel. And maybe one day I will do a study looking at Ezekiel. Perhaps verse by verse we will see. Ezekiel 31. Ezekiel uh, 31. Look at verse... 15 if you will thus saith the lord god in the day when he went down to the grave i caused a mourning grave being pit being shul being hell of course i covered the deep for him and i restrained the floods thereof and the great waters were stayed and i caused lebanon to mourn for him and all the trees of the field fainted for him dealing with antichrist of course dealing with satan of course they go together you see I made the nations to shake at the sound of his fall. Going back to Isaiah 7 and also 14, which we looked at a few weeks ago. I made the nations to shake at the sound of his fall, when I cast them down to hell with them that descend into the pit. 
and all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon. All that drink water shall be comforted in the nether parts of the earth. Lower parts of the earth. Christ goes down into the lower parts of the earth. We looked at that last week. Jonah goes down into the lower parts of the earth. Had he been an unsaved man, he would have been screaming. He would have been wallowing. He would have been weeping and wailing. He would have been speaking like the rich man in hell. Luke 16. Far from it. He was calm. He was collective. Like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He was saved, you understand. 17. They also went down into hell with him. Unto them that be slain with the sword, and they that were the arm, that dwelt under his shadow in the midst of the heathen, the Gentiles, to whom art thou like thus in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? Yet shalt thou be brought down with the trees of Eden unto the nether parts of the earth. Thou shalt lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with them that be slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh. This is Antichrist. This is Satan. But here, this is Pharaoh, type of antichrist type of satan of course and all his multitude saith the lord god jump over to 32 32 2 son of man make up a lamentation for pharaoh king of egypt and say unto him thou art like a young lion of the nations satan's called a roaring lion and thou art as a whale in the seas and thou comest forth with thy rivers and troublest the waters with thy feet and foulest their rivers Pharaoh uh, is referred to as a whale, and Pharaoh is connected to the sea, not just the Red Sea, which was sacred back in uh, ancient Egypt. But again, thou art like a young lion of the nations, and thou art as a whale in the seas, and thou camest forth with thy rivers, and troublest the waters with thy feet, and foulest their rivers. So the Assyrians that Jonah was sent to worshipped Dagon, the fish god, and of course the Lord. Operating the way that he does, uses a fish to swallow up Jonah, and of course he turns their idolatry on their, on on its head, a bit like uh, when the Ark of the Covenant was confiscated and put next to Dagon, and overnight the statue of Dagon loses its arms, its feet, and it's flat on its face the following morning. Jump down to verse ten. Yea, I will make many people amazed at thee, and their king shall be horribly afraid. For thee, when I shall brandish my sword before them, and they shall tremble at every moment, every man for his own life, in the day of thy fall. Go back to the book of Jonah. So, a brief detour, just to add a bit more substance to scripture concerning Jonah, meaning dove's eyes. And we normally would criticize someone like Jonah. We would say he was backslidden, which of course he was. We would say he wasn't much used to the Lord, which for the most part he was not. And yet, in spite of that, he was used nonetheless. So let's begin today's Lord's Day service, if we may, looking at Jonah chapter 3. This will be week number 6, hour 3 and a half. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. He gets a second chance, which is good for people like myself, people like you, people like us. We all fail. Simon Peter would fail and three times. He had to be restored back into service. On one occasion, Barnabas and Paul got into an altercation concerning John Mark, and it was so sharp, the contention was so deep, that for a period of time, two greats didn't speak to each other. So Christians can be divided. Christians can do their own thing. Christians can be stubborn, and as a result, miss out on unity. Of course, that deals with your state, never your standing. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, being Assyria, capital of Assyria, modern-day Iraq for today, go unto Nineveh, 
that great city in a sense of not just being ostentatious but being wicked steeped in sin and preach unto it the preaching that i bid thee go back to the book of exodus for a few moments so we would say this that jonah yes was complexed would drag his heels uh enjoyed his free will didn't do what he was told to do and yet the lord still wanted him to do something for him but if i was to say to you when it comes to moses and jonah when it came to preaching the message from the Lord, if I was to put this question to you this morning, which of the two was the most faithful, I would suggest most of you would probably say Moses was, right? If you speak to an Orthodox Jew, they will say that Moses is the greatest of the patriarchs, and then David is the greatest when it comes to the monarchists, and that's probably true. David was a king, Moses was a prophet, and I think if you put that question to your average Christian, they would say it was Moses. Moses, they would say, was a great man. Uh, yes, we know he was a murderer, they would say. And yes, we know he had the uh, he had a temper, a bit like uh, the sons of Zebedee. And he would uh, hit the rock twice when he was told to speak to it once, a picture of contempt. But most Christians, most people would say that Moses was better than Jonah when it came to serving the Lord, delivering the Lord's message. But hold your horses. Don't be so quick to make such an assumption. Exodus chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4, look at verse 22. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, God is speaking, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Concerning preeminence, concerning importance, concerning prestige, not concerning when they uh, were born, which is what the JW suggests, concerning Jesus. And I say unto thee, let my son go that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Clear words from the Lord. And those words were given to Moses and also Aaron. So there's no excuse. Two people heard this message. Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go. Picturing Israel as a nation, not Israel as a son per se. That he may serve me, spoken of in the singular, but it's speaking about a nation, you understand. That he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So that's clear. You see what the Lord wants Moses to relay to Pharaoh. Scripture says if you add to, the, uh, add to the word of the Lord or subtract from the word of the Lord, you will be found a liar. And on top of that, uh, Revelation 22 says you will have your place, your part, taken out of the book of life. So be very careful when it comes to the word of God. Jump down to chapter 5, verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh... Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. They've cut out half of the words of the Lord. They have cut the word of God in half, basically. And that's why it says in verse 2, And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let, neither will I let, neither will I let Israel go. Go back to the book of Jonah. So Jonah, to his credit, doesn't do that. Jonah, to his credit, doesn't hold back. He really gives it to them. Whereas Moses and Aaron tiptoeing around, very diplomatic, and half of what the Lord told them to tell Pharaoh, they refused to do so. Again, this book needs to be read and studied so carefully before we jump to the wrong conclusion. Three one again, and the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, "That's also very reminiscent to John the Baptist. Arise, go unto Nineveh, modern-day Iraq, like I say, that great city." And preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. The preaching that I am going to command you. Don't hold back, Jonah. Give it to them. Give it to them. John the Baptist wouldn't hold back. Jesus wouldn't hold back. 
Paul was a bit more diplomatic. If you study Paul in the book of Acts carefully, from memory he would approach two or three monarchs, senior leaders during his ministry in the book of Acts, and every time he would meet and be in the presence of uh, dignitaries, he was so deferential. You can't fault him. He was polished on the one hand, he was professional on the other hand. John the Baptist was a bit more rough and ready, shall we say, a bit more crude. And uh, Jonah is a bit like John the Baptist, whereas Moses, like the Apostle Paul, was an academic. Going back to my opening comments, academia is against the book. Historians are against the book. Churches are against the book. Archaeologists are against the book. Most people that I can think of, the media especially, are against the book. Why is that? Because the book is against them. And yet the main theme of this book is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind and strength, and to love thy neighbour as thyself. Is it possible? No, it's not possible. But that's what the Lord wants you to do, you understand. 3.3 So Jonah arose, and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. It's always three days. Three days, the Lord was dead, dead and buried. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. His body is in the tomb. His spirit returns to his father. His soul goes into hell. And it'll be the same for Jonah. His body is in the fish. His spirit is with the father. His soul is in hell. And then when, when it uh, pleases the Lord, he resurrects Jonah. Puts him back together. Body, soul and spirit. Resurrects the Lord Jesus Christ. Puts him back together. Body, soul and spirit. So, Nineveh, a great city. The walls were eight miles long concerning the inner city. The rest of the city enjoyed an occupying border or boundary of some 60 miles. So, a good three days to walk around it is completely plausible. Completely understandable. If you were to attempt to cover a distance of, what, 60 miles, it would take three days, no problem whatsoever. Jonah rose, 3-3, three, three, and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. He's moving, at last, at last. He's moving, he's had a brush with death, he's gone into hell itself, he's seen something which we don't quite understand. What he saw is perhaps what Christo heard, I don't know. I know what Christo said, and what he said has been rubbished by so-called experts, going back to my earlier comments, but Christo heard something. France's most famous diver. He had something, stood by it. If you think of another story, which I've spoken about over the years, around 25 years ago, a US diver was swimming around, once again, the Bermuda Triangle. There are three areas in the world which are very unusual. Honolulu, Bermuda Triangle, and Hong Kong. Don't quite understand what's going on, but they are three areas which are worthy of further investigation if you care to do so in your own leisure and this u.s diver professional diver like christo was swimming around uh, florida i think it was for memory and he too was slightly spooked and he heard screaming and shouting put the fear of god into him he was a saved man incidentally unlike christo so you got two accounts two different gentlemen over a period of different years all swimming around the same area i mean something's going on around the bermuda triangle it could be that during the tribulation when these uh, demons come up from out of hell, spoken of in uh, Revelation 9, is it? Maybe one of the portals that they come out from is Hong Kong, Honolulu, uh, Bermuda Triangle, I don't know. But two people spoke about what they heard, and perhaps Jonah saw what he saw, and that put the fear of God into him. I mean, what else is motivating him? He's been dragging his heels for the last chapter or two. Uh, three, four. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. So the Jews go from evening to morning. Christ comes up very early, first day of the week. We would say probably 5.30 Sunday morning. 
Genesis counts the days, evening to the morning was the first day, evening to the morning was the second day, evening to the morning was the third day, you understand. So he comes up, he enters into the city, a day's journey, perhaps has been changed, he's been in a fish for three days, perhaps he's been bleached, that's a plausible suggestion, many people have offered that over the years, I see no reason to dismiss it, it is possible, it's plausible. But on top of that, people are always curious about how Jonah was able to get people to listen to him. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. It took him a day to get there. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Go back to uh, Ezekiel chapter 4. I saw a documentary a couple of years ago about an American diver. And he went into one of their famous caves in the sea. A very famous location for tourists to go to. He was an expert when it came to diving. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 4 please Ezekiel chapter 4 been down many times and uh, he went down I think it was 2016 or 2015 from memory never came up again and people were curious what happened to such and such he was a skilled diver a young man healthy knew this underwater cave inside out and his parents put up a lot of money to find his body all the American experts and the best in America went to this part in Florida. And they went into this cave. Couldn't find him. Couldn't find him. And a couple from Australia said, if you uh, pay our airfare, we will fly to Florida. And we will film it in 3D. And they arrived at this spot in uh, Florida. They spent many hours in this underground uh, cave. And they filmed every inch of this underground cave. Couldn't find him. Mystery. Couldn't find any of his... Uh, Oxygen tanks, snorkels, all the gear that divers wear. And it's like this, if I wasn't a saved man, I would say he may, he may have been abducted by aliens. But I don't believe in aliens, not in the sense that secular people do. I believe in demons and devils. In fact, hold it in uh, Ezekiel 4 and go to Revelation uh, chapter, I think it's chapter 9 actually. I do believe in unclean spirits, devils. We sometimes don't give them as much credit as we should do. There are spirits all around us. You understand that. I'm sure you do. If you spend any time with the Lord, or if you go anywhere or do anything, there'll be times when you feel uncomfortable. Something doesn't quite feel right. For example, I've got signals all around me. I've got Wi-Fi signals. I've got uh, television signals. I've got radio signals. I've got stuff going all around me. And some of that stuff is carrying some pretty heavy stuff. I mean, some of that stuff is carrying uh, ungodly music ungodly uh, pictures ungodly messages and sometimes it could just be that what is going on all around us is making an impact or it's it's affecting us some particular way revelation chapter 9 revelation chapter 9 look at verse 2 and he opened the bottomless pits and there rose a smoke out of the pit and the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pits and there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth and unto them are given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Go back to Ezekiel. So something's going on under, the, under our feet. Something is going on under our feet. We don't quite understand it. Perhaps Jonah saw some of it. I don't know. Perhaps Christo and his American diver heard something, or they heard what Jonah saw. Perhaps the American diver who got lost and was never found. Maybe, just perhaps, don't quote me, but perhaps he saw something which didn't want to be seen, and he was disposed of. I don't know. Ezekiel chapter 4, Ezekiel chapter 4, look at verse 4. Lie thou also upon thy left side. This is fascinating. Written 600 BC, and I'm sure Ezekiel thought, what in a world is Jehovah asking me to do? 
lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, substitutionary atonement. He had no idea what this would mean. 600 years later, but he's writing it down, and more important, he's doing it. He's doing it. One more time. Lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. So of course Christ comes, bears our sin, and here Ezekiel 4.4 is told to start by lying on his left side. It would be Isaiah who was told to walk around Israel naked. Some of the Old Testament prophets must have thought, what in the world is this all about? But like Jonah, they did what they were told, like Moses who would eventually do what he was told, and like Aaron, he too would do what he was eventually told to do. But in type, if you look at the bigger picture, this will just blow you away. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, three hundred and ninety days. So shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. So Ezekiel goes to the left forty days, goes to the right forty days. He carries the sins of Israel, Christ Goes to the left, carries the sins of the Jews. Goes to the right, carries the sins of the Gentiles. You couldn't make this stuff up if you weren't a Bible-believing Christian. But as a Bible-believing Christian, I see a tremendous truth here, which, again, academia is against, archaeology is against, historians are against, so-called experts in uh, antiquity are against. I've never yet seen a documentary that supports the Bible. I've seen many documentaries uh, put out by so-called experts, and they all line up to attack this book. They say that David may have lived, but we can't prove it. They say that Saul may have lived, but we can't prove it. They say Solomon may have lived, but we can't prove it. Undermine your faith in the book, and yet they don't undermine your faith in Catholicism, do they? Or Islam. Oh no. They'll undermine your faith in the book. Why is that? Because they are against the book, of course. For, for again, lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of the days that thou shalt lie... Upon it thou shalt bear their iniquity forty days. Forty days Moses was with the Lord in the mount. Forty days Elijah was with the Lord on the mount. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to number of the days, three hundred and ninety days. So the Jewish uh, calendar is different to ours. Slightly we go to, what, 365 days of a year. They go 390. So shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Uh, and when thou hast accomplished them lie again on thy right side and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of judah forty days forty days forty days i have appointed thee each day for a year go back to jonah of course jonah three four again and jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey it took him a day to get there and he cried and said yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown you got forty days to get your house in order that's a lot of time forty days I mean, four moments, uh, or four minutes, would be enough for most people. Four days, that's incredibly gracious. Fourteen days, that's a long time, but forty days? Yet forty days, and Nineveh, modern-day Iraq, shall be overthrown. Go to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. So Moses, like I say, spent forty days up on the mount with the Lord, and we profiled Moses many weeks ago. And of course, he was speaking to Jesus. Elijah spent forty days with the Lord, and he too was speaking to Jesus. Everything has been given to Jesus. If you are a saved Jew, he is your everlasting father. If you are a Christian or saved Gentile, he is your older brother. And if you are an unsaved person, he is your judge. 
I mean, everything has been given to him by the Father. Everything. You can never exalt him enough. During the thousand-year reign, just to put a bit more clarification on what I just said, during the thousand-year reign, saved Jews that look forward uh, to the arrival of the Messiah will see Jesus as their everlasting Father, will worship him as their everlasting Father. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. For us, the church, body of Christ, he will always be our older brother. But for the unsaved, great white throne judgment, he will be their judge. Acts chapter 1, Acts uh, chapter 1. Let's see if I can find the verse. I've got a lot of verses in my mind uh, this morning. I'm reading five books at the moment simultaneously. Yeah, verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. That has been removed from all your non-King James Bibles. Uh, being seen of them 40 days, being seen of them 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. To him also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father which saith he, ye have heard of me. Go back to the book of Jonah. So 40 days is a good biblical number. Ezekiel was given 40 days to lie on his left, to lie on his right, picturing Israel's sin. And in the context of Ezekiel chapter 4, it's Judah, it's Israel, two different parts of Israel for the day when Christ died on the cross. If you will, he covered the sins of the Jew and the Gentile. Paul says there's three groups of people. There is the Jew, the Gentile and the church. So if you're not saved, you are either a Jew, lost, or if you are saved, you are no longer a Gentile, you are Excuse me, if you're saved, you're in the church. If you are lost, you are an unsaved Jew. And if you are lost, you're an unsaved Gentile. Three groups of people. Once you get saved, Galatians chapter 3 says you, uh, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male or female, bond nor free. We are all one in Christ. So allow me to recap it one more time. If you're not saved, God sees you as a lost Jew. If you're not saved, he sees you as a lost Gentile. If you're saved, he sees you as the church. You are part of the church, the body of Christ. Jonah chapter 3, Jonah chapter 3, look at verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. Three parts to this one verse. So the people, corporate prayer, corporate salvation. So the people of Nineveh believed God, positive, and proclaimed a fast, positive, and put on sackcloth, positive, from the greatest of them, imagine that today, from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. Sackcloth and ashes was what was done back in antiquity to picture grief and remorse. If you go back to Queen Elizabeth I, the Spanish Armada had been mobilised and uh, you had hundreds of ships sailing from Spain. At the time, that was the most powerful armada to ever sail the seas. Only uh, Dunkirk and D-Day would supersede that. But... During the time of Elizabeth I, under siege all of her time, 44 years, Queen of England, the Virgin Queen. If it hadn't been for Walsingham, she would have sunk probably. Yep. And the Spaniards were coming for Britain time after time. They were like fanatics. In fact, they called it the Holy War, which is what the Muslims called it, Jihad. And she said to her leaders of the time, go to prayer. And they did, like the king would say to Britain during World War II, go to prayer. And they did. And you got these ships sailing from Spain in mass numbers. And uh, we are from Spain originally before our family arrived in uh, or before our relatives made it to Ireland and then to Britain and uh, I was speaking to our good brother from Catalonia a couple of years ago about this and uh, he said yes your surname has a Catalonian connotation 
your surname has roots. Assuming your surname has roots from Catalonia. We always knew that we had Spanish roots and Irish roots, and of course British, English, and Scottish as well. Diverse, you understand, but there was a great panic. And during the Spanish mobilizing to get to Britain, backed by the Pope, a fanatic who thought he was infallible, who would later say he was the Word of God incarnate, talk about sacrilege, and uh, people like uh, some of the top Catholic leaders whose names escape, escape me at the moment uh, would say that the Pope is Jesus Christ. I've got the quotes, I've got the sources. What a thing to say. The Pope is Jesus Christ. And Papists continue to go to church every Sunday, believing that their Pope is Jesus Christ. The only reason why Paul VI took off the triple tiara, incidentally, was because he was a communist. And from Paul VI right up until this current Pope, they're all communists. And of course, communists don't believe in royalty, you understand. So that's why the Church of Rome took off the triple tiara. But the point is this, Elizabeth was prepared for the worst, hoping for the best. Hundreds of ships are sailing from Spain. They got a blessing from the most powerful man in Spain at the time, the king. The Pope is rubbing his hands with glee at last. I'm going to reclaim Britain for myself. And she stood firm, the Queen. She had Walsingham behind her, like I say. And it's like the Lord said this, there's no way you papists are going to retake Britain. No way. I'm going to give you Cromwell. I'm going to give you James the Sixth and First of England. I'm going to give you the King James Bible. That book, which I'm holding in my hands this morning, will transform the world. And uh, I'll give you Britain, America, Australia, Canada, New Zealand. And those five countries, directly and indirectly, will transform the entire world. But she was panicking. Elizabeth, she has, or she was prepared to put on sackcloth and ashes. The nation went to prayer. And of course, by the grace of God, those ships were sunk around Ireland. Our relatives, we believe, survived those ships, made it to Ireland, and of course became Irish citizens. Same would take place during World War II. During the uh, Dunkirk fiasco, the king said go to prayer, and the country did. And uh, figuratively, the king put on sackcloth and ashes. Prayers were said all over the UK, and the Lord heard those prayers. He spared Britain from the Nazis, mostly Catholic, and he spared uh, Britain from the Spaniards, all Catholic, going back to the incident of the Spanish Armada. Jonah chapter 3, Jonah chapter uh, 3, go back to verse 4 again. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. He's moving, he's got a message for them. And he cried and said, yet 40 days, you've got 40 days, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown, burnt to the ground. Or so he was hoping. So the people of Nineveh believed God, that's positive like I say, and proclaimed a fast, that's positive like I say, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. It would have been nice had leaders throughout Britain's history done the same. It's rare to get leaders to repent. It's rare to get leaders to call for those to uh, pray for their country. It's always good to see leaders, of course, uh, go before the cameras and say, pray for such and such a country. It does happen, of course, but mainly it's done for theatre. It's done for uh, attention. In certain countries, it's expected to do that. So if you live in the Palestinian territories, quote-unquote, there's no such thing you understand, but if you live in the so-called occupied territory, their leaders will address the people regularly, and it's Allah this, Allah that, Allah Akbar, Muhammad this, Muhammad that. They really do, you know, have a lot to say about their God. And yet you ask a typical Muslim, what has Muhammad ever done for you? I mean, personally, they can't answer it, but they will worship him. They will worship Allah, and it's always Allah this, Allah that, and it's always something which they are very happy to speak about. So we can, we can uh, commend Jonah for what he has done. He has finally arrived in Nineveh. It's taken him a day to get there, uh, probably three days in total to uh, circle the entire area. He's also worried that if the Ninevites, which was the capital of Assyria, if they were to repent, they would be part of Jehovah's 
people. And you can understand him being uh, concerned about that. If you were a Roman Catholic pre-1965, and you were a real traditional Catholic pre-1965, it would have been uh, horrific for you and horrendous for you and absolutely revolting for you to think that Protestants could enter Catholic churches or be a part of the people of God. And many priests that Patrick knew back in the 1960s and 70s and early 1980s left the Church of Rome. Because they hated the idea that Protestants would be partakers of the Catholic system. They were fanatics, you see. And now, your average Catholic believes everyone goes to heaven, and nobody goes to hell. Which is ridiculous, of course. Let's keep reading on. 3.6 For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne. And he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Incredible. Elizabeth did this indirectly. The king of England did this indirectly. Churchill did this indirectly. Any country during any moment of crisis may do this indirectly, but to do this publicly? I mean, really? Could you imagine your leader going before the cameras tonight and getting on his knees and saying, I can't handle this. I'm just a filthy wretch. I'm nothing. I mean, could you imagine your leader doing that? Wherever you live in the world, listening to this message this morning, could you imagine your leader doing that? Any country, anywhere, at any time. You can't, can you? Even in Middle Eastern countries, their leaders are revered as gods to some extent. They pick their words very carefully. The Chinese would never do this. The North Koreans would never do this. Your African uh, dictator would never do this. But here, again, word of the Lord came unto the king, the king, the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, positive, and he laid his robe from him, positive, and covered himself with sackcloth, positive, and sat down. You got a picture there of a man getting up, taking off his robe, picture of our sinful nature, and putting on sackcloth and ashes, and then sitting down. There's a picture of our atonement. 900 B.C.? There's a picture there of a man getting up, coming to the Lord, naked. Matthew 22, the rich man's having, or the king is having a banquet. A guy breezes in, he's not wearing the right outfit. And the king says to him, who are you? How do you get in here? And he says to his uh, aides, bind him hand and foot, so on and so forth. Cast him into outer darkness. There's a picture of a man at the great white throne judgment, not wearing Christ's imputation. Not wearing Joseph's multicolor coat, you understand, I'm sure. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, they all heard it, they couldn't miss it. And he rose from his throne, positive, he gets up. And he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Right now, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. The atonement is finished, it is done. There's no more work for Christ to do when it comes to our atonement. And here, in an incredible roundabout way, you've got a picture of our Saviour. Getting up, throwing off his robe. And putting on sackcloth and ashes, Christ is, is uh, carrying our sins. Is a lamb, is a sin bearer for us. Going back to Ezekiel, Ezekiel on your left forty days, on your right forty days, left right. Israel's covered, Judah's covered. Jesus Christ goes to the cross, and he is left right, if you will. He's got a thief on one side, a thief on the other side. Again, you can't make this stuff up. This book was written by somebody who knows far more than I do. I mean, I wouldn't make this stuff up. I couldn't even come up with this sort of stuff. But it's here. One more time, for word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is real repentance, like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a little guy, and on one occasion Jesus came to his town, he wanted to see Jesus, got up into a tree, humiliating, climbing up a tree, the wealthiest man in Israel, probably at that time, and people saying, is that Zacchaeus, going up the tree? What's that fool doing? Wealthy man, wearing nice clothes, designer clothing, and he's climbing up the tree, and all laughing at him, saying, what a character, what a fool. And here the king is getting up. People are aware that the king is getting up. He's taken off his royal clothing. He's wearing dust and ashes, sackcloth and ashes, uncomfortable to wear. 
Luther would uh, wear this particular clothing before he was saved. About 15 years ago, a member of the British cabinet, a Roman Catholic, part of the Opus Dei cult, who would have thought it? Would whip herself? Would wear rough clothing? Would bleed? This isn't 1,500 years ago, this is 15 years ago. And she was a senior member of the Blair government. Beating herself, whipping herself, Luther would do the same. Never got any peace. And of course that is also demon possession. Cutting yourself, whipping yourself, that's not Bible. That's devil possession. So I like this verse from verse 6. How the king arose from his throne, laid his robe from him, dismisses his own righteousness, if you will. Covered him with sackcloth, not nice to wear, pretty rough actually. Coarse, it makes your skin come out in a rash. And he sat in ashes. Catholics believe this is in reference to Ash Wednesday. And they take these verses out of context. They may put the ash on the forehead, but they don't wear sackcloth. I've never seen a priest ever wear sackcloth, not publicly. Opus Dei do it. They are super religious, of course, but it's a, it's a wrong type of a religion. 3.7 And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way. And from the violence that is in their hands. He's like Nebuchadnezzar. Back in Daniel 4, is it? He writes a decree. And he basically says, if you don't believe what I believe, I'm going to kill you all. That's what Constantine did back in the 4th century. So for today, this wouldn't be relevant to anybody. But of course, be mindful of this. For the Old Testament, God is dealing with the nations. New Testament, he's dealing with people. Individuals. So I'm not going to be overly hard on the king. His heart's in the right place, I'm sure. Nebuchadnezzar's heart was in the right place. Nebuchadnezzar was a saved man by Daniel chapter 4. And here, this king was also, we believe, a saved man. But the question gets asked, what would cause the uh, people in uh, this generation to repent? I've been a Christian almost 20 years, Patrick, more than me. And we've been all over the country preaching. We've spoken to thousands of people. Maybe 10, 20,000 people, maybe 30, 40,000. Mm, yeah. We think we've given out over a million tracts. Yeah. We're not boasting, it's just a fact. Yeah. And I've seen a few repents, and he's seen a few repents. And I've led a few to the Lord, and he's led a few to the Lord on the street, by the street. Yeah. And we get nice emails from people who say, thanks for, your, uh, thanks for your videos. We got an email a while ago from a lady who had been at a witch fest event in South London. Uh, this is years ago, probably. We were there 12 years ago, 14 years ago. And it was a rough outreach, I can tell you. Yeah. And they were putting spells on us inside this witch fest event. And putting dust on us. And uh, just having a good laugh at us, really. And apparently this lady was inside with her witches, doing her spells and her bells and what have you. And having a great time, pointed hats. And about four or five years ago, we got an email from her saying, uh, thank you very much, uh, by the way, brothers, brothers. <laughs> uh, I want you to know that I'm now born again. I want to thank you for being at the Witch Fest event many, many years ago. But the question gets asked, what would result in so many people? 120,000 getting saved. Well, a total solar eclipse took place on June the 15th, 763 BC, which may have helped in resulting in Nineveh's repentance. The problem with that is it's 100 years out, but it's worth just putting on uh, tape for the record. Also... There are Assyrian historical books which affirm numerous examples of short-lived and regional and national periods of repentance. So, take your pick. It could have been a solar eclipse 
perhaps it could have been uh, Jonah's appearance, perhaps. They were known to repent, they were known to turn uh, to the Lord every so often. But I think, as Paul would say, the preaching of the, go- preaching of the gospel is foolishness. That's the Lord's MO, as they say, that's his form. He likes to use preaching uh, to get people saved. So I'm going to leave it uh, with the Lord. Allow the Lord to take the glory, not some solar eclipse. And nonetheless, when Jonah arrives, he preaches and the king throws off his clothes. And again, seven and eight in our clothes. And he caused the king to be proclaimed and published. You're told to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Gospel means good news, good tidings. Raise up your voice. Let your voice be heard. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles. This is like a commandment. And yet it's not necessary. But you're dealing with a nation. A heathen nation. Pre-Christ. This is how they did business if you if you will. Saying let neither man nor beast. Man nor beast. Herd nor flock taste anything. So the animals can't eat or drink. The people cannot eat and drink. This is a compulsory fast. Concerning animal and beast. Because part of this uh, generation's culture. Or part of their existence. Would be the participation of animals. Which would be used to. Uh, worship Dagon so the animals are parts of the worship service so the king says not only are we going to be fasting so too were the animals incredible let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything let them not feed nor drink water so the animals are now on a fast but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God yea let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. We will discuss this more next week. Repentance. What is it? What is it not? As of right now in King James circles. Repentance is a very hotly contested subject. If you go online and type in the word repent. Repentance. Or believe. Or blood of Christ. And I've got the figures and the uh, stats. Which I'll read next week. Uh, I've got the breakdown in the Bible. As to what is mentioned more. Uh concerning blood, uh, faith, repentance, and so forth. If you go online and do your own research, the church is split right down the middle on this. What is repentance? What does it mean? And we will discuss that more next week. So I'll say this very finally. What you've seen this morning is Jonah, a saved Jew, dying, I believe, going into hell, I believe, seeing what perhaps, perhaps, don't quote me, but perhaps what that American diver heard, uh, Christo heard, that missing US diver perhaps heard, it shook him up. He came back. He came back up out of the tomb, out of the fish. He has changed physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He's driven to preach to the Ninevites, and he tells them what the Lord told him to tell them. Unlike Moses, who shied away from it. Unlike Aaron, the sea. There's something in the sea. There's something in the waters. Revelation uh, chapter twenty says how the sea gave up her dead. Uh, picturing, of course, the great white throne judgment. Many ships have gone missing. Many planes have gone missing many boats have gone missing the bermuda triangle is a strange part of the world as is honolulu like i say in hong kong but i gave you revelation 9 which dealt with these devils demons unclean spirits these mutants uh, coming up out of the out of the uh, earth locusts and scorpions and like i say revelation 20 speaks about the sea giving up her dead and of course the sea gave up uh jonah and jonah comes up out of the sea out of the fish and that, uh, of course, would have sent shockwaves uh, through uh, Nineveh. If you go back to 1921, maybe slightly off here, but 1921, General Allenby, 
went into Israel and he was Britain's top general at the time and he wouldn't walk through, excuse me, he wouldn't uh, go on horseback through the streets of Jerusalem out of reverence for Christ. So he got off the horse and he walked through and they thought to themselves this, we're going to have problems with these Muslims, hotheads you see. And when they were told what his name was, Allenby, Allah, they were on their faces. A great prophet has arrived in Jerusalem, 1921, I think it was from memory. And of course they were as good as gold, no problem whatsoever. So maybe uh, when Jonah arrived in uh, Nineveh, same sort of a thing. Dagon has arrived. Dagon has become flesh, I don't know. And Dagon has arrived, we're going to uh, fall on our knees. Here's the verse from Revelation 20:13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. So Christ will judge you if you're lost. If you're saved, he is your older brother. If you are a Jew on the new earth, he is your everlasting father. Again, it's all about him. This book is about a man being a king. It's about a kingdom being David's kingdom. And I'll say one last time that maybe Jonah appeared in a picture, if you will, of Dagon. And that played a part in their repentance. And with Allenby, when he got to Jerusalem, 1917, no, 19, I think it's 1917 actually, not 1921, 1917. They said to themselves, Allenby, Allah, on their faces. And they were as good as gold for maybe a year or two before they started to kill uh, Jews and British soldiers. But that's another subject for another day. So over the last 11 or 12 weeks, I've been reading Jonah every day. The more I read it, the more I understand it, the more I understand it, the more I can preach it. And it's always interesting what you rediscover, the more you read it. Go back to Jonah chapter 1, look at verse 9 again. And he said unto them, Jonah, speaking to the mariners, mariners, on a boat governed by Gentiles, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. The dry land, go to chapter 2, look at verse 10 again. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So scripture for scripture, what he would say back in chapter 1, came to pass in chapter 2. I don't think he really knew what was going to occur when his day began. He had no idea he would be in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And yet that is, is exactly what took place. Resurrection, resuscitation, take your pick. But I go back to chapter 2, verse 6. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. So as far as he was concerned, corruption had set in like rigor mortis. And as a result of corruption setting in, he had to be resurrected. He had to be made alive again. And I will say this one final time that as far as I am aware and concerned he died and he's a good picture as i say of the lord jesus christ please go to ezekiel chapter 3 ezekiel chapter 3 i finished ezekiel night before yesterday and i read all of daniel yesterday and i will hopefully begin lord willing hosea perhaps tonight and i say that not to boast but to encourage anyone who is listening to this broadcast to read their bibles as often as you can the Greats that went before us paid a huge price for the book. Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel chapter 3, look at verse 5 if you will. For thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech, or of an hard language, but to the house of Israel. House of Israel, Ezekiel being son of man, picture of the Lord Jesus Christ going to house of Israel. Jesus Christ will go to the house of Israel. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him. To them he gave power to become the sons of God, you understand, of course. 3.6 not to many people of a strange speech and of a hard language, 
whose words thou canst not understand, surely, had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee. So Ezekiel, if you had been sent to the Gentiles, you would expect things to be difficult. You're speaking in Hebrew. They are speaking in ancient Greek, perhaps, or a dialect or two. And as Jehovah is saying, quite simply, had you been sent to those people, it would have been understandable for such to reject you. But no, you go into the house of Israel. Contrast that to the Lord Jesus Christ going to the house of Israel. And you would have thought Jesus going to the house of Israel, they would have welcomed him with open arms. Far from it. Jeremiah would have been welcomed with open arms. Far from it. Ezekiel would have been welcomed with open arms. Far from it. For thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of a hard language. Like the mariners uh, on board a boat going from A to B. But to the house of Israel. Not to many people of a strange speech and of a hard language. Whose words thou canst not understand. Surely had I sent thee to them. They would have hearkened unto thee. Like Jonah and co. Jonah, a saved Jew, goes to the Gentiles. They repent, get saved. But Jonah, going to the Jews, can't get them saved. They don't repent. You see what I'm trying to get across this morning, I am sure. 3 7. But the house of Israel were not hearken unto thee, for they were not hearken unto me. For the house of Israel are impudent, impudent and hard hearted. Impudent means shameless, no fear. For the house of Israel are impudent and hard hearted, or hard hearted. Go back to the book of Jonah. So just a quick detour to show you that the prophets had many similarities. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and especially Jonah, picture Jesus. Jesus would preach to some Gentiles, but for the most part, he would preach to Jews. Ezekiel was sent exclusively to the house of Israel, as was Isaiah. And of course, Jeremiah as well. And they had a lot of pushback, a lot of indifference. So let's continue. This will be week number seven. And last week, we almost... Arrived at the four hour mark, looking at the tiny book of the book of Jonah. And we pray the Lord will bless today's message. Please fill me with your spirit. Bless the word of God as it goes through the internet. And we pray people will get a blessing. Come to understand what Jonah was sent to do. How he had free will. And, uh, and how you had a sovereign uh, control over him. Over everything, Lord. And although he was stubborn, rebellious. A bit like the house of Israel, which we just looked at from Ezekiel chapter 3 eventually he bowed the knee and did your will and we pray for your blessing this morning lord in jesus name amen and amen, amen. jonah chapter 3 jonah chapter 3 go back to verse 3 so jonah arose i went unto nineveh according to the word of the lord now nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days journey so wherever he was he's got to travel three days to get to nineveh modern day iraq like i say verse 4 and jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey takes him a day to Reach the heart of Nineveh. If you were to go from south to north or north to south, it takes you a while to go from Scotland to Cornwall or vice versa. And once you arrive in, shall we say, Scotland, for example, Edinburgh, for example, it takes you maybe half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour perhaps to reach the capital of Edinburgh or go far south. Turo in Cornwall takes you a while to get into the heart, the centre of the city you understand. Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Forty days. If you go back to the book of Genesis, it speaks about forty days until the world will be flooded. In fact, it says for forty days and forty nights, rain would come from above and underneath and would flood the entire world. That causes a global flood. Elijah spent forty days with the Lord on the mount. Moses spent 40 days with the Lord on the mount. Jesus spent 40 days with the early church. Acts chapter 1, we looked at that last week. 
briefing them, preparing them for ministry, for hardship. So 40 is an important figure in scripture. 40 days to get right is incredibly gracious. When I became a Christian, it took me probably three years to eventually uh, realize I had to be born again. Some people get it straight away. Some people take three or four decades. But here you've got religious people, very religious, very superstitious. And the Lord says to Jonah, tell them I will give them 40 days to get their houses in order. As far as we are concerned, as Westerners, a typical month is, what, 28 days? Sometimes 30, 31 days. But 40 days is just over a month. So they had a lot of time to get their houses in order. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Completely burnt to the ground. And of course Jonah, a zealot, as would be one of the Lord's apostles, was hoping for the worst. Hoping for the worst. Hoping that this group of people around, what, 600,000? Pretty formidable figure. He was hoping that they would reject Jehovah's mercy. He's worried, you see, that they may turn to Jehovah and receive him, believe on him, as many Jews had done. And to be fair to Jonah, he was jealous. Paul speaks about godly jealousy over in the second epistle to the Corinthians. So we can understand, to some extent, uh, Jonah's concern. He's dragging his heels, and yet he's still preaching. He is still moving. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast. And put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them, from top to bottom. Remarkable. Most people, if they get saved, it starts at the bottom and sometimes will move up. It's very rare to have a king or a queen get saved, proclaim it to the world. If I think back over British history, I can think of perhaps one or two, no more than three monarchs that were very religious. But I can't say for sure if they were saved. King James of Scotland, being the sixth of Scotland, first of England, perhaps... As he was dying, he said he put his faith in the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is pretty near to affirming faith in the blood of Christ. Henry VIII, not everybody sure. Some say he went back to the Church of Rome. Others say he did not. Elizabeth I, I don't think she was ever saved to begin with. Cromwell, I believe he was saved. The Lord Protector, and he started to go down to James II, Charles II, George III, who lost us America, right down to Victoria, who I don't believe was saved, although some say D.L. Moody would witness to her, and yet one of her favourite aides was a Muslim gentleman. And she was very close to him. She was so close to him that she allowed mosques to open in England, thanks to Victoria. Go down through the line, George V, is it? Uh, King of England, uh, George the... George VI. George VI. George V would be his father. Yes. And of course, Elizabeth II, the current monarch. So take your pick. But it's rare, if you look back through American history just briefly, or Canadian history, or Australian history, or New Zealand history, I think, in fact, two Australian premiers both offer themselves as Christian. And yet, look at the denominations that they are affiliated with. Very questionable. So it's rare. It's rare for a king to lead the way. And again, it says how they believed God, verse 5, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. Fascinating. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Go to Romans chapter 4. There are two dimensions to your salvation. If you see a job online, and you like what you see, you are the first person to like what you see. You are the first person to see what you have seen. And if you apply for it, the chances are you are the only one who knows you have applied for it. Okay? You may get a call for an interview. You may go along for the interview. And then people see you sitting in the waiting room, waiting to be interviewed. 
And if they like you, they offer you the job, you accept it. Now, everybody knows that you are a member of a particular outfit, company. You understand what I'm saying? So it starts with you. You see something. You like what you see. You apply for it. They like what they see. They check your resume. They check your CV, your curriculum vitae. They invite you for an interview. They ask you questions. You ask them questions. You negotiate a salary, etc., etc., etc. And after a while, an offer is made and you sign up for the job, and you are now working for such a place. Two dimensions to your application for a job. It starts with you, and then, like I say, people see you sitting in the waiting room, and then you are offered the job, and now everybody knows that you've been employed by such a place. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. So let's look at repentance. Let's look at the new birth. Let's spend a few moments this morning looking at the most important subject in Scripture. And like I said last Sunday, the King James community has spit right down the middle When it comes to repentance, what is it? How does it work? How do we understand it to be? You've got really just two views. The first view is is that you are to turn from all of your sins in order to be saved. The other view is is that you are to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And then you start turning from all of your sins. They can both be wrong, but they can't both be right. Got to be careful with this. Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father... As pertaining to the flesh hath found Abraham, our father. He got saved, incidentally, before he was circumcised. He got saved before he was even called a Hebrew. He got saved by believing. And then after he was saved, he circumcised himself and his sons. If you will, a picture of baptism. But even then, that's a bit of a stretch. Because, of course, no woman is ever circumcised. No woman is ever given the FGM treatments. Only men were circumcised. So you've got to be careful when you try and harmonize rituals back in the Old Testament with ordinances in the New Testament. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Well, absolutely. If he got saved by being a good godly man, if he got saved by doing his works, which many people believe is how he got saved, then of course he can boast. He can glory. He can turn around and say to people, look at me, everybody. I got saved by my works. A lot of problems with that, of course. For what saith the scripture? And that's the question. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. The just shall live by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Well, of course, if you could work for it, God would owe it to you. And he doesn't owe you anything. Grace is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. It's a free gift. Now to him that worketh, Is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt? But to him that worketh not, verse 5, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not, will not, will not impute sin. Go to James chapter 2. So Romans uh, Romans chapter 4 is pretty clear. Abraham believed, was justified. David reinforces that. Uh, look at it this way. Abraham believed, pre the law, by faith alone, was justified. David believed in the Lord, during the law, was justified. And here we are, many thousands of years later, believing on the Lord and are justified. If you think about the account back in Jonah chapter 2, and we will return in a few moments, No animal sacrifice was offered. No outward works per se were offered. They believed. And then put on sackcloth and ashes. And then turned from their wickedness. 
Sansa falls. So there are two dimensions, like I say, to your salvation. It's, it's, it's critical that we get this. Critical that we get this. In fact, keep your hand in James 2 and go back to Romans 4. What shall we say then? That Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Absolutely. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God. Going back to Genesis 12 from memory. 15 from memory. 17 from memory. And it was counted unto him for righteousness put to his account. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. The thought of God owing you salvation is just abhorrent. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, that's you and I, his faith is counted for righteousness, imputation, faith alone. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, without works, without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. Forgiven. If you think about the account back in Jonah 2, they believed and the Lord pardoned them and yet no blood was shed. So their salvation would be put to Christ many years later. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, not just covered, but forgiven, and whose sins are covered. It goes together, you see. Forgiven, covered. Blessed is a man to whom the Lord will not, will not, will not impute sin. Go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. So Romans 4 is dealing with your faith in the presence of the Lord. He sees your heart, first and foremost. You see that job online. You, you are the first person to see that job online. You apply for it. And like I say, if they like you and if you like them, they offer you the job. And now it's major news. You can broadcast it to the world. James chapter 2. James chapter 2 picks up on the other side of this dimension, this dual dimension. It's like two sides of a coin, heads and tails. You understand, of course. James 2.14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works. Can faith save him? This covers your state. This covers your activity. This covers your relationship in the presence of other people. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, a fellow Christian, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace. Be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are evil for the body. What doth it profit? Nothing at all, of course. If you are saved and you can help somebody, you should help somebody. It could be financial help, it could be physical help, it could be emotional help, it could be spiritual help. The whole point of James's epistle is to push the early church, Jewish church, to love their brothers and sisters more. And I'll tell you, I fall short in this area. Last night I was thinking about the two main commandments, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. And I thought, I don't keep either of those two commandments, do you? I mean, who do you know that loves God completely, totally, unconditionally, Gives him everything all of the time. And who do you know that loves their neighbour as themselves? I don't know anybody. And you are told to do that. Ah, uh, James 2.16. And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, and be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding, in spite of this, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Nothing at all. You blaspheme the Saviour. They go away disgruntled, feeling like they got a raw deal. They know you can help them. And you know you can help them. But you... Decide not to. Even so, faith, 17. If it hath not works, is dead being alone. It's worthless. It's worthless. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. You may brag about being a great soul winner, a great Christian. You may say that I got the scripture down. I got the word of God down. But there's no fruit. There's no growth. A man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. 
show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. They go together, you see. Two sides of the coin, heads and tails. You won't find a coin with just heads. You won't find a coin with just tails. You won't find a place of employment where it's just the employer presence and no employee, or the employee and no employer. They go together, you see. It's a package. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Islam believe in one God. Church of Rome believe in one God. Many people believe in one God. So what? Of course, keep in mind that the devils cannot be redeemed. Christ didn't come to die for their sins per se. He came to die for the sins of the world. Only mankind can believe on the, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Devils, unclean spirits cannot be redeemed. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. You do well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? So Galatians 5 speaks about the fruit of the spirits. And there are nine, I think from memory. Every Christian, if he's worth his weight in gold, if he's worth anything, should produce some level of fruit after being saved for a period of time. If you think of Nicodemus, three times Nicodemus came to the Lord Jesus Christ, or three times he's connected with the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts back in John 3, he comes as a skeptic, I suppose. Then it transforms, he is debating with his colleagues, middle parts of John, I think it's eight from memory, and it concludes with a public confession of faith. He is now bartering for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are three stages to one's growth, if you will. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. So Nicodemus would be a good example of that. He stepped up to the mark along with Joseph of Arimathea and was able to secure the Saviour's body. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now keeps in mind, this is where a lot of people get tied up. When Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him, he didn't travel alone. If you go back to the book of Genesis, he took a couple of guys with him. You've got at least five people present. Or maybe four people, but we'll say five for argument's sake. You've got Abraham, you've got Isaac. You've got a couple of men, perhaps three men, that have gone up with Abraham. So four, or perhaps five. They are going up, they are seeing what Abraham is about to do. So when it says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Uh, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar, yes, keep it in mind. But of course Abraham was already born again, already regenerate by this stage. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? And by his works was faith made perfect. Well, of course, perfect meaning complete. He's about to sacrifice his son. His son can see what is going on. He can see what he's about to do. His men can see what is about to be done. He's got the knife out. He's got the altar set up. The fire is about to burn. People can see what Abraham is about to do. But he's not saved by sacrificing his son. He's sacrificing his son because he was saved. You've got to get this clear, people. Two views on repentance. Turn from all of your sins to be saved. If that's the case, why are you told to confess your sins? In 1 John chapter 1. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you repent of your sins after you are saved. That makes a lot more sense, and I'll give you some statistics very shortly. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by his works was faith, 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 made perfect, complete, and the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. And it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Way back before circumcision. Way back before doing anything. Way back in Genesis 12, 15 and 17 for memory. Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Imputation. And he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified. And not by faith only. That concerns your state. Not your standing. Get it clear please. Standing and state they are not the same thing. 
I'm an, I am a new man. I am an old man. I'm a son of Adam. I'm a son of God. I am saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. Standing estates. Going back to the fruit bearing uh, analogy from Galatians 5. Going back to Nicodemus. He starts to grow very slowly. And like I say, John 3, John 8, John 19. He's come alive. And we are told by tradition that Nicodemus travelled to Britain, perhaps, with the gospel, perhaps. But he was saved by the end of John's gospel. Likewise also was not Rahab, the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. They saw her faith. She meets Joshua's spies. A conversation takes place. She says to them, we know who you are. We know what Jehovah has done for you. We know that he has saved you, going back to Moses and uh, Pharaoh. And because she knew all about that, and she was aware that God could step in and do miracles, protect his people. She put her faith in the one true God. And as a result, as a result, she was able to deal with the people in question. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works. Yeah, in the presence of other people, not in the presence of God. When she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Also, she lied. Go back to Joshua. Read it sometime. I'm reading Joshua at the moment. And I'm reading... Acts, and I'm reading, uh, or I will begin reading uh, Hosea tonight. I'm also reading uh, Jonah, and I'm preparing for Psalms. But if you go back to Joshua, she lies. She lies. They say to her, where have the men gone? And she she said, I don't know where they've gone. Mm. But she was saved. But she lied. Jeremiah was told to lie. Read Jeremiah sometime. On one occasion, the king says to Jeremiah, he says, when they come to you, like the princes, and ask you, what has been taking place, tell them A, B, and C. And he tells them A, B, and C. He is restrictive with the truth. He lies. God's people sin. God's people don't always do what they should do. But the point is, she was able to do what she did. And as a result, people got saved. But of course, she wasn't saved for her works because she was saved. Works followed, you understand, I am sure. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only, going back to state, not standing. Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers, Anna sent them out another way. So they saw her faith, and her faith produced works. Abraham's men saw his faith, and his faith produced works. Again, two sides of a coin, two sides of a applicant applying for a job. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So, obviously, for as the body without the spirit is dead, if you are human, and have no spirit in your body, you are dead. So you need the spirit of man to make you alive. So faith without works is dead also. It goes together. If you are a Christian, if you are worth anything, you will produce fruit. It may not be 100%, it may not be 60%, it may not be 30%, but you will produce fruit to some extent. One more time. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Go to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. So John 3 speaks about being born of water, which is your first birth, and being born of the spirit, which is your second birth. First uh, Samuel helps us to understand this part of scripture. First Samuel chapter 16. Uh, look at verse 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. Going back to one of Jesse's sons, the Lord knew who he wanted, and who he did not want. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. Now get this clear. For man looketh on the outward appearance. James chapter 2. I watch you, you watch me, we watch each other, we are very visual. They say that man falls in love with what he sees, whereas woman falls in love with what she hears. For man looketh not, excuse me, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So this one verse way back in 1 Samuel 16, 7, 
helps us to harmonise Romans 4 and James chapter 2. One more time. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance. Go back to the fruit that you produce. But the Lord looketh on the heart. Go back to Jonah chapter 3 please. Jonah chapter 3. Look at verse 7. And he calls it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles saying. Let neither man nor beast. Herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. So man and beast are both put together. Man and beast are both expected to come together. Because parts of the uh, heritage of these heathens. Way back in 900 BC. Would involve animals being part of the worship service. So we can on the one hand salute the king of Nineveh. Be appreciative to what he is trying to do. But like I said last week. Today when somebody gets saved. Uh, whether it's top or bottom of society, it's a personal thing. You can't push salvation on anyone. You can't push morality, really, on anyone. You can preach the gospel, and uh, Nicodemus, like I say, would be a good example of that. But you can't go beyond it. If you think of John Calvin back in Geneva, he pushed his way of life, his ideology, on his people. And that was problematic because people were being forced to conform to his way of life. The papacy would do this for centuries they would force people to conform or be put to the sword. Uh, Jonah 3.8 But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way. After you are saved, of course. And from the violence that is in their hands. Go to First Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, it's really imperative that we get this clear. Because, like I say, the King James community... It's split right down the middle when it comes to repentance. And uh, what we don't want to do is make the same mistake uh, that some of our friends and brethren do. Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, look at verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Work of faith, appropriate the atonement, put your faith into action. Uh, if you are saved, works will follow like I say. Look at verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God. Yes, after you were saved, of course. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So you believed, and then you turned, and you are waiting for the Lord to return. Go to Galatians uh, chapter 3. Galatians uh, chapter 3. There's no issue when it comes to harmonizing salvation. How God works with salvation. If you take the time to read the scriptures. Rightly divide the word of truth. You should know what is happening. What is going on. What is being spoken about. Standing in state. Never the same of course. Galatians 3. Look at verse 1. O foolish Galatians. Who hath bewitched you. That ye should not obey the truth. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ. Hath been evidently set forth. Crucified among you. Saved Gentiles. Deceived. Bewitched. By Judaizers. Works. Righteous. People. Have never gone away, of course. Uh, of course. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. How were you saved, Galatians? How were you saved? Were you saved by your works, keeping the law, which Romans 3 says is impossible, or by receiving the Spirit, the just shall live by faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This only would I learn of you. 3.2. Received you the spirits by the works of the law. The new birth by the works of the law. Or by the hearing of faith. 
Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? Well, of course not. And this one part of Galatians chapter 3 should help anyone who is tied up with works to get out of it. Go back to the book of Jonah, please. Jonah 3, Jonah 3, look at verse 9. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? A good question asked by unsaved heathen, and yet they are producing fruit. They are turning, they are trying to line up with the one true Jewish God. And God saw their works, that they turned from the evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. See, we think of John the Baptist preaching to the Jews for many weeks, many months. And part of his preaching would be to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And that would basically mean get into the water. Be baptized with sinners like everyone else. Don't be too proud. Don't be too righteous. Put yourself at the mercy of the Lord and receive him. 3.9 again. Who can tell if God will turn and repent? Who knows if God will turn and repent? That's what they are asking. And turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. If you think of society today, if you think of Hinduism uh, especially, they have many angry gods. If you go back to the Church of Rome, they too would teach and preach for many a year that Christ couldn't be approached directly. So you had to go via the mother and she would smooth things out. So there was an issue at hand and she was the good cop, if you will. He was the bad cop, if you will. So you can understand what's going through the minds of these savages. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. And God saw their works that they turned from the evil way. And God repented of the evil that he has said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. Go to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. The first time repentance turns up is way back in the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis 6. I think it's verse 6 from memory. Yes. And it repented the Lord. That he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Repented him. Grieved him. One more time. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. It grieved him. It grieved him. It upset him. It disturbed him. God didn't need to repent of sin, because God hasn't committed any sin. So repentance first mentioned back in Genesis chapter 6 is to change your mind do an about turn repentance appears 60 times in the King James Bible whereas believe belief appears 241 times the emphasis clearly is on faith alone which is what repentance means belief on the Lord through his divine blood to be saved Acts 20 28 the precious blood of Christ is mentioned 94 times in the King James Bible the cross is mentioned 28 times. That's less than half, or less than a quarter. Both are interlinked, of course, but without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9.22, Romans 3.25, Romans 5.9, Ephesians 1.7, Ephesians 2.13, Colossians 1.14, and even John 6.54, which is addressed to unsaved Jews. So faith in the blood is the main theme in the New Testament, not repentance towards or in the cross. So I wanted to look at those verses this morning to reinforce how salvation works. What is repentance? What is faith? What is believing? What does it mean to turn to the Lord? What repentance does mean and what it does not mean. The Ninevites turned in faith, believed on the message that Jonah would preach. The Lord saw their faith, how they turned from their wickedness. Going back to what Naaman would say. And based on that, he pardoned them and he forgave them. David said that's how it's always been. Abraham 
will be saved the same way, faith alone in the one true God. And of course, when Christ came, the sinless Son of God, he would die for their sins and cover all of our sins. And that's what James 2 is speaking about, but from the flip side of the coin. Faith produces works, and then your works will be seen in the presence of many people. You're not saved by your works. You're not kept saved by your works. You are saved by believing. But once you believe, once you believe, you will bring forth fruit, and that fruit will be seen. Fruit will always uh, come uh, via a new Christian or any Christian. It may not be a lot. It could even be uh, stunted for a period of time. But if you are saved, fruit will come, and that will allow you to have a a better testimony. That will allow you to shine more. And, of course, the first thing that somebody does when they get saved is to be baptized. And that is seen by many people, which will be found over in James 2. Again, justification in the sight of men, i.e. your works. Contrast that to justification in the sight of God, i.e. your faith, which only God and God alone sees. Please go back to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. And, Father, we ask you to bless today's message. We ask you to bless the reading and the presentation, the explanation when it comes to trying to understand some incredible stories from the Old Testaments and the New Testaments. And we ask you to bless now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Look at verse 5 again, if you will, please. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God. What else could they do? The ship is about to sink if you are on a plane, a train, or an automobile. And it is out of control. What else can you do? You start to pray, of course. And here you've got pagans praying to their God, lowercase g, and cast forth wares like hardware, like cargo that was in the ship into the sea. Why? To lighten it of them, to make the ship lighter. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay almost fast asleep. Go to Acts chapter 12. I am reading Acts at the moment, and yesterday I was able to finish Malachi. So, Lord willing, tonight or tomorrow, I will start reading Genesis. Read it, read it, read it. And perhaps one day I will understand it. Uh, Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12. So, Jonah is sleeping like a baby, not a care in the world. And, like I say, I'm reading through Acts at the moment. And from Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, I thought this was very interesting. Uh, Look at verse 6. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers could you sleep between two smelly gentiles could you sleep between two strangers i can't sleep on a plane a train or an automobile if it moves i cannot sleep peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains he's chained up and the keepers before the door kept the prison incredible verse seven and behold the angel of the lord came upon him and a light shined in the prison and he smote peter on the side and raised him up saying Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garments about thee, and follow me. Be reminiscent to what we looked at last week. The king of Nineveh cast off his garment, put on sackcloth and ashes. In type, a picture of imputation, of course. And he went out, verse 9, and followed him, and wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel. But thought he saw a vision. Go back to Jonah. In fact, from Jonah chapter 1, go back to verse 14 again. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord. So they've been praying to their God, lowercase g. Could be Dagon. It could be one of the many pagan gods from antiquity. And if you think of the incident from First Kings, when Elijah was taunting, mocking the Baalites. And it says they were praying to Baal. 
for hour after hour, cutting themselves, crying, making quite a commotion, and nothing happened, of course. And eventually, Jehovah would receive Elijah's sacrifice. The altar for memory was covered with water, and yet fire came down from heaven, consumed it. And Elijah said to one of his aides, round at the Baalites, kill them all. So if you are a prophet, or if you think you are a prophet, whether male or female, allow me to say this, that technically a prophet in scripture is expected to kill people if they cross Jehovah. Don't be too quick uh, to offer yourself as a prophet, because that's quite an office, I can tell you. One fourteen again, wherefore they cried unto the Lord, L-O-R-D, uppercase, Jehovah, textogrammaton, Yahweh, the one true God, and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. How about that? Innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So, just worth spending a few moments looking at those verses to see that when push comes to shove, the chances are that your religion is going to be worthless if it's not based on the book, the Word of God, the King James Bible, and of course, faith alone in Christ alone, or grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Go back to Jonah chapter 3. I want to continue to build on this miraculous conversion and pick it up from 3, 4. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words. Just eight words. No miracles. No trickery. No flattery. Just eight words. Pretty bleak message. A bit like Revelation 14. Fear God. Honor God. Give God glory. That's one of the last messages found in the book of Revelation. Chapter 14, from memory. And from memory after Revelation 15, 16, nobody gets saved. They're all on their way to hell. Yet 40 days, just over a month, and Nineveh, modern-day Iraq, like I say, the capital of the ancient world, pagan inside and out. Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he hoped that would take place. Jonah was a real character. And I was thinking about this this morning, trying to draw a parallel between Jonah's mindsets and people today. I'll give you two examples. They may not be very good, but I will try. If you go to China today... If you speak to people over the age of 80 especially and ask them to recall events during World War II, they have nothing good to say about Japan. Even to this day, there's a great hatred towards Japan. Back in the late 1960s, my grandfather was in a bar. It was a private bar and he was enjoying a drink with ex-servicemen. And one day a group of Japanese businessmen came into the bar, not particularly old, May not have been involved with World War II, but bear with me. And he was having a drink with his colleagues, and he could hear voices behind him. He knew straight away where the voices were coming from, what dialect, what people they were. They were Japanese, of course. And he froze, spoke to the owner of the bar, and said, get him out of here. 20 years after the war, still angry. And he said, many of my friends were severely treated. The Japanese were very good at skinning people alive. They would enjoy stringing up people, like the Viet Cong would do in Vietnam, and they would cut your skin off slowly but surely they would uh cut your ears off they would cut your toes off they would see how much pain you could endure and many british soldiers suffered terribly during uh world war ii and towards the end of world war ii britain decided to deploy the gurkhas and the gurkhas worked alongside the british army and the japanese were terrified of the gurkhas so i guess we could say this as a weak parallel that some of the older Chinese uh, citizens, 80 plus, still have a hatred of Japan to this day. Uh, my grandfather, like I say, 20 years after the war, still had an issue with Japan and anger. But, buy a Japanese car. but turn it around 
Imagine if my grandfather got saved. And the Lord said to him, get yourself to Japan, Battelle. Mm. Preach to the Japs. Mm. That would have been really tough, wouldn't it? Or get yourself to uh, China and speak to the Chinese people or the Communist Party of China. Incredibly tough. So that goes some way. One more time. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. A massive country, capital of Iraq. And you've got to understand what Nineveh was really all about. Keep your hand there and go to Revelation uh, chapter 2. I can honestly say, hand on heart, that I don't hate anyone per se. And I think Patrick can say the same. We may dislike people. Uh, we may avoid people. You're told to mark out those that preach another gospel, uh, cause division, so on and so forth. I've often thought, what would I say to a cardinal or a pope if I was to meet such? I once had a cardinal in my car over 20 years ago. I wasn't saved, of course, at the time. And I've come to realize this, that priests are very good at uh, flattering you, charming you. I saw a documentary on YouTube a couple of years ago. It was a Polish documentary about the Catholic Church in Poland concerning child abuse. Horrific to watch, just horrific. And a lot of undercover filming went on. Victims of child abuse would confront some of their aging priests, 80, 85, pretty old, and secret filming of the archbishops and bishops. And they treated their parishioners with absolute contempt. Absolute contempt. And I was shocked to see some of these victims of child abuse continuing to go to Mass. Continuing to receive the sacraments. Talk about a glutton for punishment. Revelation chapter 2. Uh, Revelation chapter 2. Look at verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Not literally. It's a picture of what he does look like but not a literal picture of what he looks like. We call this hyperbole language, metaphorical language. And I know thy works, I know thy works, and charity and service and faith, and thy patience and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. So far, so good. Notwithstanding, in spite of that, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, like Assyria, this is what Jonah was up against, you see. And to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Back in the Old Testament, the Gentiles were very good at getting the Jews to depart from Jehovah. To dance to their tune. To, be, uh, to behave like they would behave. To sacrifice their children, literally. To do things with animals, which is unthinkable. To sacrifice day and night. To treat themselves absolutely uh, appallingly. We call this devil possession. And I gave a space to repent of a fornication. Verse 21 and she repented not. She won't repent. She will not bow the knee. Behold, I will cast her into a bed. And them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Except they repent of their deeds. This is what we call spiritual fornication. Spiritual adultery. Not physical, but spiritual. And this is what ruined Solomon. It wasn't the physical side of it so much. It was, a phys it was the spiritual side of it. Not the physical side of it. God will put up with many things when it comes to his people. And we've looked at Abraham over the years. And David over the years. And Solomon. And other greats, but what really ruined Solomon was his spiritual, spiritual fornication, spiritual adultery. 23. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. One more, go to Revelation 17. So this is what Nineveh was really all about, Babylon. Also, there are many who think that the fallen angels which uh, we, we, uh, we read about from Genesis chapter 6, returned 
and uh, you got this half human, half angelic line, which caused a lot of uh, confusion. Goliath is one option, and of course Goliath had a brother who was also his son. There's a picture of incest, of course. So you've got a lot of unexplained activities going back to the Bermuda Triangle, going back to things we don't quite understand. Spiritual powers in the high, so on and so forth, or spiritual wickedness in the high places, I should say. Revelation 17, Revelation 17, look at verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, come here. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. The great whore, Jezebel, Nineveh, Babylon the Great, many waters, picturing powers, dominions, countries, many waters, the seven seas, seven continents, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, not physical, of course, but spiritual. And inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Most people today, if you were to poll such people, would say too that the Catholic Church is a wonderful institution. That's what they would say. And the Pope is a wonderful man. That's what they would say. And if you were to criticise the papacy and the Church of Rome, they would turn and rip you to shreds. Most people have no idea how wicked the Church of Rome is. And of course, she is a perfect counterfeit. She will steal God's glory. She will do all she can to seduce you with her rituals, her deeds and her beads. I remember years ago hearing a story about an atheist who used to go to our church. And he said to Patrick one day, he said, I don't believe in any of this. And he said to him, well, why are you going to Mass every week? And he was quite honest. He said, well, I love the theatre. I love all the theatre. I love the priest dressing up. I love the host being held up. I love the incense. I love the tabernacle. I love the altar boys. I love this. I love that. So on and so forth. And one day he went on the Alpha course, which of course the Church of Rome hijacked back in the early 1990s. And he started to ask many awkward questions. And because Catholics don't know their Bibles, they couldn't answer his questions. Questions like, uh, who did uh, Adam and Eve marry? Or who did their children marry, I should say? Who are these people on the earth that their children were marrying? Simple question. And of course, you know that Adam and Eve were brother and sister, produced children who married their children, who married their children, so on and so forth. But your average Catholic doesn't know their Bible and couldn't answer simple questions like descendants from Adam and Eve, people all over the earth. There must, there must have been another race before Adam and Eve arrived. And of course, there isn't. There was no other race. And he enjoyed uh, stirring it up, you see. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, a power base. She controls the world. You don't believe me? Go back to 2005. You had three American presidents fly to Rome, and I'll name them. You had uh, Bush Sr., you had uh, Bush Jr., you had uh, Bill Clinton, and Bush Jr. at the time was the incumbent's American president. And they spent not one, not two, not three, not four, but five days in Rome. Five days? Biggest man in the world, the most powerful man in the world. And on top of spending five days in Rome, when John Paul II died, these three characters... One, make that two, two professing Christians. Clinton says he's born again. George W. Bush Jr. says he's born again. Two professing Christians and Bush Sr., Skull and Bones men, got on their knees in the presence of a corpse. And you've got three American presidents, the Secretary of State, Bush Jr.'s wife, all paying homage to the Pope of Rome. I'll tell you something else. Same time, 2005, the future King of England was due to marry his long-term mistress, and he'd been penciled in for April, May, just after Easter from memory in uh, 2005. And Prince Charles said to his uh, mistress, soon to be second wife, 
uh, we need to postpone the marriage. And she said, what for? And he said, well, the Pope's just died. He's a wonderful man. Going back to uh, verses 1, 2, and especially the last part of verse 2, drunk with the wine of a fornication. And he said, we've got to go and pay our respects, our homage to the Holy Father. And he, he uh, delayed his marriage, postponed his marriage, flew to Rome. And for memory, one or two former British prime ministers were also present to pay homage to the Pope of Rome. Don't kid me. I know how this goes. Leaders all over the world fly to Rome. But to see three American presidents on their knees, and not one being a Roman Catholic in the presence of a dead Pope, is just disgusting. Look at verse 4. And the woman was arrayed, was arrayed in purple and scarlet colour, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. She's loaded. She's so wealthy. The richest church slash business on the face of the earth. Having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Jesus would take of the cup, picturing his presentation to Jehovah to become a sin offering. But here this cup is going to be turned into her judgment. Full of abominations, plural, and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, poor old Jonah. No wonder he hated Assyria so much. Terrified that they would turn to Jehovah, would be pardoned. They should have been destroyed, of course. But in Jonah's mind, he knows how merciful Jehovah is. Babylon the Great, not great in the sense of wonderful. Going back to that great city, Jonah 3.2. And also uh, from Jonah uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 2. But great in the sense of horrendous, wicked. Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Go back to Jonah. So, a quick detour just to help you, exp help you to understand why Jonah was so distressed over the thoughts of preaching to Nineveh. And like I say, you went to, or if you, would have, if you would have traveled to China today and speak to the older generation about Japan, or speak to my father, my grandfather's generation about World War II, they would tell you like it was, like it is. They wouldn't hold back absolute hatred to this day. But of course, you've got to move beyond that. But Jonah was a saved Jew, a fascinating character to read. Let's continue from Jonah chapter 3. Uh, look at verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. But of course in uh, Revelation, Jezebel chapter 2, chapter 17 will not repent. The Catholic Church will not repent. Which goes back to what we said last week when it comes to powerful people. And after last week's service I was reminded about Prince Edward VI. Son to Henry VIII. Mother was Jane Seymour of course. Was 15 years old when he died. Professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as, as did Anne Berlin. But of course history has smeared Anne Berlin, and uh, Prince Edward's very brief time on the earth has been overlooked. So there are some, not many, but there are some potentates who perhaps were saved, who put their faith in a potentate of potentates, but not many of course. Proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes, like Zacchaeus. Luke 19, climbs up a tree, makes a fool of himself. He's got bark all over him. He's got tree markings all over him. He's covered in uh, that slimy stuff. If you climb up a tree and he wants to see Jesus, he's a small man, you see. And he caused it, the king, verse 7, to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, a bit like Nebuchadnezzar, which we discussed last week, slightly overdoing it. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar would kill anybody 
who would go against his decree. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way. That comes after you are saved. And if you are saved, that's a lifelong experience. It's a lifelong task. It's not easy, of course. You have to turn every day to, uh, from sin to the Lord. You have to yield to him each and every day. You have to bring every thought and captivity to him each and every day. It's incredibly difficult. Uh, turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Like stop killing people like Cain would do. Stop aborting babies like doctors and nurses are doing all over the world. Who can tell if God will turn and repent, change his mind? We looked at that last week. And turn away from his fierce anger. The anger of the Lord is upon all nations. He hates all workers of iniquity. He's angry with the wicked every day. That we perish not, go to hell forever. And God saw their works. Outward act of an inward work. Going back to your baptism, if it's physical, can be seen in the presence of many people demonstrating that you've been born internally. Going back to justification in the sight of God. Contrast that to justification in the sight of man. And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil. He changed his mind. Postponed judgment for at least a hundred years. Nahum picks up on this. And Nahum says that a hundred years after this, God would basically wipe out the Ninevites. Mm. A future generation came along, didn't know Jehovah, like you find back in the early chapters of uh, Exodus. And a different Pharaoh came along who didn't know Jehovah, didn't know the children of Israel. And of course that Pharaoh, we, we believe, is probably Ramesses II. Times change, and with a change of time, judgment is now about to be uh, dispensed. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he has said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Go back to Acts chapter 14. So we have discussed over the last, I think this will be week number eight, hour five and a half from memory. Uh, we discussed why, why uh, it was possible, why so many people turned to the Lord. I've been street preaching on and off for 18 years, Patrick for over 20 years. Uh, we've been very fortunate to travel the UK and uh, some European countries. And I've led many to the Lord directly, and so has Patrick. Uh, many more indirectly through our online presence, I'm sure. But I can't imagine leading 120 people to the Lord in one go, let alone 120,000. Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 14, another interesting parallel. So we started with uh, Peter sleeping like a baby between two Gentile soldiers sleeping like a baby, not a care in the world. We've shown you Jonah sleeping on a Gentile ship, not a care in the world. Jehovah is chasing Jonah. And here Jehovah is protecting Peter. And Peter was sleeping from uh, chapter 12. But from Acts, uh, Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 14, uh, look at verse 11. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. Pagans again, like the Ninevites, going back to miracles that Paul was able to do, uh, like uh, verses 6, 7, 8, going into 9, in fact going into 10 ultimately. And when the people saw what Paul had done, like a miracle, unlike John the Baptist, unlike Jonah, in fact unlike Muhammad, who never did a miracle a day in his life, whereas the apostles all did miracles, and when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. That's what they may have thought about Jonah. Are we seeing Dagon manifest in the flesh? He looks different. His speech perhaps has changed. Something has changed. And that really put the fear of God 
L-O-R-D, Jehovah, into them. So you got this account. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Twelve, and they called Barnabas Jupiter, and Paul Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. They gave these two Jewish apostles pagan titles. They think it's Jupiter and Mercury, going back to is it Zeus and Hermon from memory, to uh, Jewish, excuse me, to uh, Hermes, excuse me, Hermes and Zeus, uh, going back to two Greek pagan gods. So they really are messed up when it comes to trying to identify Paul and Barnabas. 13. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice with the people. That wasn't so with Jonah, but it could have gone that way. They could have offered sacrifices to Jonah. And here they want to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? Why are you doing such a thing? This is an abomination. We also are men of light passions with you. We're just like you. We're flawed, just like you. When Cornelius met Peter, he goes down in his knees. And Peter says to him, get up. I'm just a man like you. When John saw the angel in heaven, Revelation 19, he goes down in his knees. And the angel says to John, get up. I am a person like you. I'm one of your brethren. And we believe that to be Daniel in angelic form, speaking to John. And Daniel in angelic form rebukes John and Peter the so-called first pope, what a joke, rebukes Cornelius for getting on his knees. And yet today, if you go to Rome, popes expect you to bow down to them, to pay them homage. In fact, do you know, did you know when leaders go to Rome, they bring a check with them, they bring a very generous donation with them. If you fly to Rome and don't take a donation, you are not particularly welcome. They want your money, you see. In fact, I watched a movie a few nights ago, an interesting movie. It could have been a true story, but it wasn't. But it could have been about a family in America. A mother and father and two children, a black family in America, went to a prosperity church, name it and claim it church. And the father lost his job uh, due to sickness. His wife would replace him, or she tried to cover the bills, basically, with her job. It wasn't possible, of course. And after many weeks of trying to cover the bills had a son and a daughter to take care of. They couldn't uh, carry the cost, the strain any longer. Continued to go to church twice a week. And every Sunday, the pastor would say, as the plate went around, I want $500 from every one of you. Give until it hurts. And during one of the clips in this movie, uh, he pulls a face, the husband. He's got, I think, 5 or $10. That's all he's got. I mean, they're homeless. They're sleeping in a car. They've been under a bridge for six months. And this black pastor, big heavy guy, well-to-do, Never struggled a day in his life, putting pressure on his parishioners to give like $500 every Sunday. And he said, I can't do it. And he puts 5 or $10 in the plate. His wife rolls her eyes as if to say, please don't embarrass us. Everybody is watching. And I thought, wouldn't it have been interesting had these scriptwriters put into that movie uh, one line concerning this couple sitting in their car, freezing in the winter, baking in the summer, no money for food. Kids having to wash in public toilets. Wouldn't it have been wonderful? Just that one line put into the movie. Let's invite the pastor to come and spend two or three nights in our car. Because he should be supporting us. We shouldn't be supporting him. Same sort of a thing. Going back to my criticism of the Catholic Church. I try, I try and be consistent. I don't just bash the Catholic Church. If I see a problem in charismatic churches or Calvinist churches. Or in my own life. I try and address it. We try and address it. Patrick and I. We don't just cover it up. And these people make me sick. But here, people are wanting to offer sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. 
It could have gone the same way with Jonah. We will never know, of course. Which when the apostles, verse 14, Barnabas and Paul heard of, uh, heard of they rent their clothes, ripped their clothes, and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? What are you doing? We're just sinners like you. We also men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth, and the sea, and all things that are therein. If you witness to a Gentile, you start with creation. If you witness to a Jew, you start with the law. Sometimes it can be both, sometimes it can uh, overlap, but basically if you witness to an unsaved Gentile, you start with creation, which is what the apostles are doing. If you witness to a Jew, you start with the Ten Commandments, of course, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, permissive will. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, conscience, revelation, churches, synagogues, the Jewish temple, in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven, and fruitful seasons, enough food to survive, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people, that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Go back to Jonah. We don't know if this crowd got saved. They may have got saved, but it was a battle. It was a struggle to stop them from sacrificing in honor of Paul and Barnabas, Jupiter and uh, Mercury, going back to uh, Zeus and Hermes, Hermes, two pagan gods, like I say. So I wanted just to spend a few moments this morning, almost half an hour actually, <laughs> just uh, opening up uh, Jonah chapter 4 because it's remarkable, it's miraculous what one man grudgingly was able to do. Eight words, saw an entire nation sped. I can't imagine eight words coming out of my mouth or Patrick's and seeing 12 people get saved in one go or 120 people get saved in one go, let alone 120,000 get saved in one go but of course you are dealing with miracles way back in the old testament and the lord will use somebody as stubborn stiff-necked as jonah to get the work done jonah chapter 4 jonah chapter 4 look at verse 1 but it displeased jonah exceedingly and he was very angry and he prayed unto the lord and said i pray thee o lord was not this my saying when i was yet in my country therefore i fled before unto Tarshish, for i knew that thou art a gracious god and merciful slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. He is furious. He is furious that they have repented. He hoped they wouldn't. He was rubbing his hands with glee, desperately hoping that they wouldn't repent, that Jehovah just wipe him out, like he would do back in the time of Noah and Lot, and as he will, Revelation 19. And here, he can't believe it, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? I knew you would do this. I knew that if they repented, Jehovah, you would receive them. Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, my free will. You told me what to do, and I went against you. So much for irresistible grace. For I knew that thou art a gracious God, absolutely. A merciful, absolutely. Slow to anger, absolutely. And of great kindness, absolutely. And repentest thee of the evil. Jonah knows Jehovah. Jehovah knows Jonah. But on the surface, it's a pitiful story. It's tragic. It's pathetic. Like I say, I struggle to draw a parallel between Jonah's nationalism and Nineveh's depravity. If you were to say to me, uh, James, would you be prepared to jump on a plane and fly here or there and preach to such and such a people? I would probably go, if I could. I may go to Rome, if I could. I may not get very far, but I wouldn't say no. I spoke to one cardinal 20 years ago, and I was speaking to this cardinal for two or three hours on and off. Went to a couple of private masses. We both were still Catholic at the time, and interesting, nice guy. 
uh, very uh, charismatic, very charming, mm. but it's all a front. It's not real. The moment you question the Church of Rome, the moment you question any church, any denomination, they would just freeze you out. That black couple with their two children, I know it's not a real story, but it could have been a real story, sleeping in a car day and night, and it got so rough, so tough, they couldn't get any work. The kids were going to school, starving, having to steal food from the classrooms, boy and a girl. It got so bad that the wife had to speak to her husband's grandmother, who had to give money to the couple to make ends meet. They were too ashamed of themselves to approach the pastor. It was once said this, always be concerned, surprised, if your pastor makes more money than you do. That's a true saying. If your pastor makes a six, seven-figure salary, and you are struggling along on minimum wage, you should be very concerned about that. If he's getting all the blessings, so-called, all the booty, and you are struggling along on a minimum wage, something is seriously wrong. I don't care if it's Catholic, Protestant, Charismatic, Orthodox, whether Greek or Russian, uh, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, I don't care who. It's wrong. You're not to be lords over the flock. You are to set a good example. You're not to be lording it in, driving in nice nice big cars, going on holiday three or four times a year, and people are, su uh, people are suffering and struggling all around you. It's not on. It's, it's not acceptable. The apostles set the example. Jesus set the example. The prophets in the Old Testament set the example. So I can appreciate, to some extent, Jonah's pain and uh, confusion. But again, he knows Jehovah. I know Jehovah. Patrick knows Jehovah. And if you were born again, you know Jehovah. And you know that if a Chinaman turns to him, a Japanese turns to him, a Korean turns to him, an Indian turns to him, a Mexican turns to him, a member of the Mafia turns to him, a priest, a bishop, a cardinal, you know that if such turns to him, he will turn to them. You know that. And such will be saved. And I don't want to rob that or rob, rob anybody of that. If you were to say to me, have you heard of somebody's conversion? It's a wonderful testimony. I'd be jumping up and down. I'd love it. I wouldn't say, but they're filthy Catholics. Or they're filthy Muslims. I wouldn't say that. Or they're wicked Jews. Or they're wicked uh, this or that. I wouldn't say that. I'd be so pleased that such were saved. But again, Jonah is an unusual character. And he's a fascinating character to, to read about and study about. I get more out of reading about someone like him than I do reading about someone like, let's see now, uh, some of the other characters in the Bible whose names escape me. Daniel, perhaps. He's very difficult to critique. Uh, Joseph, to some extent, although he would fall, he would stumble, he would marry a pagan Gentile, and he would uh, deceive his brothers. So there's some uh, Adamic nature still shining through Joseph's life. Uh, but Daniel is very difficult to critique. Job, it's hard, isn't it, to critique Job. He's got his wife on his back. His friends turn up. They are useless, clueless, and are no help to him. And he holds it, he holds it together for... Is it, uh, let's see now, uh, 39, 40 chapters? There's 42 chapters in Job, I think, for most of the chapters. From memory, I think it starts to change, chapter 39, chapter 40, from memory. And he comes back into the Lord's uh, circle. The Lord receives him back. A conversation takes place, and he is restored. But I like Jonah. I like to read about flawed people, because I'm flawed. I like to read about people who love the Lord. I love the Lord, but are flawed. I'm flawed. So I can relate to... Jonah, but I can't relate so easily to Job, Daniel, or Joseph to some extent. Do you understand what I'm saying? Of course. 4.3. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. What a drama queen. A grown man. I'm going to say this, that Jonah is a beta male. 
a beta male is basically a mama's boy. A beta male basically can't handle difficult situations, buckles, hides behind his wife, hides behind his mother, hides behind the women, basically. Contrast that to an alpha male who steps up. May not be a good man, but he steps up, provides for his family, going back to this couple in the car. He was a very proud man, the husband. Wanted to provide for his wife. He couldn't. He was ill. He was sick. She couldn't do it on one salary. And the family of four went into a car. It happens, of course. Just because you are a Christian doesn't mean you won't be on Poverty Street. If you read First Corinthians sometime, I think it's chapter 11 from memory, Paul says there are some who don't have homes, don't have much to go by. And when they come to the breaking of bread, they are hungry. They are famished, starving almost. And also James chapter 5 speaks about the wealthy being severely punished during the tribulation. People are going to get richer and people are going to get poorer. I think we're living in a time now where a lot of people who have got a lot are going to lose a lot. Money is going to start to decrease, I think. Savings are going to be diminished. And if you've had a good life, you may not have it for much longer. That's just my feeling. I may be wrong. I hope I am. 4-3. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. Suicide, scripture. We think of someone like uh, Samson, Saul, Judas. Three names that come to my mind. I can't think of any other infamous suicides in scripture. Elijah wanted to kill himself, but didn't, of course. Uh, Eli, the heavy priest, the fat priest, uh, back in uh, 1 Samuel, who was uh, close to Hannah. When he heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen, uh, confiscated, fell backwards, broke his neck. But that wasn't suicide. Just three people that I can think of. Samson is blind. The Philistines are dancing all around him, mocking him. And he prays to Jehovah, and Jehovah hears his prayer. And he brings the house down and kills himself in the process. A lot of people don't like that. They say, no, it wasn't suicide. But I can't uh, find any other way to exegete that. He's lost in sin uh, concerning his state, not his standing. And he's praying to Jehovah. Jehovah hears his prayer because he was saved all along, you understand. He lost his anointing, but not his salvation. And he collapses the house, brings the whole house down. Hundreds, perhaps thousands died, including himself. He's in heaven today. Uh, Hebrews 11. Saul gets into an altercation with the Philistines. He's wounded. He's dying. And he says to his armor bearer, follow me. I can't stand these circumcised. There's that word again. Unclean. Heathen. Going back to Simon Peter. Sandwiched between two Gentile soldiers. Pagans. And he says to his armor bearer, I can't stand it if they catch me. If they uh, parade me uh, in front of their people like they would do to Samson. That was always Hitler's worry. That Stalin would take Hitler back to Russia in a cage. That was his worry, great fear. In fact, during World War II, it was decided that if the Germans were about to invade Britain, that the royal family would be put on a plane and flown to Canada straight away. They couldn't bear that the British royal family would be taken by the Germans and used for propaganda. So you've got three characters. Saul, I believe, was saved. Samson was saved. Judas, of course, was never saved. He's called a devil. But here, I beseech thee... Take up a seat, see my life from me. Why? For it is better for me to die than to live. He loved the Lord, you see. Let's not be too hard on uh, Jonah. He loved the Lord. Had a great love for the Lord. Wanted to put the Lord first. He was prepared to die for the Lord. And yet this is selfish. This isn't just about the, the, uh, about the Lord. It's about his own pride. He feels very unhappy. He feels very sad that they've turned to the Lord. He knows that the Lord will turn to them. And when man and God meet together, you've got a picture of unity. One more time. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. Just kill me. Just wipe me out. I can't stand it. The thoughts of these disgusting people. Cockroaches, savages, 
sacrificing their children to devils, demons, having relations with animals, perhaps with fallen angels, need I go on? I can't bear it, he's saying. I can't stand it. They should go to hell forever. But of course, I should go to hell forever. Patrick should go to hell forever. You should go to hell forever. We should all go to hell forever, right? He's so self-righteous. He's a drama queen. He's a beta male. He's a pathetic excuse of a man, but he's saved. The Lord knows him. His name is in heaven, written in heaven. We will see him in glory. And yet, his state is just humiliating. For it is better for me to die than to live. He's suicidal. He wants to die. And the Lord is almost laughing at him, probably. What is going on? Jonah, you're one of my best servants. I've had to push you to preach to the Ninevites. You have preached to the Ninevites. Your eight words have saved a nation of what? 120,000. You should be rejoicing. But it's a bit like Saul of Tarsus. Book of Acts. Responsible for the death of Stephen. Responsible for many being tortured. People sometimes overlook that part of Saul of Tarsus' life. He was a torturer. He was a maniac. He was a butcher. He was a murderer. He says that. Chief of sinners. But I did it in ignorance. So many parallels when it comes to Old Testament, New Testament. Standing in state. Why we do what we do. Why we think the way we think. Um, but the more we dissect it and next week we will return to chapter four the more we can see ourselves i think in people like jonah and like i say i can relate to him and most of the uh, infamous but also the famous in scripture i see many of my own failings and shortcomings and such people contrast that to others who never fall who never stumble who are so polished so squeaky so clean so self-righteous. And you think to yourself, are they saved? Well, they probably are. But I can't relate to them. I can relate to that couple in the car, but I can't relate to their pastor. I can relate to many Catholics, but I can't relate to their priests. I can relate to many Muslims, but I can't relate to their imams. I can relate to many Jews, but I can't relate to their rabbis. I can relate to Jonah, Paul, Peter, Simon Peter, what a character he was. And other people, but I can't relate to Jesus. Can you relate to Jesus? I can't relate to him. I can't walk in his shoes. I'm not worthy to carry his shoes. Going back to what I said last week. Love the Lord thy God with all thy mind, heart, soul and strength. And love thy neighbour as thyself. Try that sometime. Try that sometime. Try and love your neighbour who's a crack addict. Smoking marijuana. Or is beating his wife. Or his wife is beating him. It goes both ways you understand. Try and love your neighbour who hates your guts. Who is making your life a misery. Abusing their children. Or maybe the children are abusing their parents. Try and love your neighbours yourself. Let me know how it goes. You can't do it, can you? You cannot do it. Jonah couldn't do it. And eventually he got there. But what a story. What a story. Drama queen, beta male. Almost crying like a baby. Can't stand the Ninevites. And the Lord continues to work with him. Which is good for us. If you work with Jonah, he'll work with us. And next week we will return, we will, we will return Lord willing. And finish the tiny book of Jonah. Please go back to Jonah chapter 2. This will be week number nine, five and a half hours of material we've been able to accumulate so far. And I'm going to suggest we've got one more week to do. So this will be a 10 week study. It takes only eight minutes to read the entire book of Jonah in English and Spanish and probably many other dialects, languages as well. But it will take me 10 weeks and probably around six hours or so to really faithfully, justfully, correctly get as much out of this book as is possible. Jonah chapter two, look at verse nine again, please. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. 
I will pay that, that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation in a physical sense, go to Leviticus chapter 7. Salvation in a spiritual sense. He takes care of you physically each and every day. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows the names of the stars. And if he can take care of you physically, it will be no issue for him to take care of you spiritually. To get you to the third heaven upon death. And to keep you safe and sound for all of eternity. Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus chapter 7. Look at verse 11. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer unto the Lord. If he offer it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, unleavened cakes mingled with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and cakes mingled with oil, of fine flour fried. So you think about Abel offering an animal to the Lord, probably a lamb, livestock. The life is in the blood, of course, and you can tell an awful lot about a person's blood. Contrast that to Cain, who would offer fruit, fruit from the land, picturing one's self-righteousness, picturing one's religion, like uh, go to church, tithe, get baptized, be a good outright person. We call this auto-soldierism, bit of a mouthful, but basically auto-soldierism is a theological term to allow the self-righteous rascal to boast about how good he is, how wonderful he is. Twelve again. If he offer it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with a sacrifice of thanksgiving, unleavened cakes mingled with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and cakes mingled with oil, of fine flour fried. Offer your best to the Lord. He gave you his best. You give him your best in return. Go to Psalm uh, chapter 69. So, beginning of the Bible, a passage about thanksgiving in the middle of the Bible. Psalms 69, like verse... 30, we read the following. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. Most songs are mostly about self. When I was at school, I remember my English teacher making a very profound statement and he said this, most songs, love songs, or most songs about love. And I thought, yes, he's absolutely right. I loved her, she left me. I loved him, he left me. He did this, she did that. I'm suicidal, so on and so forth. And it's true, most songs are about love. Lost love, and bitterness, regrets, so on and so forth. I will praise the name of God with a song. If you play an instrument, nothing wrong with worshipping him on piano or guitar or even a mouth organ. It makes no difference. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. Go to Revelation chapter 7, also chapter 7. We began in Leviticus 7.11 and we will conclude this brief uh, detour in Revelation chapter uh, 7. Jonah was thanking the Lord. And I believe he was resurrected, although some believe he was resuscitated. But nevertheless, nonetheless, he was thanking the Lord. And he was saying basically that he would honour his vows. If you promise to do something, you should do what you promise to do. If you promise the Lord that you won't do something, you should honour what you have promised him. Uh, Revelation 7, Revelation 7. This is a threefold aspect dealing with thanksgiving. You can never thank the Lord enough. Do you thank him for your salvation? Do you thank him for being able to sleep through the night? Many people can't. Do you thank him for being able to eat? Many people can't. Do you thank him for being able to walk? Many people can't. Do you thank him for being able to see, to taste, to hear, to communicate with people? Many people can't. Uh, Revelation 7, Revelation 7, look at verse 11. And all the angels stood around about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God. You can never worship him enough. The apostles worshipped him. The disciples worshipped him. Believing Jews and Gentiles worshipped him. In fact, if you think back to Muhammad, in the Quran, he told uh, the story that when Adam was first created, Allah ordered 
the angels to worship Adam. If you think about the Mormons, they teach the same, the same sort of a thing, that Adam was to be worshipped, and yet Adam is just a mortal man. Incredible, isn't it? And all the angels stood round about the throne, the third heaven, and about the elders and the four beasts, redeemed Israel, and also probably the twelve apostles, beasts, supernatural creatures, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving. There's our word again, thanksgiving. And honour, and power, and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Go back to the book of Jonah. So if you are saved, you should be thankful, you should be grateful. You should speak to the Lord every day. Uh, you want to really grow in grace. Speak to the Lord for a period of time every morning or every afternoon or every evening, whenever you have a free slot to do so. Then read about the Lord in the Word of God and then speak to people about the Lord. And I guarantee you that if you do this each and every day, you will grow incredibly. But one of the words from the book of Jonah is evil. It is found at least five times from uh, chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 8. And throughout this tiny four-chapter book, and of course evil is a real problem. Many theologians have struggled over the years to work out why people do what they do. I saw a documentary last night, a true story, about a 14-year-old girl in America who was lonely, who was arguing with her mother. It's always the way, isn't it? These kids miss their fathers. It's always painful when you read about children with no father on the scene. And this 14-year-old girl was arguing with her mother, fighting with her mother, and the mother had to phone the police. And on one occasion, she was getting into such an argument with her mother that she went on to Facebook and was putting out SOSs, poor me, woe is me, my mother is against me, I hate her, so on and so forth. Words of the devil, of course. And she was uh, befriended by an older woman, a 19-year-old woman. She was 14, this girl. Her friend was 19. And her friend said to her this, she said, uh, I know what it's like. My mother is also a so-and-so. Uh, let's meet up sometime. Let's get together sometime. Let's support each other and she said to this young girl i got a young child so this young girl felt she had somebody to lean on and over time she got more close to this woman and eventually it got unbearable in this family home or because the mother was telling the kid what to do honor your parents honor your father and your mother fifth commandments but of course this was a secular family broken family the father long gone and this poor mother having to raise a daughter on her own the women today or girls today are just as bad as the boys incidentally People think it's always the boys that are the biggest problem. No, it goes both ways. If you get a daughter, or if you have a daughter, your great fear is that she will get pregnant. But if you have a son, it's no big deal. At worst, you can get somebody else pregnant. That's still serious, of course. But if you have a daughter, your great fear is that she falls pregnant out of wedlock. And this girl got online, like I say, met this older woman. They got friendly, went back and forth. And she said to this older woman, I can't stand it anymore. Please come and collect me. And she picked her up in her car. And this silly girl, very naive girl, thought she would be... Uh, taken to this woman's home to see her child and she was taken to a, lo a local motel and this woman's pimp was in this hotel room and basically he beat her up knocked her unconscious took pictures of her put them on the internet people came and they had sex with this girl for two three weeks eventually the police found her rescued her and uh, the pimp got uh, 20 years in prison and his female assailant got five years and you say why do you talk about these stories james why do you speak about such negative stories, James? Because the Bible speaks about negative stories. This book speaks about murder, rape, incest, lying, stealing, murdering, kidnapping. This book speaks about every sin imaginable. If your preacher doesn't talk about difficult subjects, kick him out. When I first got saved, I used to enjoy, enjoy quote-unquote, watching Robert Schuller. More for entertainment than for anything else. And I worked out, maybe 
a short while after watching him, that he would only preach from probably five or six, seven or eight, no more than nine verses. There are 30,000 plus verses in the Bible, over 30,000 plus verses. And Robert Schuller only picked 10. You can't get away with just preaching 10 verses. If you go to medical school and they only teach you about the foot and nothing else, they are failing you. A proper medical school, a proper Bible school, talks about real life. Speaks about the entire body. If you go to medical school, like the anatomy of the body. And if you go to medical, if you go to Bible school, they will teach you the book inside out. Jonah chapter 3, Jonah chapter 3. Look at verse 4 again. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no offer here of a way out of the judgment. He doesn't say, turn or burn. He doesn't say the Lord loves you. He doesn't say the Lord has a plan for you. This is a pretty devastating, one-sided message as far as Jonah is concerned. It's too late to repent. And like I said last week, just eight words, and that will nail the coffin. That'll be the final nail in the coffin of the Ninevites. And yet you think of most preachers today, people like Robert Schuller, who's now dead, of course, or people like him, Joe Olstein, uh, Joyce Mayer, there's so many that I could mention this morning. They all basically tipped around the issue. They say that God has a great plan for you. He loves you. Uh, receive him into your heart and you're here. That's not what Jehovah said to uh, Nineveh and that poor girl who lived in Seattle for memory, fighting with her mother. Nobody will ever love that girl more than her mother, incidentally. That mother raised her daughter on her own, struggled terribly, and when push came to shove, she rejected her mother, ran off to, the, to meet this older woman who, of course, deceived her. She'd been grooming her, basically. Deceived her and her pimp beat this poor girl up for two or three weeks, Many men came to visit her, paid for her to have sex with her, and now she's on the road to recovery. But basically, that was partly the girl's fault. She wasn't four, she was 14. She knew right from wrong. She knew good from evil. And yet the text here from 4.11 says there are over 120,000 people that cannot discern between the left hand and the right hand. That girl knew what she was doing was wrong. When she would fight with her mother, the police would be called. On one occasion, when the police came, she tried to run out the door after the mother had been trying to hold her in. And she assaulted a female police officer, almost broke her shin, had to be hospitalised, and she got six months uh, probation for that. But here, from three, uh, four, there's no turn or burn, there's no positive me uh, message to this. And as far as uh, Jonah is concerned, this is what he wants. He wants to breeze in, preach hellfire, and breeze out. Most street preachers do that. Most street preachers will go to a town, they will breeze in, get their banners up, rip the town up, and disappear. Maybe five or six years ago, we were in Manchester, got our banner up, and a guy walked over to us, a homosexual, and uh, I had probably a 50-minute conversation with him. Very interesting character, and he said to me last week, there were some preachers in Manchester with very provocative banners, and it was very uh, unsettling to see such banners. And he said to me, do you agree with their approach? And I said, no. I said, actually, when it comes to holiness, you preach holiness to the church, not to the lost. You preach the law to the lost, but you preach holiness to the church and I said to him that's not our approach although we do believe in hellfire damnation and if you don't repent you will perish but there's ways you see to articulate the gospel and he was no he was no hurry to go and I had a good 50 minute conversation or so with him and I gave him words of comfort words of hope I hope and yet Jonah there's nothing positive here go back to chapter 4 verse 1 but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry and he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarsus. For I knew that thou art a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger, and a great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. So don't abuse grace. Paul says this over in Romans that 
people say that because we are now saved, we can do as we please. And he says that's slander. And he says, we don't teach that. We don't believe that. And I don't teach that. I don't believe that. I believe that if you are saved and you don't live like you should live, God will deal with you. He will take the belt to you if he needs to. If you've been saved for any length of time, you know what I'm speaking about. But here Jonah, he does what he's told to do eventually from 3, uh, 4. And by 4, 1, it says he was displeased exceedingly. What a character. And he was very angry, very bitter that Jehovah had forced him to preach to the pagans. And this goes back to nationalism. A lot of people worship their country. A lot of people say they're very proud to be this or they're very proud to be that. Not so much in the UK now. It's been pretty much kicked out of us. But many countries are still proud. The French are very proud. The Americans are very proud. And the Chinese are also very proud. Go to Acts chapter 22, please. I'm still reading through Acts of the Apostles. And I'll probably finish in a couple of days' time. And it's interesting, if you take the time to read the Bible each and every day, what the Lord shows you. I sat down last night and I was reading Second Timothy. And I've made two notes, two or three notes, uh, in reference to my Psalms study. And I found something from Psalm 7, which fits Second Timothy, which I hadn't seen before. And I'll explain that it's in probably 20 weeks' time. I'm going to suggest we've got a lot of work still to get through before we hit the Psalms, of course. Like Psalm uh, 7, or Psalm 7. But I was reading Acts 22 last night, Acts 22, and I thought, I've just found Jonah. Not literally, of course, but somebody like Jonah, a group like Jonah. Acts 22, Acts 22, look at verse 17. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, this is Paul speaking, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance, a bit like John, who wrote Revelation, and saw him saying unto me, make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem. The Lord is speaking to Paul. For they will not receive my testimony concerning me. A bit like the Ninevites, although he knew that they would receive his testimony. But here the context is dealing with Jews, Israel, Israelites. They will not, they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. They have free will, we have free will. Never forget that. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue of them that believed on thee. I was a torture master. Sometimes we overlook this. Paul was good at imprisoning beating people detaining people if you think back to the kgb if you think back to the nazis if you think back to even britain in south africa turn of the last century or the previous century late 19th century uh or if you think about the chinese when they arrived in japan or anywhere in the world if you have any knowledge of history or the spanish inquisition that's brutal what those sadists did they got the tools out. They would torture you and they would watch you cry. They would watch you scream. They would watch blood pour out of your body. They would cut women's nipples off. Nipples off. They would cut men's ears off. Testicles off. They would see how much pain you could endure. And again, people say, why do you speak like this? This is so negative. We don't want to hear negative stuff because the word of God is negative. Most of Paul's books are negative. Ten commandments, you got seven or eight, thou shalt not. Only one or two positives, like honor your father and mother. Keep the Sabbath day. The rest are all negative. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. 2220, uh, and when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. I was present. I was guilty of association, by association. I was just there. Do you know today, if two guys walk down the street and the house has just been burgled and the two, uh, two uh, assailants don't come clean, they'll both be arrested and both be charged. With a crime of burglary or any particular crime. They call that guilt by, uh, guilt by association, of course. 
And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiments of them that slew him. I held his clothing as they got ready to stone Stephen to death. A picture of a man working up quite a sweat to murder an innocent Jew, a saved Jew called Stephen. Look at verse 21. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And they gave him audience unto this word. What word? Gentiles. And they, the Jews, gave him audience, Paul, unto this word, and they lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. So the Jews could discriminate, were uh, critical of the Gentiles. Racism comes in many shapes and sizes and different definitions for racism. If you are like me, born and raised in London, you were probably taught that the white man was a bad man and the black man was a good man and the white man should be apologising to the black man all of the time and the white man shouldn't be critical of the black man but did you know that not only can Jews hate Gentiles Acts twenty two seventeen, and on but did you know that Mexicans can hate blacks and Indians can hate Chinese did you know that but you hear very little about that don't you and they gave them audience unto this word could have been Jonah and they lifted up their voices and said away with such a fellow from the earth kill him for it is not fit that he should live how about that and as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust in the air, into the air, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging. Give him a few whips. Put him on the rack. That's what the Catholics would do during the Dark Ages. Put him on the rack. Put her on the rack. Let's see how much pain they can endure. Let's uh, cut their toes off. Let's pull their toenails out. Let's see how much pain and suffering they can endure. Was it Wycliffe when he was being tortured, burnt alive? And he said to those that were killing him, put your hand on my heart and tell me if my heart is beating faster than yours. Mm. That's a real story. You've got these papists standing all around with their cone hats on, calling on Mary, like the Baalites would do back in the Old Testament, calling on Baal. And you've got Wycliffe, called as a cucumber. John Huss, another one. They put him to death, burned him alive. And he wasn't too stressed about it. In great pain, of course, like Stephen probably was, when they were knocking his brains out with stocks, uh, with their rocks and stones. But no issue, wasn't overly uh, wide, he knew where he was going, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air, picturing grief, a bit like Jonah. What does it say from 4.1? Displeased Jonah exceedingly and was very angry. Same sort of a thing. 24, the chief captain commanded him, Paul, to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging. He wants to find out what's going on. That he might know wherefore they cried so against him. Go back to Jonah. So I can find Jonah in Acts of the Apostles. I can find Jonah in Paul before he was saved. I can find uh, Jonah in uh, Jews to this day that hate Gentiles to this day. I can find Jonah in Mexicans that hate black people. I can find Jonah in Indians that hate Chinese people. And yes, I can find Jonah in white people that hate Asians, black people, Orientals, so on and so forth. When it comes to uh, being critical, when it comes to being hateful, when it comes to being spiteful, when it comes to being a racist, it's all over the world. Jonah chapter 4, Jonah chapter 4, go back to verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He can't bear it. He's gone into Nineveh, eight words came out of his mouth eventually. Nothing positive, only negative. In his mind, he thought this is it, they're going to perish. And he knows the Lord very well. Chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, he knows that if they would repent, if they would turn to Jehovah, he knows very well that they would be saved. But look at this from the aspect of the Ninevites. In fact, go back to chapter 3 
and uh, pick it up from verse uh, 7. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh. This is the king, of course, by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence and from the violence that is in their hands. Why are they saying that? Go back to Genesis. I started reading Genesis yesterday. Well, I've made a lot of notes in my mind. I always do this and I accumulate a lot of my notes. I have no plans to do a fresh study on Genesis. But I was reading it yesterday morning and I found some interesting verses which make it clear to me that the Ninevites knew a bit more about the Bible than we give them credit for. Genesis 6, 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Not much has changed since the end of World War II. There have been 55 wars all over the world. The UN haven't been able to stop it. The EU haven't been able to stop it. The Church of Rome haven't been able to stop it. Popes for decades have been praying for world peace. And yet not once in the word of God are you, to, are you to pray for world peace. Never once in the word of God are you to pray for peace for the world. Did you ever think about that? Never once did God say to you, pray for peace in the world. The world is under judgment. In fact, Jesus would tell you from John 17 that he didn't pray for the world. He prayed for the church. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not much has changed. And one of the reasons why there's a judgment seat for Christians... It's because we still have evil thoughts, evil imaginations. When was the last time you lost your temper? When was the last time you were sarcastic or facetious? When was the last time you enjoyed a good gossip? When was the last time you neglected to discipline your child? When was the last time you showed favoritism to your child or to one of your children? When was the last time you said that you had a favorite child and made the others aware of that? When was the last time you overate or underate or overslept or underslept? You can't get around it, can you? You are condemned upon birth and you are condemned upon death. But if you are saved, praise the Lord for that. 6.6 six, And it repented the Lord, regretted the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him at his heart. This is what we call anthropomorphical language. Anthropomorphical, anthropology, meaning mankind, man using words, or God using words that man can relate to. These are the words, this is the term, this is the definition that uh, we use to help us understand uh, how the Lord sees things, atromorphical, that's the word. And here it says how it regretted the Lord, regretted him, and it grieved him at his heart. And of course, you know the Lord doesn't have a physical heart beating. You know that, right? So I'm sure you know that the Lord doesn't have a physical heart beating. Uh, Christ had a body, he had a soul, he had a spirit. But he got his body in time, not before time. Christ is a spirit by definition. Soul, he would have got that upon birth, body, soul, and spirit. But here it says how it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart, anthropomorphical, one more time. It's a mouthful, but it's worth attempting it one more time to affirm that when God speaks, he uses words that we can relate to. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For it repented me that I have made them. So that went through the mind of the Ninevites. They said to themselves this, well, he did it back in Genesis. He could do it to us. Jonah's just come, no chance of a second chance, no offer of forgiveness. It's pretty grim, yet 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's pretty fine, right? So here, when it says, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me, it grieved me, it disappointed me that I had made them. 
The Ninevites, to their credit, thought it's going to come to us. He wiped out everybody during the time of Noah. And he could do it all over again. We don't give people credit when it comes to what they do know about the Bible. We don't give people credits when it comes to what they know about right or wrong, good or evil. That couple that groomed that girl knew what they were doing was wrong. And when they were challenged, the pimp initially kept quiet, denied he even knew this young girl. His assailant, a 19-year-old woman, coughed up, as we say, spilt the beans, as we say, and she testified against him. But what was really sad was is that how he had met her online and he'd said to her, let's get together and I will help you to make money. And she was rather naive. She said, how, how will you help me to make money? And he said, well, I will offer your services to men and make a good earning. And of course, as they went through uh, their relationship together, so-called relationship, he said to her, we need some more people. That disgusting term, fresh meat. That's what the grooming gangs used in Britain back in the 1990s, up until maybe 2004, five and six, fresh meat. And they were looking for younger girls and of course, younger boys. We should never overlook that boys are also sold, passed around uh, as booty. Here's a thought. Help me to understand this, some of you liberals, if you're, if you're listening to this broadcast this morning. Why is it that when a man like that takes a young girl's virginity, takes her innocence, ruins her, she's now scarred for life. She's slowly healing, praise the Lord, but she's still scarred for life. How is it that he's able to do that and just get 20 years? There's no movement to have him castrated or put to death. And yet a woman who falls pregnant and wants to have abortion, they will line up to allow her to do it. There's no cry to save the unborn baby's life. She's able to decide whether the child lives or dies, and yet she can't decide whether the assailant lives or dies. I can't work that out. I've thought about it so many times over the years. He's able to rape her. He's able to beat her. He's able to abuse her like a rag doll, like a sex toy, and also destroy his girlfriend and get away with it. And there's no movement. There's nobody crying demanding nobody marching for him to be castrated or to be put to death and yet women all over the world are able to do what they do and nobody seems to care about it talk about double standards jonah uh, chapter four jonah chapter four look at verse four then said the lord doest thou well to be angry are you justified in being angry what is wrong with you jonah i gave you a commission you went into nineveh you preached to them it was a one-sided message like i say there was no chance of redemption they panicked the Ninevites, they said to themselves this, we've got another flood coming. This is a throwback to Genesis chapter 6. In fact, it says also uh, from Genesis 6, uh, 11, the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. Still the same today. Most movies are very violent. Most computer games are very violent. If you go online, if you read the papers every day, and I do, it's filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt. Still is. For all flesh, for all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. So it's the same sort of a thing. Pre the flood, the world is wicked. Post the flood, the world is wicked. Naaman says the Ninevites were into pretty much everything. If I go, I go to chapter 7 from Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 7, look up verse uh, 21. seven twenty-one, And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man. It's a wipeout, a complete wipeout. This is what the Ninevites thought would be coming their way. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died. A complete wipeout. Everything got destroyed apart from one family. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things. That explains why they said cover the animals up as well. Stop the animals from eating and drinking, because when judgment comes, it's going to come to all of us. 
human and beast, creeping things, and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. So people say God is love, yes, he's love, but the word of God says how our God is a consuming fire. Again, Shula was very good at preaching on just ten verses, all of the positive verses, the prosperity verses, and that old reprobate would ignore over 30,000 other verses. You can't do that. And if you do that, you are a liar. You aren't preaching the full counsel of God. Paul told you to do that. You're not even preaching half, not even quarter of the counsel of God. Go back to Jonah, please. Four, four, again. Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? Are you justified in being angry? Praise the Lord that God is patient with Jonah. Praise the Lord that God is patient with us. Praise the Lord that people still get saved to this day. Praise the Lord that girl was able to survive being groomed by a pimp and his lover. Praise the Lord he saved you. Praise the Lord he saved me. Praise the Lord he doesn't destroy us the moment we start to become critical, start to backbite, start to become ferocious with our tongues. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. He has no idea incidentally as to whether or not they have even repented because his message doesn't even speak about repentance. He's like the last messenger to preach to them. In fact, keep your hand there and go to Revelation chapter 14. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Revelation 14. And as far as Jonah is concerned, this message of destruction is uh, irreversible. Uh, yeah, Revelation 14, 7. Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Same sort of a message. And like I said last week or the week before, from memory, after chapter 16 in this book, nobody gets saved. Of course, one of the problems with Revelation is it's, uh, there's a lot of overlapping going on. You've got basically four accounts of the end of time. So it gets a little bit confusion, uh, confusing. But Revelation 14, one more time, look at verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment, judgment, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's almost identical. For the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Go back to Jonah. And they wouldn't repent from that point onwards. And yet incredibly, this crowd... Would repent. 4-5 again. Jonah 4-5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. And there made him a booth. And sat under it in the shadow. Till he might see what would become of the city. He's hoping for the worst. He's hoping for a rerun of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's hoping for a rerun of the great flood. And of course here. The uh, term a booth. Is basically a shed. A temporary house or a shelter. He's built it himself, which is interesting. And he's sitting under it in the shadow, uh, sipping on his iced tea, hoping that fire is going to come down from heaven uh, and burn up everyone and everything. If you think back to the sons of thunder, James and John, sons of Zebedee, on one occasion, the Lord was preaching to the Samaritans and they weren't repenting, they weren't believing, they weren't turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. And two saved apostles, princes of the church, apparently, did miracles, got rather angry and said, call fire down from heaven, burn them all up, like Elijah 
would do back in the Old Testament. And the Lord said, I haven't come to destroy men's lives. I've come to save men's lives. And that's one reason why this couple didn't get destroyed when they were abusing that child. Because maybe down the line, they may both get saved. You say it's not possible, James. You say they're too wicked. You say they're too deplorable. You say they pass a point of no return. They call that the reprobate doctrine. Well, how is it possible then at the end of World War II, you had Japanese people, German people, I mean officers in the army of Japan, I mean officers in the German army, I mean Nazis in Germany and top leaders in the Japanese Imperial Army. And how is it possible that dozens on both sides got saved? Together, those two nations destroyed 25, 30 million. And it says they repented. Some repented. A couple of uh, Nazis said uh, they were trusting the blood of Christ alone to save them. Lincoln said that. Abraham Lincoln. Who would have thought that? Many famous people. Steve McQueen, Hollywood star, before he died, said he was trusting in Christ alone to save him. You'd be surprised who's in heaven. You'd be surprised who's not in heaven. Jonah went out to the city, sat on the east side of the city. He's got the best seed in the house. And there made him a booth, like a shed, a shelter, a temporary home. We would say probably today like a porter cabin, if you will. And sat under it in the shadow. It's a hot day, till he might see what will become of the city. He's hoping for the worst, but he's expecting the best. He knows the Lord. Verse 4, uh, 2 again. Look at it again. For I knew, past tense, that thou art a gracious God, present tense. A merciful present tense, slow to anger, present tense, and of great kindness, present tense, and repentest thee of the evil. You change your mind concerning the evil. You saved my life. You've saved, or you will save, over 120,000 people from verse 11. But of course, the people in Nineveh were maybe about a, maybe about a million strong. Verse 11, which we'll look at next week, deals with the innocents, the children, the mentally immature, the handicapped. People that don't know right from wrong. And you go back to Genesis chapter 6. God wiped out everyone. He wiped out the babies. He wiped out the cripples. He wiped out the blind, the lame, the deaf, the mute. He wiped out everyone and everything. And people say, God is love. Well, how do you explain that to me? If God is love. If God is love, yes, he is love. How do you explain that to me? How do you explain when the Americans dropped two bombs on Japan? And the fallout could be seen 200 miles away. 80,000 people died. When those two bombs are dropped, one of the pilots on one of the planes went mad after that. He'd seen death. And Einstein said it wasn't my fault. Tried to tiptoe away from it. He said, had I known what this would be used for, I wouldn't have been part of the Manhattan Project. But he was. He knew what he was doing. And of course, after the war, the Americans snatched up many Nazis. And off to America they went. And they helped put the man on the moon. People are very complex. People are very short memories. But here, Jonah, 4-2, knows about God Almighty. I hope you do. And he knows about God's goodness. I hope you do. And indirectly, he's preaching about God's goodness. I hope you do. And it says one more time, and I'll close, 4-5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. He's furious. He's angry. He's got a sneaking suspicion that these people are going to repent. Jehovah will save them. And there made him a booth. But he's also hoping that he's wrong. That judgment is going to come. And when it comes, it comes really hard. And sat under it in the shadow, sipping on iced tea, got his feet up, enjoying the popcorn. Of course, I'm slightly exaggerating, but you understand what I'm saying. He's really hoping that judgment is going to come. Till he might see, till he might see what would become of the city. And as this continues to unwind and go the way that he doesn't want it to go, salvation will come. 
and poor Jonah will be upset and suicidal again. Controversial, complex character, but I love profiling such people. And we will return next week, Lord willing. This will be week number 10. And last week we passed the five and a half hour mark. And by the grace of God, we've been able to study Jonah methodically. We began in the month of March and we will end, Lord willing, today in the month of May. It's been fascinating to read about Jonah, a very controversial Jewish saint, a bigot, a racist to some extent, prejudiced, hated the Ninevites, and the Lord used him nevertheless nonetheless. Jonah had free will, and the Lord is sovereign, and yet some way, in a way that we don't quite understand, Almighty God was able to work with Jonah, in spite of Jonah's uh, wanting to work with the Lord. It's been fascinating, like I say, to look at Jonah over the last 10 weeks. But Lord willing, we will aim to finish the book of Jonah this morning. And Father, we pray for your blessing this morning. Bless the words. Your words are pure words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will not. So we pray that this will be a blessing to the brethren all over the world. There are strands of Jonah in all of us. It's not just uh, unsaved people that can be prejudiced. Saved people as well. And we pray you will bless today's message as we aim to conclude the book of Jonah. And we pray for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Jonah chapter 4. Go back to verse 5 again, please. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. And there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. Jonah is like Jesus. Jonah is like Noah. All three gentlemen were good with their hands, able to build bits and pieces. Noah built a boat. Jonah built a booth. Jesus was, of course, a carpenter. And it's been said that it's quite possible that he may have even created his cross before he was nailed to it. But here Jonah has finally arrived in Nineveh, going back to chapter 3. Eventually, got into Nineveh, preached to them, only eight words, and uh, no mention of a second chance. No mention of, well, if you do this or if you do that, all will be well. No. Yet 40 days and Nineveh, modern day Iraq, shall be overthrown. They would repent, verses 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, right down to 10. And for around 100 years, no judgment came. The Lord God suspended judgments, and yet by the time Naaman would come along and write his tiny book, judgment is about to fall. Nineveh is a type of Babel. Babel is a type of Babylon. Babylon of the great. But here Jonah is suicidal from verse 3. He hates the idea that these pagans, these savages, have turned to the Lord in faith. And as they've turned to the Lord in faith, they've now turned from their sins. Once you get saved, you turn from your sins. But it says, he went out of the city, sat on the east side of the city, and there he made him a booth, like a shelter, a shed, somewhere to grab a seat and watch what was about to take place. And like I said last Sunday, he's hoping for the worst, but he's planning for the best. He knows what God can do if he wants to do so. He had no problem dealing with those in Noah's generation. He had no problem dealing with those in Lot's generation. And of course, if you read the book of Genesis, the Lord said to Abraham, if I find ten righteous, I will spare the entire people. But he couldn't find ten. He barely found him three. And of course, you know what about Lot and his two daughters. Four, six. And the Lord God prepared a gird and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gird. Small mercies are always welcomed. And of course, gird means a plant. It's hot. Perhaps Jonah is thin on top. I don't know. And he's 
got the best seat in the house, like I say, he's preached to them. He's breezed in, he's breezed out, he's hoping that judgment will come. But again, the attention to detail, not just grief, but exceeding grief. What a character. And the more I read about Jonah, the more I am fascinated with the saved Jew. A bigot, like I say, a racist to some extent. And yet, when we speak about racism, let's be quite clear. It's my experience that white people are very good at holding other white people to account. And if you are a racist, if you are a white person and you hate a black person or an Asian person or a Chinese person just because of their skin colour, that technically makes you a racist. But I've also noticed there is a discrepancy. I've noticed that white people are very good at judging other white people, but I'm not aware of black people judging black people for hating white people or Chinese people correcting Chinese people for hating white people. I'm not aware of Asian people correcting Asian people for hating white people. You understand what I'm saying? This is basically one-sided and it's unacceptable. Either we condemn all levels of bigotry, as it were, racism, as it were, prejudices, as it were. Or we don't bother at all. There's no point just pounding the white man. He's been pounded more than enough. But here Jonah is exceeding glad of the gird. He's very happy because of his grief. He's depressed, basically. He hates the idea that these Gentiles, these pagans, heathen, have repented in large numbers from the king down. Incredible. And yet somebody once said this, if you don't love everyone, you don't love anyone. And if you don't love anyone, you don't love God. There's some truth in that, I tell you. You were told to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. But if you don't love your neighbour as yourself, how can you love God? John says if we uh, don't love our brothers and sisters who we can see, how can we love God who we haven't seen? Wow, that'll put the, uh, the wind up you. I mean, when it comes down to it, if you don't love your neighbour, who do you love? And if you don't love your neighbour as yourself, how can you love God who you haven't seen? Your neighbour lives next door to you. You see him or her every day. Many times you try to avoid your neighbour. And yet the word of God says you are to love your neighbour. How do you do that? I do not know. 4-7. Well, of course I do know. You've got to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to put the flesh down. You've got to reckon yourself to be dead to the flesh, but alive unto God. Is it easy? No, it's very difficult, but it has to be done if you want peace. 4-7. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day. And it smote the gird that it withered. So the gird is a plant. And if the truth were known, Jonah was more interested in the plant than the people. His priorities all back to front. And that's typical of most people. If you don't read the scriptures, at least two or three times a week, you start to become dry. You start to backslide. You start to forget what you've already read. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to learn that hard lesson. But if you read the word of God each and every day, you won't slide. You won't slip. And you won't become barren. At least you shouldn't do if you yield to almighty God and it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished himself to die and said it is better for me to die than to live once again he's suicidal but note where the wind comes from a vehement strong east wind now east is very interesting in scripture Matthew chapter 2 it says how the wise men came from the east and those wise men were probably magi the tabernacle, which we spent many, many weeks profiling over the last year or two, speaks about the high priest or the priest entering into the tabernacle from the east. And if you go to Genesis uh, 25, we read about Abraham. And it's interesting when the wise men arrived to seek out the wisest of all men, how they came from the east. Of course, academia historically has come from the east. Most people in the west go to the east. But here, those in the east are coming to visit the king, the king of the Jews. Genesis 25, Genesis 25, look at verse 5. And Abraham 
If all that he had unto Isaac, Abraham, type of God the Father, Isaac, type of God the Son, he, my son, my only begotten son, my beloved son, and Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac, but unto the sons of the concubines, Abraham, you've got an old nature, Abraham, you're not walking in the spirits, you're walking in the flesh, Abraham, you are a saved man, Abraham means father of many nations, and again, Abraham, two natures, Jonah, two natures, the apostle Paul, two natures, but unto the sons of the concubines, concubines, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts, and sent them away from Isaac his son, while he yet lived, eastward, eastward, unto the east country, go back to the book of Jonah, east of the sun, west of the moon, a very famous song, written back in the 1930s, made famous by Frank Sinatra, they came from the east, seeking out the king of the Jews, and here the Lord God has prepared a vehement east wind, uh, 4.8, Jonah 4.8, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted, literally, sunstroke perhaps, and wishing himself to die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. What a character. And I'll put it to you this way, that in all of us, if we are true to ourselves, there is prejudice, there is bigotry, there is racism to some extent. Uh, if you go back to America, uh, 1980s or thereabouts, the American government decided to give a public holiday to Martin Luther King. And of course, Martin Luther King's real name is Michael Luther King. And Martin Luther King was a Baptist pastor. <coughs> And the American government said, we've got to give some heroes to the black people. This is a true story. And the American government decided to give the American people a public holiday every January in honor of Martin Luther King. And yet, if you profile Martin Luther King, uh, one of the most prolific communists, fornicators that America has ever produced. And if you think back to the 1960s, at the height of the civil rights movement, there was a family in America called the Condoleezas, or the Rices, I should say, the Rices, the Rice family. And the Rice family uh, was led by a man called Pastor Rice. And Pastor Rice said to his young daughter Condoleezza that they wouldn't be standing with Martin Luther King. And of course the Rice family were a black family. And they said we won't be standing with him. He's a communist. He's a troublemaker. He brings a reproach to the name of Christ. And young Condoleezza, raised in a very strict black family, wouldn't go along with uh, Martin Luther King's ecumenical communist manifesto to basically bring America to her knees. Fast forward to... 2001. Condoleezza is now the American National Security Advisor in George W. Bush's uh, government. She would be promoted to the Secretary of State, the most powerful black woman in America, less than 20 years ago. And she still recalls that story of her father, the late Pastor Rice, saying that they wouldn't support Martin Luther King. Rice died, is forgotten. Luther King lives on. The world loved their own. And a quick footnote, there are 20 filing cabinets sealed mm. until 2068 concerning Martin Luther King's lifestyle, sex addictions, prostitution, taking money from dubious characters and sources. But my point is this, that the world loved their own. And because the black people in America needed to have heroes, and they gave them what Martin Luther King, a very dubious character, Martin, uh, excuse me, and uh, Malcolm X, another dubious character, they can't allow these guys to fall. They've got to protect them. And yet when uh, Jimmy Swaggett's lifestyle made the news back in the late 1980s, it was daily news all over America and also in the UK. And we were aware of his fall and uh, every inch of his private life was made public. And yet you're not allowed to know about Martin Luther King's private life. The media are very protective over certain groups of people. But Jonah 4.8 is upset. He's saddened that the Gentiles have repented, turned to the Lord. He wants to die. He can't stand the idea. 
of what uh, God will do for them. Uh, look at verse 9. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the good? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. What an attitude. A real attitude. You think of Simon Peter. He was corrected by the Lord Jesus Christ on three occasions. John 21 uh, and also Acts uh, chapter 10. The sons of Zebedee were corrected by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if you are a saved person listening to this broadcast this morning, the chances are you have been corrected by Almighty God for your attitude. But every time I read these verses, I think to myself, yeah, there's strands of myself in Jonah. Sometimes I don't do what I should do, and sometimes you don't do what you should do. But here the Lord says, doest thou well to be angry for the good? Are you right to be angry for the good? Being a plant. Now this plant possibly is a fast-growing castor oil plant, which also enjoys large leaves. So Jonah prepares the booth, like I say, and he's sitting, waiting for fire to come down from heaven or water to come from under the earth. Neither happens, of course. He can't believe it. In his mind, there's no way that such a group could be saved. And here he's whining, he's moaning, he's grumbling, he's griping, basically. And the Lord speaks to him in a way that we all understand. Do us so well to be angry for the good. Are you justified in being angry for the plants? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. What an attitude, like I say. Then said the Lord, thou hast had pity on the good, for the which thou hast not laboured. Neither made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. There's a picture of grace. You didn't work for your salvation. And here God is giving him physical salvation, physical relief. But in type, it's a picture of our salvation. You didn't work for your salvation, uh, nor did you make it grow. It came up in a night, verse 10, and perished. Perished in a night. And that word perished, an awful word. Perish, to be destroyed, to be ruined, to die, go to hell forever. Could you imagine being a poor person living anywhere in the world today? Perhaps homeless, no money, no family, no one to love you. And you're struggling. Perhaps you haven't eaten in two or three days. And you're lost. You are at the bottom of the pile. You can't go any longer. And you die and go to hell forever. I mean, can you imagine that? People always think it's the rich and wealthy you go to hell forever. And of course, many of those people do go to hell forever. But it's not just rich people. It's poor people. Mm. Black people. White people. The American government said, let's give the Americans somebody to look up to. Let's give them some heroes. They pick them out too. King, like I say, and X, like I say, but you won't get much information about X's personal life or King's personal life or Muhammad, Muhammad Ali, the former boxer, because those three black people have got special status. You can't touch them. You can't criticize them. I saw a Christian film a few nights ago, interesting film. A white pastor went to a black church. It's no doubt based on a true story. I do believe it. And he arrived in this black church and the black deaconess couldn't believe it. And she fainted. A bit like Jonah from uh, verse 8. And she said to her blackboard, deacons and elders, I can't believe it. We've got a white pastor. And I thought, you wouldn't say that if it was the other way around, would you? No. You wouldn't say we've got a black pastor into a white church. Again, we need to be consistent people. I've watched Christians over the years rebuke other Christians for using language they shouldn't use. Speaking like they shouldn't speak. Behaving like they shouldn't behave. And yet I don't see the same from the black community against black Christians. Or Chinese Christians taking on Chinese Christians. Or Chinese Christians taking on non-Chinese Christians. Or Christian Asians taking on non-believing Asians. Got to be consistent so it's not worth bothering with at all. 11. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score, six score thousand persons that cannot discern between the right hand and the left hand, and also much cattle. In the book of Revelation, the term great city uh, appears nine times 
keep your hand and go to Revelation 17. Great city in the sense of not just uh, ostentatious, not just impressive. And of course, from the standpoint of man, Nineveh would have been great. And if you go to Rome today, it's still considered to be great. People still queue to go into the Vatican. And for them, it's something remarkable. But when God speaks about great, he means grave. He means deplorable. Revelation 17, Revelation 17. And uh, look at verse 18. And the woman, and the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Go back to Jonah. So Rome reigns over the kings of the earth. I spent many years trying to show you that through studies and articles and documentaries. And if you don't see it, it's because you are blind. 4.11, and should not I spare Nineveh, God speaking, that great city, in the sense of wicked, like I say, not in the sense of good, wherein are more than six score thousand persons over 120,000 people that cannot discern between their right hand and the left hand, and also much cattle. Keep your hand there and go to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1. The king repented, his nobles repented, and there's no reason to doubt it wasn't legitimate. So it comes from the top down. But here the word of God speaks about over 120,000 that don't know the difference between Good and evil, not just right and wrong. Uh, most children, when they turn the age of two to three to four, no more than four, know the difference between right and wrong. And by the age of ten, they know the difference between good and evil, or at least they should do. As of course they are mentally impaired. Deuteronomy chapter 1, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Uh, look at verse 39. Moreover, your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, between good and evil, not right and wrong. A child knows the difference between right and wrong. If you don't believe me, just think back to when your kid was two or three and your kid was caught doing uh, something naughty, something bad, and you challenged your child and the child lied about it or hid its face from you, knowing that what it had done was wrong, didn't say, well, what's the big deal? What's the problem? So good and evil, right and wrong are not the same thing. Moreover, your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, and your children which in that day had no knowledge, no knowledge, no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. Go to Romans chapter 4. So there's a picture of grace. Uh, the Lord didn't destroy the children in that situation because they had no knowledge of good and evil. Uh, right and wrong is not the same as good and evil. And here these people found over in Jonah are ignorance of evil. And Paul picks us up from Romans chapter 4. If a child is aborted, if a child dies in a car crash or an incident, or if somebody is mentally impaired, uh, perhaps has Down syndrome, for example, or is unable to comprehend good from evil, they get a special blessing from the Lord. And Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, uh, Paul tells us the following from verse 15. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. So the law can't touch you until you are old enough to comprehend the law. But go back to verse 14. If they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath. The law brings condemnation to you. The wage of the sin is death. But the gift of God is everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For if they, for if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, no Ten Commandments, there is no transgression, no breach of the law. Go to chapter 5, 
chapter 5, look at verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world. Well, of course, it was in the world from Noah to Moses. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. So basically, the law can't touch an innocent, a child, under the age of accountability. Because the law hasn't yet touched them. It hasn't yet come real to them. And that's one of the great blessings in scripture. If you've had a child... Or if you had a miscarriage or two, perhaps, not just an abortion, but a miscarriage or two. Your child or children are in heaven this morning, awaiting you. But again, for 14, for if they which of the law be heirs, faith is made void. Knock it out, it doesn't stand. And the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. And again, 5.12, in fact, 5.12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, Adam, of course, and death by sin, all died, of course. And so death passed upon all men, without exception, Jew and Gentile. For that all have sinned, and fallen short to the glory of God. For unto the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed, not put to you. Imputation, a fascinating subject. But sin is not imputed, not put on anyone, when there is no law. Go back to the book of Jonah. So when it speaks about 120,000, uh, over 120,000, uh, not being able to discern their right hand from the left hand. He's saying basically out of a population of what, half a million or so, 120,000 are innocent, unable to comprehend uh, the difference between good and evil. And because of that, he will spare them, but he'll also spare the entire people. Jonah 4, Jonah 4, go back to verse 10. Then said the Lord, thou hast a pity on the good, you more focus on the plants than the people, for the which thou hast not labored. For by grace are you saved through faith, not, not, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Neither made as it grow. You can't work to be saved. You can't work to stay saved. Which came up in a night and perished. Perished. Was destroyed in a night. In fact, he uses a worm from verse 7 to attack the good, so that it is destroyed. And should not I spare Nineveh, modern day Iraq, that great city, the pinpoints of the world, and in type, a picture of Babylon the Great, Revelation 17, Revelation 18, wherein are more than six score, six score thousand persons, over 120,000 people, that cannot discern between their right hand and the left hand. What's the difference between good and evil? They don't know. Going back to Deuteronomy 1, Romans 4 and 5, and because of that, they are innocent in the eyes of the Lord. Whoever thought a innocent person would go to hell forever is abhorrent. And also... And also, much cattle, even a cattle, are going to be spared. Keep your hand there and go to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Repentance is the word. Repentance is the key. To be saved, you repent, you change your mind, you turn to the Lord. And once you have turned to the Lord, he turns to you. And once he turns to you, your conscience is incredibly enhanced. And you start to turn from your sins and you will spend the rest of your life turning from your sins luke 15 luke 15 look at verse 4 in fact go to verse 3 pick it up in verse 3 and he spake this parable unto them saying what man of you having an hundred sheep if you lose one of them doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness of course he's got dogs he's got animals to keep the sheep safe i've heard people criticize this piece of scripture to say what's a reckless shepherd no he's got a sheep dog he's got a dog or two to keep the flock in place and go after that which is lost, until he find it. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders. Doesn't it speak about the shoulders of the Lord over in Isaiah 9? I'm sure that it does. The shoulder, the shoulders of the Lord. And here, the 
Shepherd, picturing the good shepherd, is seeking out the sheep. That's you and I, if you're saved. And when he finds it, when he finds you, 15.5, layeth it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Rejoicing. Only saved people can truly rejoice, you understand. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbours, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I have found my sheep which is lost, or which was lost. I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven. Joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. More than over ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. And that's why so many people are going to perish. Go back to the book of Jonah. They will not repent. They will not bend the knee. They will not call on the name of the Lord. They will do their own thing. They will trust themselves. And tragically they will perish. But here you've got a picture of grace. You've got a picture of mercy. And the one thing that Jonah wasn't aware of was the term common grace. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Common grace isn't always explained very uh, carefully. Common grace deals with your physical welfare, not your spiritual welfare. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 44. But I say unto you, Jesus speaking, love your enemies. How about that? Jonah, are you listening? Love your enemies. Are you listening, you Chinese people that call yourselves Christian and you hate Indian people? Or you Indian people that call yourself Christian and you hate Chinese people? Or you black people who call yourself Christian and you hate white people? Or you white people that call yourself Christian and you hate black people, Chinese people, Asian people? You understand what I'm saying? But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. How about that? And pray for them which despitefully Use you and persecute you. An amazing piece of scripture. Not easy of course. That ye may be the children of your father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. This is common grace. This won't save you. This, uh, But this is God dealing with people on a physical footing. In a basic sense to get you through each and every day. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Go back to the book of Jonah. He wasn't aware of that, and yet he probably was, but he chose not to. He chose to be ignorance. Uh, what do they say? Ignorance is bliss. Uh, familiarity breeds contempt. And here, Jonah, the more I read about him, the more I'm amazed, intrigued by him. A fascinating character. And we've been able to profile him for 10 weeks from the month of March to the month of May, like I say. Trying to look at him from different angles, trying to be fair to him, trying to appreciate his dichotomy, his dilemma, trying to work out the complexity of a Christian, or he wasn't a Christian, but he was a Jew, but a type of a Christian for the church age. Didn't really understand grace per se, and yet he did understand grace per se. He chose to ignore it. He chose to do his own thing. Nearly killed himself in the process of running from the Lord. And yet some way, in all of this, Romans 8.28 is in the background how God was working all things together for good to those that love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. One more time. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Go back to verse 9. And God said to Jonah. Hasn't given up with him. He hasn't said, you know what? You are a failure. You are a disgrace to me. You've blasphemed the name of Jehovah, which Paul speaks about in the book of Romans concerning Christians who blaspheme the name of God. Do us so well to be angry for the good. Are you right to be angry for the plant? Which I made, incidentally, I gave it to you. I gave you grace. Are you angry about grace? Are you angry when people that you don't like turn to the Lord and get saved? 
Does it bother you when people are more successful than you are? Does it bother you when people are more productive than you are? I'll tell you one thing. One of the, most re- one of the reasons why so many people are defiled is based on jealousy, envy. There are people all over the world this morning who are saved, love the Lord, and yet they are jealous, envious of this person or that person. A quick story. Years ago, Patrick told me an interesting story of a guy that he knew. And this guy was a charismatic, very religious. He went to a church in South London. And uh, it was a black church, a charismatic church, like I say. A very popular church, a dynamic church, I suppose. Well-attended church. And there were two congregations meeting in the same building. And they hired the, they hired the building every Sunday. The first service came in about around 9 a.m. on a Sunday. The second crowd came in at around 11 a.m. And these two churches were basically in competition. And there was a guy called Dr. Friday. And Dr. Friday was the pastor of one of the groups. And uh, Dr. Friday was very good at pinching, poaching people uh, for his pulpits or for his congregation. He used his pulpit to seduce people, if you will, to charm people. And he was able to poach around five or six families from this guy's church that Patrick knew. And it caused a lot of envy, a lot of bitterness. And he said, we've been meeting longer than... Uh, uh, Dr. Friday's church had been meeting and Dr. Friday has been able to poach many families and because of that we've lost a good number of people in our uh, church and we may not be able to survive. It's jealousy, it's envy, it's uh, very typical of mankind and I guess Jonah could probably relate uh, relate to that. His fear has always been and would always be that Jehovah would one day turn to the Gentiles which of course has always been his plan. Abraham when he got saved was a Gentile. Noah, when he got saved, was a Gentile. Adam, when he was clothed, was a Gentile. Melchizedek, Gentile. Enoch, Gentile. In fact, the entire book of Genesis. All those good and godly people, the righteous, if you will, that turned to the Lord in faith, were all Gentile. Saved on grace, uh, saved by faith, of course. Only when Moses arrives and the Ten Commandments are given to him is Israel basically a nation, becomes a people. But it's always been grace alone throughout both testaments gentiles being saved jews being saved and yet for some reason jonah 862 bc is kicking against it hates the idea of the gentiles being saved and yet in luke 15 4 to 7 they are rejoicing rejoicing in heaven every time a sinner repents and here this is the patience of the lord patience with jonah doesn't just wipe him out doesn't just put a hit on him like the Matthew would do, or Roman Catholicism would do, during the dark days of the Inquisition. He perseveres with Jonah, and praise the Lord for that. Aren't you glad that God perseveres with you? Sam Jones, an American preacher, late 19th century, hired a black servant to work for them. This is after the slavery era had come to an end, and she worked for the Joneses. And on one occasion, Jones's wife got fed up with this young black girl, wasn't particularly good apparently, wasn't following instructions. They paid her very well incidentally for that era she was paid very well and the wife said to her husband she said this servant is useless she can't wash she can't cook she can't clean she can't do anything and she said to her husband we've got to get rid of her and they called her into the house and they said to this young woman uh, we need to let you go we will give you a month's salary uh, but it's not working out you're not able to fit in with what we are doing and old sam jones a wonderful street preacher is sort of sitting back watching this conversation take place between the wife and the servant and he's chipping in every every so often and she says to the Joneses, please don't fire me. Please don't let me go. Uh, if you let me go, I can't provide for my family. They are dirt poor somewhere in Kentucky, shall we say. I need this job. I've got to support my family. Uh, a really uh, sad story that she gave to the Joneses. And old Jones said to the wife, let's keep her. Let's keep her. We will find a way to work with her. 
Let's picture Grace. She wasn't much use. She wasn't particularly productive, like most Christians. Not particularly productive, not uh, particularly fruitful. And the Joneses showed her grace in a way that the Lord shows us grace. And they gave her a second chance. And I'm glad that God gives you and I a second chance. He gave Jonah a second chance. And eventually an entire nation got saved for, what, 100 years? They repented and sackcloth and ashes, a bit like Mordecai would do. If you go back to the book of Esther, when Haman was hunting down the Jews, where it got back to Esther that they're about to be wiped off the face of the earth, like uh, Iran would love to do today, and Syria, and uh, Lebanon, and other Islamic countries would love to do today. Hamas, Hezbollah, all those Islamic terrorist groups would love to just wipe out the Jews if they could. And it says how Mordecai put on sackcloth and ashes, and how Esther was praying and fasting with her female aides, entreating the Lord and she went to the king spoke to the king about what had taken place his heart was opened and he said to his wife Esther the queen I will deal with this and of course you know what happened Haman was strung up his entire family were destroyed so sackcloth and ashes from three five six and seven was an old testament way of picturing mourning real grief not like what Jonah has shamefully produced an embarrassing spectacle from a saved man he's more he's more concerned about himself than he is for the people in general. And yet one last time. Thou hast had pity on the gird. For the which thou hast not laboured. Neither made it grow. Which came up in a night. And perished in a night. And should not I. Salvation is of the Lord. From 2.9. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Jews. You got that right didn't he? But here God is speaking. Should not I spare Nineveh. That great city. Wherein are more than six score thousand persons. That cannot discern between their right hand and the left hand. And also much cattle. I was going to spare Sodom if I could find ten righteous. He couldn't of course. Barely three. And he wiped out that entire place. He would have, he would have uh, spared the world of Noah. Had he found ten. But he could only find eight. And here we are. Thousands of years later. At the end of the church age. Fewer people are coming to the Lord in the west. More are turning away from him. They are turning to the east. Like Buddhism. Islam. And yoga. And stuff like that. But of course you go to the east. Many are turning to the Lord. In the east. But not here in the west. So verse 13. Because I don't know the difference between good and evil. I will overlook their situation if you will. But because the king has repented. Uh, from three, five, six, seven, and 8. I will turn from my anger. The evil found over in uh, 3.10. The evil that I was going to pour out. On these people. Going to destroy them. But I like what I see. They've turned to me and Jonah you don't really understand grace but that family the, the Joneses they knew all about grace and old Sam said to his wife we'll keep her we'll keep her on we'll find a way to work with her tears were shed no doubt they kept her on she was able to support her family back in Kentucky and it's a wonderful picture of grace I mean it really is if you look at yourself if you take a close look at yourself every month or every three or four months and compare, and compare yourself to the previous three or four months. Has there been any growth? Any movement? Any uh, change? Or are you still griping? Are you still moaning? Are you still complaining? Are you still backbiting? Are you still finding fault in people? And if you are. You're pretty fruitless to the Lord. He can't use you. And yet here he'll use Jonah anyway. And he'll spare this entire group of people. Like I say around probably half a million people. Or thereabouts. Could be more than that. Could be 600,000 people. But based on the innocence, based on the king turning, based on the nation all coming together under the king's commandments, uh, an entire nation has been saved and spared of the judgments. And that's a picture of grace. I can't put it any other way. That's a picture of grace. 
God's righteousness at Christ's expense. Jonah is like me, like you, like Patrick, like all of us to some extent. Needs to be whipped, needs to be chastised. God needs to get the belt out every so often and give us all a good whipping to bring us back into fellowship with the Lord. But a wonderful occasion, a wonderful story to profile. And like I said a few weeks ago, it takes no more than eight weeks. Excuse me, it takes no more than eight minutes. No more than eight minutes to read the book of Jonah, but it's taken me 10 weeks and almost six hours to really get into the groove, get into the tempo, get into the uh, mindset of Jonah, to understand Jonah, but more importantly, to understand Jehovah. His patience, his mercy, his long-suffering, not willing, not willing that any should perish, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And Matthew 5, 44, 45, pictures grace, common grace, but not grace in the sense of salvation. You've got to repent, turn to the Lord, and he will turn to you. And when that happens, you are safe and forever safe in the beloved. Thank you, Father, for your blessing. Thank you for the last 10 weeks. Please bless what we've been able to do. During difficult days, we pray for your blessing on this broadcast. May it be heard all over the world. May it be an encouragement to those that don't know you and those that do know you to come back into fellowship with you. May it be a blessing to people like Jonah all over the world, many Jonas all over the world, to repent of their bigotry, their hatred, their intolerance, to come back back to you, to prepare themselves as humble, meek servants for thy use. And we pray for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Perhaps just one final footnote to suggest uh, from 411. More than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and the left hand and also much cattle. It could be some of these people were born due to incest, had low IQs, were mentally deficient, unable to really comprehend the difference between good and evil. And that would be one of the reasons why the Lord spared an entire nation. But I can't think of any other nation in the word of God where God spared an entire group of people groups of people yes individuals yes but an entire nation i don't think so but i think 411 helps us to comprehend the mercies of the lord and like i say it could be down to low iqs mental immaturity certainly children certainly young people pre the age of accountability they were spared and see it's, it's a wonderful picture of the gospel the grace of god amen and amen